Patricia, my darling Patricia I can see all my dreams in your eyes Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia You could make all my dreaming come true My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling I'm falling in love with you Patricia, my darling, Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue sky. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love with you. It is Saturday night, August the 19th, 2017. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and a beautiful song. (laughs) And a beautiful song. This lady has the prettiest introduction song in radio. She is uh, 3,000 miles away, but she's here. She's faithful and true, and stuff like that there. Can I make that work as a rhyme? I'm not too sure. I need to work on my poetry, you know? <laughs> I don't do poetry, so you're safe. <laughs> you do what? Uh, I do haiku. Yeah. What's haiku? Hmm? What's haiku? Haiku is a Japanese uh, poetry system that uses a specific, it's only three lines. And it's a specific number of words per line, and I think it is five seven five. Somebody will I remember call that. and correct me on that if it's wrong. Yeah, hmm? I remember that. I thought that was Wormwich. Oh, oh no! Um, haiku is actually poetry. Hmm. It, it, um, you know, it will talk about beautiful flowers and do it oh. in a way that um, not. It's not always sentences. In fact, it's typically not sentences. They're just keywords, um, uh, like beautiful flowers. B e u t i f u l. That's eight. So I would I 
would knock that one out. That that wouldn't work. It's eight syllables. Um, so anyway, it's it's really very I, pretty. I have a very poetic thing. Hickory dickory dot. The mouth ran <laughs> up the clock. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, the, the clock ran. The clock ran one. The mouth ran down. Hickory dickory dot. Sort of. Very poetic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, I was, I was correct. Three lines, five, seven, and five. Traditionally evoking images of the natural world. So later I'll see if I can find some examples, ah, and that would help. That's true. Right? Right. So here she is, the adorable one. <laughs> the, the mouth of the, the south. south. The, 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 the anchor to yesterday, USA. The, okay. The uh, she the uh, she the of of the Saturday Night Show. The taffy. And the what? The taffy. The taffy <laughs> and the caramel of the Saturday Night Show. I'm the I'm the sweet stuff. Uh huh. Oh yeah. She the butter. I'm the bread. Oh yeah, that that'll work. That's true. She the yeah. she the jelly. I'm the peanut butter. Okay, we stick you're sticky and I'm sweet. <laughs> <laughs> we stick together. Here she is, okay. Patricia. Hello there. Oh, hello, Walden. Hi, everybody. It is Saturday night for sure. I checked the calendar, and that's the only way I can come up with the correct date. <laughs> and day. Well, at least you're consistent. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> I know I've told you before. You know, when after after you do stuff like coming out of a coma and stuff like that, there, they will ask you things like who is the president, <laughs> and, um, things like that. And and some of them that they ask is, do you know what month it is? And I'm pretty good on that. And what year it is? And I'm okay on that. And then they'll say, what day is it? And I'll say, I don't know. I don't have my computer in front of me. I don't keep track of anything without my computer. So I fail. You know, I'm I'm making you in Facebook today. Oh, in a good way. Mm hmm And what did you say? Well, I was finding I was finding fun things to post on Facebook, and so uh -huh. I went and Google the Christmas White House Christmas cards, and there's oh. a whole article listing like 65 of them with pictures, and I posted uh -huh. I posted up there. I never knew this until Patricia told me so. So I posted that way people can thumb through all the old Christmas White House Christmas cards. Yeah, yeah. And learn that President Eisenhower drew the, actually designed and drew the, the pictures that went out, I think it was four different years. It might have been more than that, but at least four. And they, so the value of them must be astronomical. When I, well, I was surprised under the Eisenhower Christmas card, it had homework written by him, so I wonder if he had homework print them off, print them off for him. Isn't that interesting? Huh? I don't. Yeah, know. I I would think that's right. I don't know, but that's what happened. Did any of the, Did any of the others have hallmark next to them? No. Or I, they didn't have any printers. Well, they had they from the National Historical Society or from the archives or whatever, mm -hmm. but only by Eisenhower's hallmark. How about that? Yeah, he yeah, had good taste. He had good taste, yeah. <laughs> he had good taste. 
Well, okay. well, everybody, it is Saturday night, and Patricia and I will be opening the phone really soon. We'll, Patricia's scheduled yeah. to be here for a while, so we're going to see how she goes yeah. and stuff yeah. like that there. And I have some questions for you. Oh. Would you like them? some of them now? Sure. Okay. Well, one of the questions is, how many Oscars did Bob Hope win? None. How did you know that? I'm the, as Bill Bragg says, I'm the walking, walking encyclopedia of old-time radio. Okay, um, but this was film. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. <laughs> that is correct. He was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he received the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award, ah. and he hosted the Oscars 19 times, wow. the most in history. And he never got an Oscar himself. I think he was How the best. I think he was the best host in the Oscar show. He was so good. You think so? Yeah, he was so good at it. How cool is that? Yeah. How cool is that? Okay, so I have, um, I have a question for you. Um, um, which president proposed to his wife on their first date? Hmm. Uh, Thomas. Surprised me. Let me think. We know it's, I don't think of Thomas Jefferson. He probably wrote the letter at proposing to her. You know, he was so bashful. Um, yeah. Oh, he he was very bashful. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, I think I'm wrong, but my first guess would be Bill Clinton. No, that is a good guess. Yeah. But they were in school together. They both went to the same school. I think they were both in Yale. I don't know. That's a good one. I don't know the answer to that. Well, it it really surprised me. It was Richard Nixon. Wow. Oh, he so first knows. Let's see. Uh, community theater production of The Dark Tower, mm -hmm. where he met Thelma, <laughs> Thelma Pat Ryan. Right. Um, Pat, Pat Nixon's real name was Thelma. And she was a school teacher, and Richard Nixon proposed to her on their first date, and she laughed him off. Her comment was, I thought he was nuts or something. <laughs> and she was right, but she didn't know it at the time. Um, he courted, she, she was a redhead. I didn't know that. He mm. courted the redhead. He called his wild Irish gypsy for two years and drove her back and forth to her dates with other men. Can you imagine that? Wow. And eventually they got married. Boy, that is a stick to it diffness. He didn't let go. So anyway, that was it. It was President Nixon who did that. You know, I was at the Richard Nixon Library a few weeks ago, and his mm -hmm. younger brother is still alive, everybody. He lives in Seattle, uh, retired aerospace engineer, I think, and he's 87. So, so that's, that's what's uh, new with the, with, with the Richard Nixon people. Cool. I have something that will rock your boat. Yes? Are you ready? Thank you. You're not ready? Bye-bye. <laughs> Am I disconnected was, almost? Yeah, that was, that was Don, our computer guy, about yesterday USA, and I just told him. He forgot I'm doing oh. the show. You know, what can I say? Yeah, okay. My mom Detective just walked, my, comic. my mom walked in, yeah. hand me the phone. I said, I'm doing a show. People yeah. forget. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Okay, well, you can just tell me, and then I'll 
then I'll read some other no, I, I'm stuff. I'm done. I've already told I'll, him that I'm doing a show, so he'll say we'll talk later. So you have it all to yourself. Okay. Well, that, that's nice. We can do haiku later. Heritage Comic Auctions. This is the auction site mm-hmm. that I follow mm-hmm. uh, for comics and movie posters. They sold Detective Comics. I didn't even know that that particular one existed, but that's the title. Uh, You know, it's like Superman and Batman's Mm -hmm. Detective Comics. Number 27 from, from, um, it was DC Comics, 1939, and it was in really nice condition, and it sold for $1,075,500. So how many, comic book. how many how many how many did how many did you and Bubble have in your bedroom that you shared together? You met they had ten of these, right? Would you, would you say that again? How many what? When you and Bubble were sharing a room together as a little girl, you had ten of these comic books in your in your closet, right? Not not very many, no. No, well, I don't I don't think we did. Well, see, I'm being procedure. Too, too bad you didn't have ten of these that worth a million dollars apiece. You bubble oh, could have spoiled them. Willikers, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, if we had ten of these, they probably would not have this kind of value. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, truly, think about it. The you, more, the you, more of an issue are available, the lower the sale price. Well, I, I like to think Patricia had ten of these that a million dollars apiece. That what you miss? <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be really nice. Um, I, I would settle for one. <laughs> I would settle for one. But no, we didn't. We didn't buy comic books. Um, we didn't have the money for comic books. Yeah. And um, you know, the neighborhood kids had them, and they'd let us borrow them. But I don't recall that we had comic books. Maybe maybe my brothers did, because they were out earning money when Barbara and I were still little kids. So maybe they had them. I know they had baseball cards. When we you, didn't when, care about when baseball <laughs> cards. But they had quite a collection. I, the, my, my brother Tom, the one who died a few years yeah. ago, had a huge collection of, of baseball cards. So what happened to them, you know? Well, <laughs> on first pass, no, well, you know, obviously my mom or his former wife <laughs> threw them out. I don't know which, but somebody threw them out. But at one time, you can play flip cards. And you, you flip the cards, you know, you, you, I don't know if I can explain this correctly. You, you hold the card and then spin it. it you actually spin it. And right. the one who lands closest to the, the, the wall that you're flipping them against gets the cards. Right. So at one at a time. And I won every single one of his cards. <laughs> he was hysterical. I mean, it, it was sheer luck. It, you know, you flip these things and... Um, he thought he had the system down pat, and I guess I did, and he didn't. But I won every one of his baseball cards. <laughs> and I was told I had to give them back. <laughs> I thought, yeah, this really stinks. I should charge him a couple of dollars for that. But it, it, it was great fun to be able to do that. Okay, so when you were starting to earn money on your own at age 13, mm-hmm. was there anything that you bought for yourself? Yes. I bought a dress that I thought was just the prettiest thing I ever saw, mm. and I bought it on time. Every week I would go in and bring one or two dollars toward uh-huh. my dress, and eventually I got my dress, and I just loved it. It was yeah. white lace with um, a 
black velvet ribbon that went across, went around the hem of it, mm-hmm. and it was what they used to call a shift. It was straight up and down. It didn't have a defined waist, and mm-hmm. it was it was really nice. And I just loved that dress to pieces. So that's what I bought. So did you, did they bring you out for special occasion? How often would you? Use it or wear it. It was special occasion. Uh-huh. It was special occasion stuff because it was lace. Yeah. It was lace over satin with the the little band of black velvet, and it was oh, it was so pretty. Mm-hmm. At least I thought it was. And they did. They put it away for me, which is kind of unusual because I was very young. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you look at a kid and say, okay, I'll I'll put it away for you, and they did. And you know, every week I would bring in some money until I paid it off, and then I got my dress. So did it take about a year? How long did you think? How long did it take? Do you think? Um, probably six months. Uh huh. Probably six months. Wow. It wasn't a cheap dress. No. Which is <laughs> no, it it was not, and it, and it was in a, in a little um, dress shop. Right. So you know that the price was higher then. Sure. Um, but it it, it took. Oh, um, it shouldn't have taken that long. I don't know, maybe three months. Maybe three months to pay it off. But I did, you and I was so it. proud of myself, and then I had my dress. You did it. Good job. Yes, Good yes, job. I wish I had it now. <laughs> I do. Oh. I could even fit in it <laughs> now, which is really nice. So, Okay, so when, when you got your first pocket money that you could, you know, you could buy mm-hmm. stuff on your own, what did you buy? Old well, time some of the, some radio. Of the, well, some of the early things I remember uh, were little kid records, you know, that you would see in oh. Kmart. You know, the different little kid records. I remember those. And, I uh-huh. course, and of course, there was old time radio. Of course, those are sort of things I would buy as a kid. And occasionally some comic books, but sometimes Dad would buy those for us if we wanted it. And baseball cards, you know. And you wish you had them too. I do. We still got all the baseball. Uh-huh. We still got all the baseball uh-huh. cards. None of the comic books, but we got the baseball cards. <sighs> what kind of comic books? What did you? What, what did you like? Yeah, what I remember as a kid, did we get a package of three in a bag for a quarter? And I think I remember Spider-Man mostly. That's sort of what I remember. That really? That, yeah. The earliest memories. Three for a quarter. Wow. The earliest memories I have, some of the earlier memories, is even more. You know, my, if people know, I'm named after my great uncle, mm-hmm. Uda Walden, and they had a family pharmacy for a hundred years. And so I visited the pharmacy when I was a little kid in Wayne, Nebraska, my mom's hometown, and it had the traditional soda fountain. And he had the comic books on the counter. And I remember glancing through Casper the Friendly Ghost. So th- that, that, uh, stand, that stands in my memory as a kid. Just looking uh-huh. through the comic books at the, my uncle soda fountain. That's really cute. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah. You got to have a soda fountain. I remember mm-hmm. a soda fountain. Because I lived in a town, <coughs> excuse me, that had... It, it was old-fashioned. It was an old-fashioned town. Mm-hmm. They had a soda fountain and hamper- they, they made hamburgers and stuff like that. It was really, mm, they 
had sandwiches. So at lunchtime, the business people tended to be there, and they did a good sandwich and, and lunch business. But then after school, the kids would show up for their ice cream sodas, and we would take up all the booths. <laughs> and the owner didn't, didn't even mind. And I even remember the guy's name. He was so good to us and very quiet and just kind of left us alone. His name was Charlie Umland. U-M-L-A-N-D. And if the Umland family is listening out there, your dad or your grandfather was just so nice to us. Um, and that's nice to know. Yeah. So there. And it was it was an old-fashioned town. My my, my mom grew up in a, such a small town in Nebraska. When they had volunteer fighter fighters, and her dad was one of the volunteer fighter fighters. Uh-huh. And I, she only remembers ever two fires happening. And she remembered hmm. one of them, one of her classmates lost her house. And so my oh. mom gave her best doll to her as a gift because she lost everything. Aww. Yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah. That's so sweet. We had in in the town I grew up in, it, w- it had a volunteer fire department. Mm-hmm. And that's all that was there. They even had volunteer ambulance, which is kind of scary. <laughs> but that's that's what we had. Well, it tells you we live in a different time. My dad remembers in the 30s. And I think he remembered this happening when uh, when the kids would lose their parents. Their mom and dad would pass away. Mm-hmm. It was the neighbors that would adopt the kids to the, the, the raise them. So they would still be raised in the same community. It was the, neighbor, uh-huh. they were the neighbors that would take care of the kids. Wow. And I guess for some of them, it, it was family like aunts yeah. and uncles. Yeah. Yeah. Who did that? But I hadn't. I was not aware that neighbors did that. Yeah. That's something I would have expected in the old west. You know, traveling by covered wagon, mm-hmm. and the parents died along the way. Yep. But uh, my dad remembered that happening in the thirties, like that. Well, if you think about it, you know, uh, we didn't have the social welfare programs that we do today, or yes. foster yes. care, or and so the community had to figure a way to take care of their own. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. I'm I'm sitting in the in the public area here. <laughs> we got people walking back and forth. That's okay. If you can if you hear clunk clunk, it's the vending machines behind me <laughs> that are going off. Oh, gee. Okay. So so what kind of stuff do you have to tell? Like, um, oh, conventions that you're working on and stuff like that. There. Sure. Well, I'm putting together a Spurback lunch in uh, November 11. And we are, we're doing, we're doing a, a Bakerson. We're doing the Radio City Playhouse, right the night before Christmas. This is the one where they try to find goats in Brooklyn for Christmas. And we're doing the Fibber McGee and Molly, where Fibber decorate the Christmas, tr- Christmas house. Oh, 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 yes, oh, yes. When yeah. he spells Christmas wrong? When he, when, he, when, when he puts the lights on the house uh-huh. or yep. paints the tree? When he blows out the lights in the neighborhood. So we're doing that one. Okay. All right. I, we, I got that one. Oh, I, that was so good. That so was so good. So we're doing that one, and then we might do a short excerpt of another. Um, and you're doing all of this in a, a luncheon? Are yep. you going to have anything, any productions before lunch? Nope. This will be the rehearsal. So we'll do the rehearsal in the morning, and then the public can mm-hmm. come for the lunch, and then 
you, you can see the show. Sort of like what you did in 2007 when you came out for the Sportsman's Live. Uh-huh. So we got yeah. that plan. And then in March, they're inviting us to come back to the Long Beach Veterans Hospital. And so we've already talked about what we're going to do. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to do the long distance, the Radio City Playhouse, where the wife, the husband was going to be executed that night, and she found the evidence to try to save his life, so she's trying to find the judge who's traveling to, to America, and she's got the clock against her, and she just falls apart throughout the whole show, and that, Beverly did that at Rep several years ago, and she had a standing ovation for that, so we're going to do that down here. We're going to do the multi-falcon thing, and, you know, because a lot of people who come to this at the are not necessarily old-time radio fans, so mm-hmm. it's a wonderful life work because it was a familiar property, and I needed mm-hmm. something familiar, so we chose that. And then, as we know, our friend Brian Henderson does a great junior as Red Skelton, and so we're gonna take a we're gonna have Brian gonna go listen to a bunch of uh, Red Skelton shows and try to pick out some of the best pieces that we can work into a small little script for him. To be junior oh, very excellent. and Jedi. So that's what we got planned for yeah. March. So Yeah. Is he going to do the mean little kid? Uh, yep. Go do the mean oh. little kid. The mean little kid. And that that was so good. He did such a wonderful job on that. Oh he does. He does. So Yes, yes. I really like that. I really like that. So so that's all right, so you've got a busy calendar coming up. Yep. Those are the those are the two things I and got coming up next, so and I'm available to help, you know. I know. Well, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm working on stuff for November and stuff for maybe April. So once I know you got your feet seat planted, your foot up and running, we can talk. Uh huh. All right. We can talk. You know, I, I like that. You, you, yes. You, you always been, you've always been a good soul. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be able to say, oh, gee, I helped. You know, <laughs> even if I'm not there, I, I can do something that at least helps, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's. All right. I, we have a birthday today. It's a presidential birthday. Who was born on August 19th? If I give you the day, you're probably going to guess. Well, uh, we, uh, a guest that you and I had on the show celebrating a birthday today. Ooh, hoo, hoo, hoo. Dina Martin. Oh, how nice. Yeah, and saw her maybe, on maybe we, yeah. I bet we can have her back. She just lost her mom here a few months ago. Oh, and she sorry lost, about that. And she lost one of her brothers, you know, so, but mm, yeah. she's pretty, still pretty active. Well, that's good. And she was so good talking about her dad. Um, she was. You know, family has a different perspective of people than public has, and she was able to offer that. Um, what she talked about doesn't match the public persona. That and I, It was not a public persona. It was the perception of him as a public figure that didn't match what she was telling us about a home dad, mm-hmm. and um, that was fun to hear that he was as nice as people thought he would probably be. It would be five years since January since we had her on. <gasps> Not. Yeah. And, uh, oh, my whole life is, is passing in front of our <laughs> guests. 
she always good. She always sends me a Christmas card every year. She's very, Aww, very nice. How nice. Yeah. How nice. Yes. Um, yeah, I would, I would really enjoy talking with her again. And then we'll have uh, Kathy Stewart. Uh-huh. Kelly Stewart. She's coming. Yeah. I'm sorry, Kelly. Um, I posted. She's coming back to. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, I posted a little mention about her, how much we enjoyed her on Facebook today. And I put a link to the to the Jimmy Stewart Museum for people to look at today. Yes. And she will come back and fill in the rest of the blanks for yeah. us. And we've got and Bobby Rydell here in a couple of weeks on the 9th, everybody. Uh-huh. So, and we, oh, and next, next week, week we will have Toys for Tots. Toys for Tots. And then I'm going to still... I'm gonna still work on Santa, the Santa school. I just didn't. I had so much on my plate this year, week, and oh my gosh, indeed I, you have. Last, this week and last week, I just so I ran out of time. So I still got yeah. a couple of things to get done. Yeah. So, okay. I'm, I, who whose birthday is today? A president. President. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll even give you the whole date. It's uh, um so you so you're not back with George Washington, August nineteenth, nineteen forty six. Bill Clinton. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, it was in 1946 that gave yeah, him away. Yeah, sure does. And, yeah, so he's been with us for he's like 70, 71 he's years. He's 71? Wow. 70, 71 years, yeah. So what's he, Amazing. How old was he when he got out of office? He was out of office and... Um, he was in in 93, so... Yeah. So, so he's been... So he was... 54 when he left off. He was pretty young when he was president, 46. He was, and this is from memory. I, yeah. I hope I'm correct on this. He was the youngest governor Arkansas ever had and still holds that record. Mm. Hmm. Now, so hmm. my mom's been watching, I think she finally just got done. Nowadays, people, you can borrow video or DVDs from the libraries. Mm-hmm. And... There was a whole, like, like a documentary done on the Roosevelt, Teddy and FDR, just, you know, DVDs, that, and it shows you how young Teddy Roosevelt was when he was elected for some of these different offices wow. in the city of New York, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, super stuff, super stuff. Well, I have another question for you, a presidential question. Mm-hmm. Would you like that, or do you want to open the phones? I have another one, and I got something. I got something else to tell you after that. So give me another presidential. Oh, okay. Tell me, tell me first, and then I'll give you your presidential, and then we can open the phones. You know, I one of my goals in life was yeah. to know, to take a music history class. Mhm. Mom and I are doing that. Mm. It actually is 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 a it's a series that you can study at home. And we bought it from the library. It's 48 lessons. And mom was done like it. It's about a $200 set. But, you know, you can borrow from the library for free. It's called Learning the Great Music. And mm-hmm. I'm learning Baroque. I'm learning uh, opera. I'm learning all the different forms of music. And it tells you how much uh, our music history comes from the different churches. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I never really knew that until you really start studying, studying this and yeah and really you can they were talking today about Bach and the last twenty seven years he worked for the governments and the churches which sort of entwined at that time 
and mm-hmm. he had, and you know, Box sort of like running his own ship. He had 24 bosses to report. He had, and he was suspected to write a cantata every week, and he did that for six, six and a half years. Oh my gosh! You know, just wonderful information you get to learn from and samples. Yeah, and Bach, Bach had a style that you cannot miss. No. It's like Valdi has had a style that you cannot miss. Bach did the Brandenburg concertos, mm-hmm. which are absolutely fabulous. I mean, it, it, there just is nothing better uh, unless you get to Vivaldi. But um, <laughs> it's, it, it is, you're right. It is just remarkable. And the Baroque period is one of my favorites. And, 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 and so I'm, I'm learning a lot because I've often, often wanted to take a music appreciation course. I've never really did that. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm doing that. So we finished uh, lesson 14 today and got 34 uh-huh. more to go. And each one's about 45 minutes. Uh, um, are your mom and you doing the same lesson at the same time? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. So. Very cool. Is there. Uh, are, are you telling me that at the end of each session, there's a test? No. No, there's not. A quiz? No. Not, not a quiz? No. Okay. It's so much information. He is, the guy who's given it is the, is the music um, historian for NPR. Well, you can see why. Oh. You can see why uh, he's on the classical music staff. All the uh-huh. information, and then he'll he'll play piano, he'll he'll do this, he'll play. It, it's just in a very in depth appreciation. So anyway, it's how to learning the great music, everybody learning to appreciate the great music lessons. These are my mom and dad study Egypt this way. Um, a friend loaned them the DVDs. The whole company puts educational video together. And so mm-hmm. my mom saw it at the library on the history of music. And so that's what she and I are taking right now. So just highly, highly recommended. You know, I think we all appreciate, keep on learning. You learn something a little bit to expand your life. And so I'm doing that mm-hmm. right now. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Okay, I have one more presidential if, if you're finished. I didn't mean to trip I on you. I am done. I'm done. Uh, okay, the end. Okay. One more presidential question. Which president had a coconut shell on his desk in the Oval Office? He must have been a fan of Lone Ranger, so we see here. A coconut shell? Well, you know, the hoop beef, with the old sound effect people, the Lone Ranger. Oh, 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 I got it. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's a good connection. The answer is no, but that's a good connection. Uh, My guess would be Teddy Roosevelt. No. And why would Teddy Roosevelt have a coconut on his desk? Uh, because he almost—he just seems to be a person to me that would do something like that. <laughs> this is stupid. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean that. I really don't mean that. Okay. What? Else? Wait, give me give me one more, and then I'll tell you. I thought about Harry S. Truman, but he had that little sign the bus stop here, so I don't—I can't yeah. imagine Harry having a coconut shell next to his little sign. Yeah, it was John Kennedy. Mm. It was President Kennedy who had it uh, as a commemoration of the island that he and the men who survived the PT-109 mm-hmm. uh, 
it was it, it was a torpedo. They got hit by a torpedo. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. On the PT-109, and there were several survivors, and one of them was John Kennedy, and um, he had a coconut shell on his desk because when they managed to swim, they swam to an island and were transported then to a second island, and these were, you know, islands that had palm trees, and it was a, a commemorative type thing for him to have a coconut shell on his desk. I don't... Then he hurt his back, and I don't think his back was yes, ever he right. Did. It was ever right. Never. Yeah. yeah. And and you know Ted Kennedy did the same thing. He had a back injury, a really mm. severe back injury, in a plane crash. And it took a long time for him to get back up on his feet. So the two of them had um, some serious back injuries. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So are we ready? Yep. Okay. And then I got other dumb stuff. The the uh, beautiful one over here in Florida. Mm-hmm. You can give her a call at 714-545-2071. She'll be here for an hour or so, just depending on her, you know, nourishment and vending <laughs> machines. Yes, right. I may have to go down and steal a snack from somebody. <laughs> ooh, ooh, wouldn't that be grand? It would be super. Right. I've got yogurt in their refrigerator. Okay, who's here? Well, let's find out. Hello, you're on with Patricia. Peek-a-boo. Hello, Dave. How are you? <laughs> I can't make an obscene phone call. You guys always recognize my voice. Oh, oh. Well, you practice. Practice. You can do a father misgiving. Yeah, how are you? How are you feeling? Doing good? I, I am doing better, thank you. Great. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to mention. Listening to you guys talk was great. Um, the part of the President Kennedy's coconut that you forget about or maybe didn't know is the reason he had the coconut is when he they got hit by the torpedo, they had right. to swim to an island and had to hide, and he 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 scratched who he was and his whereabouts on that coconut. And gave it to a native who then took it to the Allies who were able to find them. No kidding. Yes. I never knew that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and that matches the information that I got as didn't well, but you had yours in your head. I had to look <laughs> mine up. D- didn't he have a replica? Yeah, well, they replica? had like a coconut, that's why. Didn't he have a replica yeah. of, the, of, the, uh, of the boat on his desk, too? Didn't he have a, a model? I, I don't know. He may have, you yeah. know. He may have. I don't know. Do you remember the song? PT-109. Oh. Go ahead and sing it. You're a, you're a good singer. Uh, I'm not that good a singer, and I can't remember. Um, the, I remember when uh, Matt Mehung, the Irishman, was burned so bad that he couldn't swim. Leave me here, go on, he said, because if you don't, we'll all be dead. The PT skipper couldn't leave him, a man to die alone at sea with a strap. Between his teeth, he towed the Irishman to the sea. See, um, oh, and I can't remember. I, I, I can't remember. It I, I can't like, remember the chorus. It, I remember. it almost sounds like a, like a folk song. Was it a folk song? It, it was a, a, like a folk song. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was. It was sung by Jimmy Dean. Oh, the country. Big Bad John. Remember yeah. Big Bad John? Oh, yeah. 
and he did uh, the PT Ballad of PT 109. Smoking fire upon the sea, everywhere you look is the enemy. But um, he was saved. Oh, oh no, I, I was doing good there. Never mind. Anyway, that's. Uh... <laughs> and I wanted to tell you, talking about your first job that you had. What job did you have first, Patricia? When you were getting up for that? I had a dress? clerical job of all things. I had a clerical job because I could type. And I okay. typed well. Uh, yeah, I I wanted a typewriter so bad, and my father said you cannot have one unless you learn how to type. And I'm thinking, you know, this this is really a cool Christmas present, you know. So I taught myself how to type, and when I did that, he came home with a typewriter for me. So I got a no. clerical job. And then you were able to buy the dress which you wish you still had. But you realize it wouldn't fit you anymore, right? What? Would you say that again? Yes. I said, I said, and then you were able to buy the dress. Yeah. Fit, and you said that, you said that, well, then you wish you still had it, but you realize it wouldn't yeah. fit you anymore, right? Oh, yeah, it would. It would? Oh, my yeah. God. I'm you when you were a kid. I, are, you, are you shaking up? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm. This is wonderful. Yeah, I can't I think wait so to too. see what it. Um, yeah, I, I would want it. Well, it was sort of interesting yeah. when we had Margaret O'Brien um, up at Seattle for reps. Uh, she can still get in her coats. Uh, I think she's eighty now. She can still get in her coat at, at wow. eight years old. She has an eight. Eight. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh. That oh. is. Yeah. To me. It's oh. amazing. Yes. Now, now, the other thing I wanted to mention before I forget is I would have been, just recently I said to myself, I'd like to interview Dina Martin. Oh. And then you guys mentioned her tonight. So guess what? We can help. Walden can, Walden can reciprocate and give you the contact information. Oh, yeah. By the way, for our listeners... This is Dave Kane, our radio personality from Rhode Island, the one who invites us occasionally to join him on the air, and we always have such a great time. So this is yeah, Dave we always have a good time. We do. Yep, she yeah. she got a really nice staff, and uh, she lives in the Midwest, so you know, so doing the early morning won't be a, an issue for her. Well, it's bad. Yeah, well, yeah. If you can drop me that, uh-huh. that would be yep. great. I'll be happy. Because I, I I can't believe I was just thinking about her, and then you. You mentioned her. That's yeah, it was, yeah it was just today's her birthday, and uh, we had her on the first part of January 2013, so it's been almost five years. So She's coming back? Well, I th- I'm just thinking she's so good about being in touch, I just think it's time to invite her back sure. sometime. So, sure, great. So I'll have you be the warm-up act. That way you can go Okay, off. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll get her. <laughs> She'll do me, and then after she'll be so glad to have you. <laughs> that other guy was a jerk, but Walden, I'm loving this. You're good. Now, did you guys say what you did for uh, Walden? Did you have a job when you were younger? I, I, I the first really paying job I had was a, was a financial planner, and I got that right out of college per se. Okay. But everything else I did was always 
volunteer or doing stuff around the house or stuff like that there. Yeah, okay, all right. So nobody has asked me what my first job was. What's your first job? Oh, funny you should ask. (laughs) I was just... We would have gotten around to that. Huh? We would have gotten around to asking you. Well, I don't know. I mean, who... Okay, here here was my first job. I was nine nine years old, and I worked on Friday nights in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, You were nine? Nine. I worked after school from Uh from three three to seven, and uh, I I put up orders to take out. I, I waited on people. Uh, and put up orders to take out. And this Chinese restaurant had the most delicious fish and chips on Friday. And the place was always packed with people wanting fish and chips. Did you grow grow up in pretty much the same area that you live now? Or were you just in a different part of the... No, no, no. I was was in a a, a much uh, poorer neighborhood when I was a Uh kid. And um, I mean, they're very different. When I was when I was a kid, I think I told you my mother. You know, we didn't we didn't have anything. My mother was very clever. She tried to make ends meet. She told me that when the ice cream truck came around and he was ringing the bell, it meant they were out of ice cream. Oh. That was what. But now I live in a different kind of. I live in a higher end neighborhood. Uh, our Salvation Army band has a string section. <laughs> That's pretty good. But no, so you, so you grew up in Rhode Island. You, you, yeah, oh yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I didn't grow up, but I've been in Rhode Island for the time I was born. Yeah, I still haven't grown up. So here's the thing. So so one night, this lady came up to me and said she wanted two orders of fish and chips. So I yelled into the kitchen, the little Chinese guy that owned it, two and two to travel, right? And yes. he said. Oh, isn't that cute? Two and two. That isn't that cute. And she gave me a quarter. And I oh. said, oh, cute makes money. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my career. Well, that's pretty and, cool. Nine years old. How did you land a job at nine years old? Well, yeah, it was, it was a local name, but everybody knew everybody. It was one of those things, you know. And I worked there, and I and this guy gave me a dollar and my meal. That's what I got. That, that's pretty good. Yeah, well, it was. How many, how many hours after school? How many hours did you do? Three to seven, so it's four hours. So it was like four tw- hours, so you got 25 cents an hour. Yeah, plus my meal, which was good, you know. And, uh, All right. And now I'm going to tell you, this is a story I don't think I've ever told anybody on the air. Mm-hmm. Years later, I worked as an orderly in the local hospital. Oh, yeah. And, and this owner of this restaurant, David Goon, his name was, he had four, he was quite old by then, and he had fallen and broken his hip, or, or as you know, Patricia, they break their hip and then they fall. <laughs> People don't realize that. Um... So he was in the men's ward. He was just being brought in, and he looked frightened to death. And I walked up to him, and I said, David, David, it's me, David. 
Well, you want to see his face. He was so glad to see somebody because he was all alone. And, and he was so glad to see my face, and I got to take care of him while his hip healed. Yeah. That was pretty cool. How old, Dave, were you on your own yeah. when you were living on your own? Would you Did you leave home pretty pretty quickly? Oh, no, no, no. I, I was home, well, I was home until I was, oh, 19, 20. Uh-huh. Yeah, 19, maybe 18. Yeah, 18 to 19, around there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so that was, you know... Yeah, but that was with it. But then, by then, I was in radio. I mean, I was. Mm-hmm. I had paying gigs in radio, so. So. Well, I just think you know, uh, times have changed so much. You know, my dad was on his own at age fourteen, but back in those days, in the thirties and forties, you know, not not every family was making it. So you, if if you were only kid, if you were only money as a kid, sometimes you were. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I gave my I gave my whole check to my mother when I when I worked in the hospital. I worked full time three to eleven while I was going to high school. Wow! And some nights I did. I took the overnight shift too. I took double duty, and then I would sleep in history class. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And when I graduated from high school, my homeroom teacher handed me my final report card and said to me, "This is a gift from your teachers." <laughs> And it was. <laughs> so, I stayed away for some of the classes. Though. So, so that's what I wanted to tell you tonight. That's good. We didn't. I, I took a psychology class, and the professor was, he would sit at his desk and, in a monotone, repeat everything that we had read in our psych books to prepare for class. He would read from the from the book. Yep, yep. And three of us used to sit in the, and we were all nursing students, and three of us sat in the back of the room and had an agreement that two of us, at least two of us, had to stay awake and wake up the third one. <laughs> she fell asleep. And all of us at different times would fall asleep in this class. And one of them fell out of her desk. We missed it, that she had fallen asleep. And she fell out of her desk. My dad remembers in college at the University of Nebraska, he had 8 o'clock in the morning history class. And the professor was an old, older gentleman, whatever old is today, he probably wasn't back in the, as a kid. And the professor had a tendency to sleep. He would lecture and then fall asleep for 20 minutes. And then the kid, they said the kids would just sit in the chairs and read until the professor would wake up to continue his lecture. <laughs> I like that part. I like that. Uh, anytime I can take a nap, I'm ready. It's fine with me. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you've all had successful careers. I can tell that the, your your education has been great value to you. <laughs> well, whoever thought that Patricia's nursing degrees and my economic political science will wind up in broadcasting? Whoever thought? Last well, thing, you did. Side road here, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Real jobs to fall back on. That was my mother's thing. My mother found out one time that shoe salesmen made salary and commission. And so she was constantly trying to convince me to go get a job as a shoe salesman. That was her big yeah. thing. And every time I'd get fired from a radio station, she'd say, well, you know, you could always sell shoes. <laughs> so that, was, that was my support from mom. <laughs> I, but you, you never did. 
I have a famous shoe story in our family. You know, my, my uncle, everybody, is a retired fourth dunk general. He was the head of NATO. And one of his odd jobs as a kid in a small town in Wayne, Nebraska, was to show shoes. And he liked to buy donuts and take the donut to the donut shop. So it's been accused, it's been floated around that people have found donuts inside their shoes, in their shoe boxes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because that's where he would hide them. Uh huh. That's where we hide them in the shoe boxes. Could I see a 9-4 in a wedgie or a crawler, please? <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm glad you guys are doing good. I just wanted to check in. I'm going to sneak in quick and get out of here. People are waiting to talk to you, so I'm going to get out of the way. Thank you, Dave. And we'll talk soon, okay? You bet. You bet. I'm thinking of both of you. Take care, Dave. Always Hi, Larry. when you call in. All right. Good Bye-bye. night now. Bye-bye. That was Dave from Rhode Island, and he calls in periodically, Mm -hmm. so a bunch of our family members would recognize him. But in case we have newcomers, um, and you can call in and say hi, um, Dave is an on-air personality, and he has a radio show on Saturday mornings up in Rhode Island. And Walden, you always know how to to get there. It's radio station on the web. W you're, you're breaking you're breaking up on me. Okay. On the website it's W A R A Radio dot com. Cool. W A R A Radio dot com and home from nine until noon Eastern time. Hello there. On Saturdays. Now how how come I can't remember that? Well, because you haven't have it in boys in your memory bank. I guess not. I guess not. Okay, who's on the phone? Hello who's there. there? Who's there? Hello, you two. How uh, are you? I'm fine, so last. How are well, you? Well, good. First of all, Walden, uh, I was going to tell you, you're studying uh, the history of music right now. Mm-hmm. All right, now, here's where you can get a little bit ahead. What style of music is Bach most famous for? Well, it was interesting. What we heard today was choral music is what he's known for if you're a student of music. But I don't know. What, what, what did you hear today now? Choral. Choral music. You know, choral. Oh, music okay. What, well. But they were saying that's really if you're, a, if you're a student studying classical music, that's what he's right, known for. Right, right. I don't know necessarily. But he developed, I don't know that he invented it, but he developed and became most famous for the Bach fugues. Have you ever heard of that? No, we haven't done that one yet. So. Fugues, yes. And fugues are when uh, your left hand plays a counterpunnel uh, uh, melody going on with the right hand. Both hands are using all ten fingers and playing at the same time. I'm trying to simplify it for you, but but that's what it is. Now, you know, I tell you this because Mozart, you would think of what? A symphony, right? right? right. And Bach was most, uh, the Bach fugues are the things that, that's one of the things he really developed. So now that you know that, see, when you go to class, you're going to be brilliant. <laughs> well, one thing I've really learned <laughs> during the Bach era, it's really 
the Italian and the Germans have the major influence on that's the, right. On the and I never knew that. I, I never. And, they did. And, yes, absolutely. And, and the um, the the um, Italian music was the one that gave itself more to opera. Right. And they started the opera. Uh huh. The, the, the professor thought it's the it's the rhythm of the language it it influenced the music writing. So in other words, right. Because the Italian had such a wonderful flowing. Linguistic sound to it, right? And the German, yes, absolutely. And there are Spanish operas, but Italians really have the most, the the lion's share of the famous operas. Now, see, you know how German sounds, right. and it wouldn't sound very pretty it in did. an opera, would it? No, and it said, if you if, if you if you study how the Italian and German, if they say the same words in their own language. It has a different cadence and a different rhythm, and that influences how music is written in different in a different culture. And uh-huh. I never uh-huh. knew that. Absolutely. Well, I am. I just think that's wonderful that you all are doing that mm-hmm. music appreciation. That is so good. Well, considering you know when you're in college, you sort of you get stuck in your own area of expertise, and you that's really, right. You don't because mm-hmm. really you're out. trying to get out of college. Correct. That's right. <laughs> You're not trying to be a career student. I know there are people who would be like being career student, but I, I was not one of those. So, uh-huh. so uh-huh. just music appreciation is something I've always felt I never had enough. Uh-huh. Even I remember you saying that periodically, mm-hmm. that it was something that you wanted to do, and I'm so glad that you have an opportunity to do that well, now. Another area I feel very lacking is, is literature. I never I never study literature, you know, um, you know, in depth, and I, you know, generally I would take the history part of the, of those types of courses rather than studying the literature part. You know, I can imagine some years of me study English lit, American lit, you know, the things beyond that, that what we took in school, the actual in-depth right. analysis is something I feel very lacking in. Well, after I got my master's degree in in higher education, I'm a Spanish major for that. But I want I took a class just for my own gratification. Beyond that, to study this the uh, short story, and I brought this up with y'all before. Edgar Allan Poe was deemed the father of the short story, but. Uh, uh, a lot of Spanish writers picked that up right away, and they became very famous short story writers. And I didn't need those hours to complete my master's, but it's nice to take something you want to know about just because you want to know about it. You know, you know. You know, for me, when I was going to school, like in my summer, I would pick out heavy-duty Think that I wanted to learn. That maybe right. that I not every kid that way, of course. But that's how I I sort of expanded my horizons that way. And I think. What do you consider some? Tell me something heavy duty now. Oh well, for example, I went ahead. I really want to know all the presidential history, so I took a book, and I could. It, it gave you every major event in every presidential term in office. So that's why I can recite you backwards and forwards, all the presidents and the major events in their life. I, that's sort of how... All like the that. presidents what? 
in the presidential life. Oh, oh, I see. You know, what uh, actually, yeah. with, with those things. You know, most kids, 8, 10, 11 years old, are not going to be doing that. But I, that kind of stuff I would read, at least one, something like that during the summer. Uh-huh. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. Well, I won't keep you anymore, but just remember now, Bach Fugues, when you go for your... Uh, that means each hand is playing something different mm-hmm. and independent. And, uh, Amazing. Yeah. I was trying to think who was the most... Do that. Or, um, symphony is Mozart. I wanted to think of who was... Oh, um, concerto. I'm trying to think of his name. He was so famous for playing concertos. Um, and he was... I can't remember. Anyway, doesn't matter. He was Polish, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he his name does. right now. Yes. I don't know, Patricia. How how can a, how can people have the gift to play something with the right hand and diff, something different with the left hand at the same time? It, it it's a god gift. I don't see how else the human brain can function. I don't know. You know, I've heard I've heard this before. Uh, with musicians and the very accomplished musicians who can play two different pieces at the same time using both hands. And it it has always blown my mind. And then I, I brought it over to typing because you're using both hands, not necessarily at the same time, but you have to plan ahead to do the keys with the right hand and the keys with the left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's any any connection there at all. But you're using both hands. But it's well, normally, if you're playing just a popular song, and you're not playing a Bach fugue where both hands are going crazy, uh, mm-hmm. but the left hand is not playing the same thing the right hand is playing. The left hand is playing the chords that back up the melody that you play with your right hand. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Of course it does, and and it (laughs) clears up a couple of things for me. Um, There's great familiarity when you're doing repeat chords. It's a lot easier than the what you're doing with the right hand. Um, And uh, for a left-handed musician, I am guessing that it is more difficult to do that. It might be. You know, I never thought of it, but it might be. I don't know. Yeah, because the left hand, the left hand, which is their dominant hand, is playing the least important part of the piece. Well, it is. I, I would also. It's also given. You're playing a chord with your right hand, and the left hand is completing the sound of that chord that you want. You use, you know, yeah. at least three or four okay. fingers for each chord. So let's go out and find a left-handed musician. <laughs> there are a lot of them. You'd be surprised. Yeah, there are a lot of them. Left-handed piano players, and there are plenty yeah, good ones, too, to because the left hand, you're ne- most piano players are not as de- um, ambidextrous where they can use their left hand as, as well mm-hmm. as their right hand. You so, know. so are yeah. there some cases that they would adapt the instrument? If you were left-handed rather than right-handed, in other words, you know, I mean. No, you mean you mean change the treble to yes. the bass, uh-huh. bass to the treble. Yes. 
The piano, you mean? Yes. Yeah, I've never heard of that being okay. done, but that doesn't mean it hadn't been done. Right. Just, just because I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I never thought of that, Walden. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, last night we were talking to a gentleman last night who written a book on George Wright, who was a famous theater organ player. And right. We were talking about how some of the most famous uh, people who played the theater organ came from very small towns. And let's face it, those people didn't have theater organs in their, in their house. They had a be living near places or uh -huh. churches and, and various things that where they could learn it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I thought it was interesting. Yeah, he said the most of classic theater organ wound up in pizza parlors. I had no idea. And oh my word! Yeah, <laughs> and he said in the San Francisco. <laughs> I'd never think of that. Yeah, in the San Francisco area, there were twenty-three pizza shops that had theater organs. I would have never thought that. Cause to me, <laughs> that instrument belongs either in a church or you know some of the well-known musicians would have had them in their mm -hmm. home, but not a, not a pizza parlor. Yeah. <laughs> I had organ music in the in the Penny Arcades also. Mm. Uh huh. That's right. You're right, Patricia. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of that either. Take it for granted. Mm -hmm. I, I hadn't thought about that. Um, didn't didn't the, didn't the roller skate? Rinks, didn't they have Oh, one? yes. They had, they or, had, they organs. had yeah. organs, yes. Right, and ice skates, uh-huh. Ice skating as well. Okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. You know? I hadn't thought about that. Usually you just think about churches, and what I think about now is um, when I was really young, at home with Mama when she would listen to the radio during the day while she'd be cleaning house and doing things. And most of the things that came on the radio during the day, now not at night, mm -hmm. but during the day, had organ music. True. Well, I thought it was interesting last night, the gentleman that we had on it also teach music in high school, and he felt the day of the two-hour uh, concert was probably long gone. It had to be part of another event. It has to it be. Is. It is. I'm sure that's right. And I got yeah. that's too bad. Uh, he just didn't think people were willing to sit for two hours. They won't, yeah. For, uh -huh. for, for a recital anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's sort of sad. It, it is very sad. And, and the thing that's ruined it, and I'll get off my soapbox, but electronic music is what's ruined the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's you can plug it in and it plays, you know, and it doesn't take the the and people dance to it and all that, but it doesn't take the skill that you have to have to go in and be part of a big band or play for dancing and all that. Electronic music has done a lot about that. Too bad. I often sort of wonder though, are we going to wind up with less and less people who are able to play music? You know, that's, isn't that interesting, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, mean, I really don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. It, we used, now did both of you take music classes when you were in elementary school? Did they sing in your classroom? Yes, I had, I had, we had a roving music instructor 
Uh-huh. But, but I also had five years of guitar lessons outside. It, it, oh. As part of my, uh, I was changing classical guitar style, and so I had five years of guitar lessons. So that I had. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I, so I had that as my music background. But uh, uh-huh. how about did you, you Patricia? Did you all sing in your classroom? Did you have? We we did not sing in a classroom. We were excused from class to join other classes for what was ostensibly a music lesson <laughs> by a person who who was musically talented but had the teaching skills of a Brillo pad. Oh no! Bless your heart. Oh my gosh! It, it, oh. it was just terrible. It was absolutely dreadful. And the, and the oh. I remember more than anything that we were supposed to have learned in class was when she was putting together some kind of a recital or I don't know what it was, but she said, can anybody sing bass? And she said, no, I don't mean singing low. I mean bass. And I mean, she was just crazy. I mean, these are nine and 10 and 12 year old. I know. I beg pardon? I said bass for a young person. That's that's really I know. I know. It's impossible in most is I'd say. Yeah. Uh I know. I know. And she might have, and I'll say might have, uh, fared reasonably well with a high school group or a college group, but certainly not for grammar school. Yeah. Dreadful. It was dreadful. I mean, it wasn't even. It it wasn't good enough. For us to say, oh, good, we're getting excused from the classroom for an hour. <laughs> I, it, it was, oh, my God, do we have to do this again? Music class it can be the most fun class you can have if it's, if it's a good teacher. And, uh-huh. and yeah. they let you sing songs that are fun to sing and all that. That oh. a really good break from your studies during the day if it's done right. Also, yes, I, well, I, this wasn't. I remember... <laughs> I doesn't sound it, Patricia. I, I think you're right. Uh, I remember... I, I mean, it, 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 I remember, we missed out on an awful lot. It was an opportunity that was just... It never bloomed. Yeah. yeah. I remember in elementary school that we were taken to the auditorium because a, an opera company came in and did a part of the Barb of Seville. And I remember oh. seeing that. And I remember... Also, another year, you know, they, they would take our classes and take it to a classical music co- concert in the morning. Mm-hmm. So they had the orchestra and the uh, conductor, and the conductor would teach you. Now, this is when you fall to a collapse, you know, when I turn my back. Or th- different things, he would teach the kids. So, you know, they had to get the orchestra up early in the morning. T- and right. they, would uh-huh. put our, they would put on a program for us. So they would bus us over to the, uh, to the music the music center, and they would put on programs like that. And I uh-huh. just, memories, I, I'm just thinking back in those days. You know, yeah. We yeah, well, like everything in the in the arts, you know, it can be very, very good, or it can really be lousy. I never had a good art teacher, and I always wanted, um, I'm not talented at that at all, but I, I, any time I was in, uh, elementary school or junior high, I never had a good art teacher. It was sad for me. I wanted to learn mm-hmm. to draw and paint, and I just never had a good teacher. Patricia, can you tell Celeste who, what famous musician came to your school and played 
I think the people. Dan Clyburn. Dan. <gasps> oh my! What what boy? What um, what was the greatest peak into his personality and how much music meant to him was that he was scheduled to play in you know give a, a concert. I don't know what you would call it. I mean, it, it was a performance. I guess would be the best thing. A performance at my school. And, it, I mean, it was like two hours, and he was scheduled for a day that his plane was grounded because of fog. He got out the next day. His, his plane left the next day, and he made arrangements to come the next day. Wow. Oh, my goodness. He changed his schedule around so that he could play for us because we were interested enough in hearing him. Oh, I just my thought that was that was the most, and as an adult, I can appreciate what an extraordinary thing that was. Uh-huh. That's what he did. He, uh-huh. he played for our school, and, I mean, obviously it was just a magnificent con- no performance kidding. that he gave. And, and, you know, and he, and he had a I've seen quality. him many because of him being from here, but I've never heard him in person, so you've got one up on me there. One, one up, and what's really sad is that as a student, it probably, for most of us, if not all of us, we did not have the appreciation then because it, we hadn't had an opportunity to develop an appreciation. And now I can look back and say, wow, what a wonderful experience that was and what a terrible shame that I did not get as much out of it as I would today. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was really a wonderful experience, and and he was such a pleasant person, and he talked with us, um, and took questions, and you know, it just it just How was an wonderful. extraordinary experience for someone of his caliber um, and notoriety to do something like that for us. You know, to change his schedule around because he had a commitment and he wasn't able to meet it, and he wanted us to hear. Isn't that great? Well, we know, uh, you know, I read good things about him and everything and always have, but uh, that is really wonderful to know that when he goes to other places, he's like he is here, you know. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And he, you know what, <clears throat> he is from Kilgore, Texas, which is an oil town, and he grew up with those oil derricks all over the downtown part of Kilgore. <laughs> wow. But wow. Well, his, his mother really made good, found the best teachers and just really helped him, and he, he took to it. And he's a wonderful mm-hmm. tribute. Well, it was interesting when I thought... Finality, a wonderful get, person. Last night when he had a guest yeah. on, he, and I never knew that, he said Leonard Bernstein's father had no appreciation of his son's abilities. Uh-huh. And I remember reading that someplace and, and never never attended any of his never. his performances. And, and they asked the way, he said, well, he asked the father later, well, I never knew he would, he would go up to be Leonard Bernstein, the musician. I mean, he never he never gave it a second thought that his son had any talent. Yeah. Well, you know, can you imagine to have his name, ID, and the things he wrote, and not have your father's appreciation. How strange. Yeah. That could warp your personality, couldn't it? Uh, 
I, I would think so. Uh, from what I recall, Walden, you can help me know if mm-hmm. I'm on track here. Mm-hmm. What I recall reading about this very strange thing where his father never even, never even heard one of his performances, that his father um, poo-pooed having anyone make, try to make a living with music, and he thought it was ludicrous. It was just ridiculous, mm-hmm. and that he was going to be wasting his life on this and just never supported him. I wonder how ironic it is. I wonder how much more money he made than his father did. (laughs) It would be ironic, wouldn't it? Oh, squillions, squillions. Well, then help me with this. I believe his father was a blue-collar worker. I think so. in any of the arts or yeah. school or teacher or anything like Can that. Can you imagine? I had never heard that story. That sounds almost unbelievable. I was working on having him come yeah. over to Frank's studio just before he passed away, but he was just a common, ordinary guy. You know, Bernstein didn't have the airs that, you know, you would think. Yeah. But he was just, yeah. uh... You know. Oh, yeah, he and he loved jazz. Yeah. He would go sit in. He had favorite jazz players and all that. He'd go sit in on, you know, at night, go to nightclubs and all that. Mm -hmm. He was a great appreciator of the Gershwins, and he was a very uh, interesting, broad-minded person. But I can't imagine a father not being proud of somebody like that. Can you? No. I had no concept of what the the music uh, that his son was developing and playing and, you know, as far as he was concerned, it might as well have been honky-tonk. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I've taken way too much time. It's just that, you know, I love to talk about music. And Walden, now remember the name of that uh, classical music that, that Bach played a was fugue. called A Fugue. A Fugue. I will remember that. So I you remember it. I will yeah. remember that. I'll say goodnight and jump off so other people can call. Take care. You do. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling. Uh, Bye-bye. Goodnight. You sound perky, Patricia. Oh, thank you. Thank (laughs) you. Sound good. Bye-bye. 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 See, we're a very very interesting eclectic show again. 714. (laughs) Eclectic, for sure. (laughs) 714-545-2071. And Patricia was looking just before... I don't have anything to talk about. You know, I don't have anything. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I don't have anything planned. I mean, I got stuff, but I don't have anything planned. And do you know the definition of fugue? Uh, no, I do not. A, a fugue, when, when somebody goes into a fugue, they are absent from their surroundings. They're so caught up in a thought process that they don't recognize what's going on around them. So it's, uh, I mean, they're not unconscious or anything. Mm-hmm. They're just so intent on something that they're thinking about that they have discounted everything else, which I think is kind of cool. Someone I'm cool. a fugie. I'm so, a fugue person. Uh, yeah, so when you're, when you're busy writing the, the, Amer- the great American novel, do uh-huh. you, do you, I'm for- in a fugue. Uh, you forget everything else? Uh, uh, anything that's going on around me, if, as long as I'm in a rhythm and I've got something moving in the direction that I wanted to, uh, yeah, I, I get in a fugue where nothing else around me. What, what's the longest you have just, remember, just sitting at the typewriter and just going? What's the longest amount of time you think you've ever 
without going to the bathroom or, or something like that. <laughs> or start grabbing a sandwich uh-huh. or going for a soda yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, that, that's hard for me to tell. I am an attention deficit disorder person. Mm-hmm. So I would typically write in 15-minute blocks. That, that was about the best I could do. And mm-hmm. then after I started medication, and this was when I was an adult, mm-hmm. um, when I started medication, I did a whole lot better. So I would guess that the longest period I could go without any kind of a break would be about an hour, which is nothing to brag about. No, no, but still, you you were able to, man. So how did you force yourself, when you were on a 15-minute cycle, mm-hmm. how did you force yourself to get back over there to the typewriter to do because once you, you, I would think you stopped for the 50 minutes and walked away. For mm-hmm. it'd be tough getting yourself back over there to continue the next section. Um, it, it was always, it was always such a short break. Okay. It, it just, you know, that, so that maybe two minutes, a two-minute break, mm-hmm. so that it was not difficult for me to get back in stride. It wasn't like I left it for the next day. Okay. So it, it, it was, it was okay. It was okay. It was frustrating that I could only do 15 minutes at a time. It really made me crazy. And then when I started attention deficit medication, it made all the difference in the world. It was just incredible that I would look up at the clock and realize that I had been there for an hour or an hour and 15 well, minutes. You know, I, 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 yesterday I wrote a, bio, a biography of a person, and mm-hmm. it wound up being five pages, single, single space. And it was just mentally exhausting. I think writing, for me, is one of the most mm-hmm. mentally exhausting things. I don't see how people, you know, I, I did, you know, 40 minutes. You know, 40 minutes with a long shot before the phone rang and I taking care of somebody, mm-hmm. something else. But to me, writing is such a, a mental, emotional exercise mm-hmm. that it, it, I could see short period of time making sense as a writer. Because... yeah. You know, I remember reading Wikipedia page, William Manchester, I think the longest he spent is 40 hours one time, straight. And... What? <laughs> 40 hours, and... His would be a different writing style because, to me, I remember hearing interviews, he thought a good day with one page. But you mm-hmm. think about, for him... He was doing so heavy lifting, looking at research documents and different things. Mm-hmm. I imagine part of his writing day would be examining primary sources and different things before he decided to put his thoughts down on paper. Be my guess. I would think, yeah, I would think that he probably had, yes, you're right, um, did his research mm-hmm. before he sat down to write, indeed. So, yes, and, and uh, doing a page a day is a pretty standard standard thing among writers if you can if you can come out and be really satisfied uh with a page that'll work well but i think to me i remember when i first started to write a research paper you know they always teach you to write your thought down a three by five card at least they did in my Mm -hmm. my elementary school junior high that and write that way to me, sometimes you get bogged down with all these textbooks and everything. You you sort of never mm-hmm. you never get started. At least I, as a kid, I thought it was, it was hard to start a mm-hmm. a paper, a, a research yes. paper like that. Yes, indeed. And and 
two things. It's hard for me to get started. Once I get started, I am cool. Once mm-hmm. I have my opening line, it's cool. Um, in the beginning, it was a dog every day? In the beginning, say that again? I'm trying to think. What's the famous line in Linus? In, in the beginning, it was a dark and dreary day. Or, or, you know, oh, oh, it was a dark and stormy night, yeah. and that's Snoopy who did that. He'd sit on this doghouse with a typewriter. It was a dark and stormy night, and I read that one night. It, it was, um, oh, I think his first name was Charles Bull, and his last name was Bulwer Lytton. Mm-hmm. And he apparently, not apparently, the sentence that begins with, it was a dark and stormy night, was has and has generally been accepted for decades that it was the worst opening in the history of writing <laughs> and i thought it was a dark and stormy night you know that's not so bad that kind of <laughs> sets the stage and then i went and looked for it and i read it out loud one night the whole sentence is in a, is a paragraph longer than you would likely find in a, you know a, a standard book now, I don't know why they picked him. Jack Kerouac used to write, I mean, he would write pages without a punctuation or a period. But Bulwer Lytton wound up getting zapped as the worst opening paragraph in the world. It, it was just a sentence that never stopped. Did, never stopped. I'll have to pull it out again one night. Did, did, are, are the famous authors, American authors, like Faulkner, Hemingway, those are do they break the rules? I know you taught mm-hmm. writing. Do, do they break the rules in writing normally or not? Um, Faulkner did. Faulkner was another one who used run-on sentences and had a really heavy style that, for me, was very difficult to get into. I, I just have never read a complete work by Faulkner. Mm. I'd get through the first five or ten pages. <laughs> I said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it took more brain power to read then I think it took him to write it. <laughs> so I, I bypassed Faulkner. Now, um, Hemingway, I'm not really sure about Hemingway. He had, he had a style that changed at different times. Now, The Old Man and the Sea yeah. is one of my favorite, yes. it's my favorite stories. And it, it wasn't, wasn't short enough to be a short story. It wasn't long enough to be a novel, so it's probably categorized as a novella, which is shorter than a novel and longer than a short story. And it was such a, a touching, um, rich, it, it, it was, the characters yes. were so vivid. And, you know, the poor man who caught this huge fish and he wanted to bring it back to the village people who had always made fun of him going out um, fishing. And he came back with this enormous fish. And by the time he got back, it was a skeleton because the sharks had eaten it along the way. And he had virtually nothing to show for his his effort so yeah that that was one style and i don't think he carried that style over to any other piece of work that he did everything else was a lot heavier it wasn't it wasn't that difficult to get through but it was a lot heavier than the old man in the sea oh gosh who's next who was the the guy who wrote uh, a mice and man and Mm -hmm. grapes of wrath yes um, uh-huh. I wonder what his style was like. I remember reading Mice and Men. I don't think, I saw the film Grapes of Wrath. I don't remember reading the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm just thinking of other famous American writers. Do they just break yeah. their own style? I don't know. 
they did their own thing. Uh-huh. And most of them broke the rules. You're absolutely right. That was your original question. Right. Did they break the rules? And yeah, they did. They did. But they did it. They did it correctly. So they knew, which is what I used to teach. You can't break a rule unless you know what it is. So you have to learn the rules first. And then you can go out and break them in an intelligent way. And when they broke the rules, it fit where they were. It fit. So they would write incomplete sentences, and it was it it was the right thing to do. So is there a book called the Writer's Rule Books? No, but Strunk and um, Strunk and White um, and E. B. White did another one. E. B. White, his Elements of Style, will give all the rules of grammar. So if you have a problem where where to put a comma, mm-hmm. he will do that. So he's got all the rules down. And when you know what he wrote in Elements of Grammar, which is a very small book, by the yes, way. Yes, I remember small. my mom having it. I remember that. It was a small book. Uh-huh. Paperback. Yeah. So yeah. If, yeah, if you know E.B. White's Elements of Style, then you have all the rules that you can sit back and break. How about that? So was it hard for you to memorize all the rules, where to put a comma, punctuation, That's an interesting question uh, because I certainly didn't learn it correctly in grammar school. Um, It it was more rote in grammar school where they say, well, before the word and, you probably need a comma, but (laughs) make sure it's a a clause. You know, an independent clause. I just, oh man, you know, one can can understand all of that (laughs) stuff. But it's, it's an interesting thing that you ask because I don't remember doing anything except paying attention to quality writing and how they handled it. So did you get a copy of the Elmina style very young? When did you finally were aware of that I thought that one probably when I was in high school, Uh maybe after high school in in, uh, college. Um, But that's that's really interesting. When do you think you had your biggest writing growth as a writer? Was it from after high school into college? What would be your biggest period of growth? Oh, it was after college. Was it after college? Yeah. It was, it was when I was writing full-time to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would make a difference there. You know, my openings got richer. My writing got more colorful. So, yeah. You mean, you mean later. C-Spot Run had a... Had a <laughs> <laughs> it had a great effect on me not to write it. Yes. I mean, even in first grade, C-Spot Run just made my teeth hurt. It was, you know, there's got to be something better than this. So I should have been, at least in reading class, I should have been put in a much higher level because while the kids were around me were struggling with the first story in our reader book, I had finished the book, and it was just so intensely bored when we would start at story one and then analyze or, or talk about story two and I'm, I'm at the end of the book and I want something more and something different but I never got it so <sighs> did you ever take an that's advanced story did you ever take an advanced writing class in high school I, I, they put me in advanced no. writing class my senior year in high school and it, it was a good growth period to get me ready for college mm-hmm. yeah no I never had that never had that never mm-hmm. had a straight writing class they incorporated it into the English classes that I took. Mm. So we had a lot of composition in the English classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was good. I, I was a good writer. So when I got into college and I took, I 
can't even remember what it was. Compre reading writing comp. I, I can't even remember what, what the name of the course was. But we had to do some kind of a composition. I don't even know what it was. Do you need to get that phone? Well, are you can you don't take another call? Oh sure. Okay. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Good evening, Walden. Good evening, Patricia. Hi, Jim. Oh, Jim from California. How are you? How are you doing is the big question. Oh, I'm doing well. I'm still locked up in my jail here, but, but I'm yeah. doing well. I am progressing. I know just what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <coughs> we, excuse me, <coughs> we have centers <coughs> try very hard, and I know they're understaffed sometimes, and they they aren't equipped to deal with everything, but <coughs> at least at least you're on the road to recovery, and that's the most important thing. Yes, I am, and they're taking such good care of me here, usually in a rehab facility. Well, let me turn the radio down a little. Okay, you go ahead, Jim. You turn okay. the radio down, Patricia. Okay. Go ahead, Patricia. You can do that. Go ahead. So? Tell, 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 if they, you're cute uh, to say something, Walden. This is just the USA. We're talking. This is the adorable one. We're on with Jim. And, <laughs> and, and the other one over there is lovable. That's right. And we haven't and got... We, we just asked Jim if he ever had a nickname. I don't know. We'll have to find out if Jim ever yes. had a nickname. Did you ever have a nickname? Okay, I'm back. Jim, did you ever have a nickname as a kid? Did I ever have what? A nickname. A what? A nickname. A nickname. Uh, well, one that wasn't too pleasant. Some of the kids used to make fun of me because I had to wear suspenders as a child, and they liked to pop my suspenders, and some of them called me Pull Pop. That wasn't too. Uh, uh, no real nickname I can think of. Uh -huh. um, it's interesting how, you know, Dwight David, I, Dwight David Eisenhower. Everyone just called him Ike. Right. And um, other people, you know, uh, the I heard it when, you, when I get to the Teddy Roosevelt book review r later. Mm -hmm. Teddy didn't really like to be called Teddy. Really. Well, yeah. was it because he, he got, was it, uh, when did that come about? Was it because of the teddy bear, or was it? Or, it was named in honor, it was named in his honor. Yeah, so I'm wondering when we sort of dubbed him, I guess he just like going by Theodore, which I think is a great name, to be honest. Yeah, with. well, that's something else I've always wondered yeah. about names. Mm -hmm. Maybe Patricia knows the answer. She knows a lot of things. She does. Um. Have you ever wondered why some names are, some people have two names that are totally different letters, like Richard and Dick. Yes. Anthony and Tony. Uh-huh. Anthony yeah. and Tony. Right. Uh, what's, William, yeah. Uh, what's another example? Um, right, Jim, are you, is your birth name James? When, on your I'm birth William name? James. You're William James. But I was never, well, here's what it goes back to. My dad was called, my dad's real name uh -huh. is W. Period, J period, initials only. Oh. And when I was born, my mother... Interesting. My mother wanted to honor my dad, but yet she didn't want me to just have initials. Okay. So she mm -hmm. chose William James. But then they decided to call me Jim. The frustrating thing about that is whenever I have to fill forms out, like uh -huh. during all my recovery last year, when I had to fill out different forms, William James, Jim's, and I inevitably get asked the question, then why aren't you Bill? 
And by the way, that's another name. William and Bill are totally unconnected letter-wise. Okay, so what about, mm-hmm. your, what about your siblings, your brother and sister? Did they have the same thing? Well, my brother's name is in honor of my uncle and my mother's cousin, Robert Wayne, in honor of my mother's uncle, mm-hmm. Robert Wayne Taylor. Okay. And my sister is named Helen in honor of my dad's mother, Janelle, J-A-N-E, and a, a friend of ours who we called Aunt Jane. She wasn't really my aunt, but she was so close to my family, we called her Aunt Jane. And Nell, in honor of my grandmother, my mother's mother, Jane L. Oh. And we just call her Janelle. We don't call her Helen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated with the thought that your dad had two initials as his entire first name. Do you have any history on how that came about? No, you know, it's one thing I've just never asked him. It just the next time you talk to your dad, you might as well ask him. Yeah, yeah, I will do that. Because your dad what ninety four now, right, Jim? Yes, and he's very healthy. He's had some allergy issues, and he had a minor fall, which fortunately he recovered from. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I just tell him, just be careful when you're out in the yard or the garden or whatever you're doing outside. Just be very careful. Yeah. But he'll be he'll be uh, he'll be ninety. Ninety-five on September twenty-fifth. You might as well find out. That's a great trip. I mean, how many other people would have two initials like Patricia says? That, that not really. Did did his friend heard of it before? Did a friend did a friend call him W or something? Did a friend? I don't. You know, I don't know if they called him WJ or W or. Uh-huh. I don't know, and I don't. I don't know if he was ever called Dub. Okay. We did have a friend. One of my dad's co-workers was named Dub, and I don't know if that was. For in a letter, or, but they called him Dub. Yeah. Huh. Well, this this is really interesting, and it would be. And Walden just raised a good question. It would be great to find out what name he went by when he was growing up, especially. Well, you know, there was a famous labor negotiator uh, in the Nixon administration, or he, he was always called in to uh, leave. What do they call? Uh, Strike, you know, try to alleviate. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His name was W.J. Ussery. W.J. Ussery. Yeah. I don't know if that was... That sounds like initials. Yeah, that sounds like initials rather than his name, and a lot of people do that. Um, But have you ever ever found out, do you have any idea why, say, Anthony and Tony are connected and why Dick and Richard? Nope. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. No idea. What about Margaret and Peggy? I never thought. Yeah, that's right. Peg Peg Lynch was born Margaret, wasn't she, Walden? Yes, I think she was. Most likely. Absolutely. Yeah. I never thought of Peg. I've always thought, so Peg would be like, uh, uh, so Peg and Margaret are often call, called the same name. I mean, have the same. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Betty and Elizabeth. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Oh, we could go on for a whole evening on this. Arthur anyway, and Art really, is just a short yeah. Arthur. Yeah, Art, Arthur. Art, yeah. yes. Peter and, uh, does Peter have another? No, Pete, well, I, I, I'm not counting Pete. Does Peter have another? I don't know. What well, Bob would be Bob and Robert and... Yeah. Uh, and we to, those are the two I can think of. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Why William and Bill are connected, I have no idea. No. I don't know either. Well, Chuck and Charles. Yeah, Chuck and Charles. They're, they're spelled differently. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. 
Um, but William, William and Bill, I can I can draw a connection and connect the dots on that one because William would frequently be called Will. Yeah. And Will is very close to Bill, but I don't know how the W got changed to Bill. Well, well, think of it this way. Okay. Also, sometimes you would hear him called Billy, and then when it got to be a certain level, it would be Bill. And yeah, like, you know, like, you know, like uh, Ron and Ronald and Ronnie. Ronnie right. Or Dave. Dave. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Dave, if David, Dave Cro- David Crockett was actually called Davey mm-hmm. in his lifetime. Yes. Dave, David. Is Dave and David really two separate names? Or are they yes. derivatives? I think they're two separate, right? They're two separate ones, okay. yeah. yeah. It's like Pat and Patricia. Yeah. And that's an, another thing I've wondered. There are people that have male and female names, like, uh, what was an example be? Uh, well, Lynn, let's... Lynn Noyes. Yeah, yeah Lynn. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of... Lynn Noyes, yeah. And well, Jan, there, there, there are men named Jan and women named Jan. Yep, Jan's mm-hmm. a good one. Yep. And, and Gail, Gail Gordon, because yep. women are called There's Gail. No. He had a male, and they're spelled differently, by the way. Yeah, J-O-E is the male. Uh, yes, yes, Gail for a girl is G-A-I-L, and Gail Gordon spelled his G-A-L-E. And there's also, like, um, Jody, you know, there are men, men and females yep. named Jody. Yep, that's true. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Sandy, Sandy. Yeah, it can be male mm-hmm. or female. Uh-huh. And Chris. 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 Yeah. yeah, Chris Christopher for male and Christine, of course, for female. Yes. And, yes. Or Christine. Yeah. Say that's a nickname. Mm-hmm. My 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 former landlord's daughter, Christine, hated it when people called her Christine. Nah. Mm. Ah, yes, of course. It's like correcting you or something, you know. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, for that's example, my my uncle Walden. Yeah. He. His friends and neighboring family, they all he they always called him Wad. Wad. W-A-L-D. Yeah, they just dropped the E and they just called him Wad. Uncle Wad. Okay. Just an interesting der- derivation of, of yeah. Walden. You know. I agree. But it's interesting how uh, generally when your mother or your father would correct you, generally your mother, she would always well a lot of times kids they would say the child's full name. Mm-hmm. But, Yes, my grandmother used to get upset about that. She would, because the the family name was Smith, and of course the natural for kids would be to call somebody Smitty, which is a pretty common nickname. Yeah. And someone would show up at the house and say, "Could I please speak with Smitty?" And she she'd say, "I have no child by the name of Smitty. We have Gerard, <laughs> Edward, Lawrence, <laughs> Richard." And she'd go through the whole list of. <laughs> I also had, well, I just thought of another, Henrietta, and yes. <coughs> Henry for a man, and Hank. Yep. <coughs> yeah. Oh, so, dear. So it's a, it's a very interesting, and I guess Peter, I guess is, in France it would be Pierre. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny uh, how when synthesized speech came along, like, Jaws is weird sometimes. It'll read a name funny, like when we're listening, when you look, say, to the Radio Gold Index, and we're looking at Dragnet episodes, and it'll say, sponsored by Fatima. Fatima. It's Fatima, of course. But Jaws pronounces it yes. Fatima, and you always think of Our Lady of Fatima. Fatima. Yes, Fatima is the name of the, of the town, 
and Fatima, they borrowed that. And yeah. Well, well, you know, or it'll pronounce, uh, when I saw my first speech reading on the old Kurzweil machine in the early 80s, mm -hmm. it pronounced Hitler's name Hitler. I guess ah, uh, English phonetics, I guess. And San Jose, it would pronounce San Jose. Well, well that, that, that would be normal, J-O-S-E, sure. That, that would be normal. And by the way, um, Jim is talking about JAWS, which is a screen reading program, so that he and Walden can bring up something on the screen, and JAWS will read it for them. You know, you know, my folks are from. Did I get that right? Right, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. When my first, when my mom and dad moved to California, and they went down to San Diego. You know, my folks are used to, not, not at that time, not Spanish names or, or you know, the Mexican mm -hmm. names. And when they saw the sign, La Jolla, La Jolla, California, that is a well-known city in San Diego. My mom said, "Oh, there's La Jolla." Uh huh. You know, because it's it's, yeah. it's with the J, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, the, you know, the spelling is, uh, uh, and then I, you know, in a way, from an ear point, and again, I'm not saying the pronunciation is, but Heitler, Heit sounds more German to me than Hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, from, from an English viewpoint, you know, the, the, the way the letter is pronounced. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. But, or, but, you know, the old song that George, I was it George Gershwin that wrote it? You say tomatoes, I say tomatoes. Yep. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. the whole thing off. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, but actually, I've never heard them called tomatoes in my lifetime. Have you? I've heard. Well, I don't think so. I've heard potatoes and potatoes. Do that. How did the British pronounce it? There you go. That could be. Look it up, Patricia. Well, I've never heard them called potatoes either. Well, I think I've heard I, I'm going to. I'm going to put the phone down for one minute so you won't hear me, and okay. I'll look up the British pronunciation. Okay. Of okay. I know. Don't I, go away. I, I think you would done it for potatoes, potatoes and potatoes. Mm-hmm. But, um, but of course, as we said from our study of letters in that great book, mm -hmm. um, so many things were derivatives of French, and and we a lot of our spellings we have to blame William the Conqueror for. Oh, yeah. Because when he came over to England from France across the channel, he brought a lot of his, you know, Norman pronunciations. It's amazing how much our language, music, are all influenced by future past generations. Yes. You know, it's just, we don't think about that because we don't study the history of our language or, our, or music or things. We just think it's contemporary to the period that we're living in. But... Influenced by so many other factors. What's always interesting when you hear like different Bible teachers on the radio, they will talk about God, and sometimes they will talk about Yahweh versus Jehovah, yeah. and you know different. And a lot, I guess, a lot of the Jewish people in Old Testament days had to be. They wanted to be very careful. They didn't. They wanted to respect the name. Respect the name, so yeah. they had to be very careful how they pronounced it. Right, and how they even wrote it. I think too in the manuscript, but you know. There was a lot of respect to, for the name of the Lord, and uh, and it's you're absolutely right. And of course, you had to be, you know, you and of course, uh, you wanted, and of course, uh, you 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 just have to be careful about that. And you also, you know, you want to pronounce a person's name right, 
Sometimes newscasters make mistakes and get names wrong. I've heard that a few times. Oh, I mean, if you sit there and look, when you read the Bible, yeah. how many of those names, that we, when we look at those genealogy charts, how many of those names do we get correct? I mean, those are Greek. Well, sure, when Alexander Scorby recorded it for the Talking Book program, he probably, I'm guessing, he probably used, and of course we don't know this, but I'm guessing, he probably, as a backup, used Hebrew and Greek and Latin dictionaries. Think so? I would think so. Especially Hebrew and Greek. I mean, okay, those, those would not have been easy. You know, when you go into all those genealogy charts, and names after names after names. When, when you translate them into English, right. that must have been a challenge in itself. Absolutely. To get it exactly right. Absolutely. Or as right as, right as you can. I mean, you know, we... Uh, were you able to get your back. Uh, hooray, Patricia. Hooray. Go ahead. Yes. yes, the British say tomato. Okay, so there is a real tomato. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm sorry for interrupting. I'm barged right, right We were talking about the Bible, how, how difficult it was to translate all those Hebrew names, names into English. Mm-hmm. And, and how, like, a great actor, Alexander Scorby, when he read the Bible for us on the talking book program, I was saying to Walden, he probably had to have, he probably used Greek and Latin and Hebrew dictionaries to try to get the pronunciation exactly right, I would guess. Wow. <laughs> See? <laughs> that's, that's really amazing. That's a labor of love. Yeah. Well, to read that, I heard it when he did it, not for the talking, but when he did it for the I guess a commercial release. I think it's mm -hmm. three years to read it. Holy cow! Wow. You know, all you know, it's a, it's a long book when you think about yeah. it. Sixty-six wow. books. Well, seven hundred. I think I read seven hundred fifty thousand words. Yeah, is that still the longest book in English? I don't know. Um, I keep teasing. Up, Patricia. I keep teasing that War and Peace is longer, but. I think War and Peace is over a thousand, so I think the Bible probably bigger. Well, it's up there. It's up there anyway. Yeah. Um, but can you imagine all the time it took? I'm just thinking for him to, to read that. Well, think think of the um, the translators when they put it into English. Oh, yeah. I mean, think of the amount of work they had to try and look at those and, and try to do the best job they could. Well, there's an excellent book about that my brother told me about, and I understand it has been recorded. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called God's Secretaries. Nope, I haven't read that one. No. It's about how the King James Bible came about. Mm. It got very good reviews. Mm -hmm. You might want to read that sure. sometime. Sure. God's mm -hmm. Secretaries. Because I know there were various versions in English, like you had the Geneva Bible right. for hand, which I think is what the pilgrims used, or the Puritans. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You folks are far upper than I am on any of this. We, we, You're teaching me. We're working on our... our so, I have to say... Yes. My, well, computer is now, my, my computer is now running on reserve. Okay. I am running. I am running on reserve. And time I am just going to... tonight. Or if not, we can do it next week. You, you want yes, to wait till next week? That way Patricia can have... 
talk if you want to go if you want to go to bed now or rest would you rather just do it next week patricia yes okay. yes that would be great because i told walden um i, I can make my body work until midnight here and i'm a little past and i'm really doing well but okay um, well, we'll do it next week i need to kind of skittle that would be great we'll that put, would be great we'll, we'll put you so i will say good night to you i'll say good night to walden right. and i'm saying good night to our family thank you for hanging with me and by the way steve uh, who um keeps track of me said that the pt-109 was rammed by a japanese destroyer wow. and now i remember that that is indeed not a torpedo, but the destroyer cut the boat right in half. So yeah, there's even a song. Jimmy Dean even recorded a song about PT-109. David telling us. Yeah, um, and Dave from Rhode Island mentioned that, and he even sang some of it for us. So okay, okay. good night, good night everybody. Patricia. I will return next week. That's a threat, and um, and a promise. I'm so glad that you're out. Remember when parents used to say that? That's a threat and a promise. <laughs> Okay. Good night, Patricia. Walden, would you say, because Jim is very loud to me tonight, would you say that for me? He said, he said remember, our parents used to say that's a threat and a promise. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's I didn't mean to shout, Patricia. I hope I didn't talk too loud for you there. Yes. Good night, Patricia. Okay, so I will be back next week, and thank you for hanging with us. Good night, Patricia. Good night, Walden. Good night, Jim. Uh, good night, and good night, Walden. Okay, well, do you want to talk some more, Jim? Or you well, uh, I don't think anybody else to say. Well, oh, yes, I will say one thing. Okay. I enjoy, I listened to most of the marathon today. Ah. It was very good. Ron did his first did the first presentation at 9, all about programs about General Custer. Good grief. He played a gunsmoke, mm -hmm. a frontier gentleman, and a half-gun will travel. How about that? About General Custer, and he played... A song by Johnny Horton about General Custer, and a great novelty record from not from 1960 by Larry Byrne called "Please, Mr. Custer." <laughs> and uh, a, another person did a, a profile on uh, on marriage, and another person did one on shows about telephones. And one of the presenters did three horse stories from Gunsmoke, Fort Laramie, and Have Gun Will Travel. <laughs> so we had a variety of things today. We even, one person, one of the last presentations tonight, a person did a whole show, and I didn't realize there was that much available, just on Dr. Pepper alone, show sponsor oh, wow. Dr. Pepper. And have you gotten your email program figured out We're yet? still trying to figure that out. Okay. Well, we're going to try to work with John or Larry tomorrow. Okay. We're still trying to work all that out. Well. So... You have a very good night. All right, Jim. And for your playing tonight. We're going to continue with look back upon uh, August 10th and August 14th of 45. And also, remember, we also have the 11th and 12th, some things. I do, and I thought we'd stick some of that next week, but uh, we'll continue, considering we have my time. And we get, we just got a new piece of August uh, 15th. From past daily, from past daily yeah. this week. And I was reading the notes in there. I know she saw it. That... WEAF for NBC was on for 48 straight hour recovery. It'd be nice. No regular programs. Yeah, be nice. So, like from seven, when the announcement was made at 7 p.m. Right. There were no, there were no regular shows on Wednesday, August 15th on NBC. Apparently. So, nope, sir. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what all that material. Hopefully, we'll be able to hear that sometime. You know. Well, I hope so. Yeah. So you have a very good night then. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. All right. So that's Jim and Patricia gone to bed. So let's say up uh, dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Bless this wonderful country. Bless the people that we're with in the country 
that we serve. We are the Jesus Christ name. Amen. Okay. As I mentioned, we're continuing. We're going to go to the 6 o'clock hour on Friday, August 10th, 1945 on radio station WEAF. And we'll see... If the Japanese are going to surrender on that Friday, I think most of you know it wound up being Tuesday the 14th. So, stand by everybody. JAWS Professional Sound Forge Pro 11.0 Alt Tab Windows M Desktop M My Documents Enter Document 4 W Walden U We Fate 1445 We Friday Enter We Part Pay 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 Page Part 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 28615P Part 276PM News.wav Unloading JAW Can OK Enter We Friday 81 6 p.m. GRUEN, Gruen Precision Watch Time. The Curvex, exclusive with Gruen. WEAF, NBC, in New York. Good evening, everybody. This is Lyle Van with a 6 o'clock report from the NBC Newsroom, presented by Planters Mixed Nuts. In the headlines, the Allies are discussing Japan's offer of surrender, provided they can keep their emperor. No indication from official sources on whether Hirohito must go. Premature celebrations around the world greet the first word of Japan's decision. I'll be back with a full news report. First, here's Jack Costello. Your daughter will be the envy of her friends when she wears the lovely charm bracelet Planters Mixed Nuts are offering her. At almost no cost, Planters offer a handsome charm bracelet complete with six charms. The charms are made of lightweight plastic in a variety of bright summer colors and these gay charms hang from a sturdy chain of gold-finished metal links. This charm bracelet's yours from Planters for just 10 cents. Simply buy a jar of Planters Mixed Nuts. Your family and your serviceman will enjoy these delicious combinations of crisp salted almonds, cashews, peanuts, and pecans or filberts. And for the bracelet, mail the label with 10 cents to Planters Mixed Nuts, care of this station. Now the day's news by Lyle Van. The Allied powers are considering Japan's offer to surrender. Three years and eight months after Pearl Harbor, six days after the first use of our atom bomb, 48 hours after Russia's declaration of war. The White House tells us in an official statement the latest word on the surrender proceedings. Our government, through regular diplomatic channels, is in communication with Great Britain, Soviet Russia, and China regarding the Japanese surrender offer. The statement read by President Truman's press secretary, Charles G. Ross, that's all. There is no indication of the official attitude toward the Japanese request that Emperor Hirohito be allowed to keep his throne, the only request made by Tokyo short of unconditional surrender. The White House statement issued at 3.30 p.m. climaxes a day of feverish activity. Cabinet ministers, Secretary Burns, Secretary Stimson, Secretary Forrestal meeting three times with President Truman. Streets leading to the White House blocked off. Governments meeting in London. Former Prime Minister Churchill going to sit with Prime Minister Attlee's cabinet in Chungking and in Moscow. The Japanese offer making its slow progress around the world after its first broadcast by the Tokyo radio. 
confirmed by NBC at Stockholm, where it was transmitted by the Swedish envoy. Other confirmation from Bern as the surrender offer moved through Swiss official circles. And finally, the official acknowledgement in Washington that the surrender is being studied. The widest speculation, of course, is on the possibility that the Japanese may be allowed to keep their emperor. The Italian surrender and retention of the House of Savoy was cited to show that the Allies have no ideological scruples about retaining the royal family. One report says the U.S. is ready to leave the little ruler on the throne, and some London sources are quoted as saying Britain favors keeping hands off the emperor. But tonight, other London sources are quoted as saying Hirohito has been outlawed as a war criminal by the Chinese government, making his continuance impossible. But all speculation as to the official attitude of the Allied governments is just that, speculation. No hint direct from the chiefs of state whether the offer will be accepted. Meanwhile, the shooting war goes on full steam. Surrender or no surrender, the Russians are rolling ahead with amazing speed in northwestern Manchuria, advancing 110 miles in less than 48 hours of fighting, driving from Manchuli and capturing the rail center of Hylar, deep within the Puppet province, moving down the rail line that leads to the heart of Manchuria. Moscow's second communique tells of two new penetrations across the border. The campaign in the east is reported going smoothly, overrunning fortified Jap cities in the area northwest of Vladivostok, and the communique clearly indicates the Japanese are offering only slight resistance so far. The Tokyo radio, meanwhile, says the Red Banner Army has begun attacking on two other fronts, in Korea and on Sakhalin Island, directly north of Honshu, a report partly borne out by Russian correspondents who say the Red Fleet has gone into action. And the super fortresses, 160 strong, each with its Mustang fighter escort, keep to the air, going through the fifth straight day, returning to the Tokyo area to blast the Tokyo arsenal and the Amasagi oil refinery, which once produced most of Japan's aviation gasoline. No opposition, all the B-29s returning safely. And the third fleet's planes are still blasting away at northern Honshu for the second day of renewed attack, while Nagasaki is still burning and smoke shrouded from the second atomic bomb attack, like an erupting volcano to flyers who approached within 10 miles of the shattered city. The Japs have lodged a formal protest against the bombing of Hiroshima, charge it's a violation of international law. In an article in the New York Times today, General David Sarnoff, president of the Radio Corporation of America, reveals how the atomic bomb has changed the whole conception of offensive and defensive war. General Sarnoff's article, written early in July and just now released by the War Department, describes the swift pace of science that made possible the first robot bombs, the guidance of long-range missiles, and the release of atomic energy illustrates with an estimate that the energy in a glass of water would drive an ocean liner across the Atlantic and back. Reveals that VE Day saved London from destruction by only a six months margin. That the Germans planned to bomb the United States with V2 rockets, having a range of more than 3,000 miles. General Sarnoff declares no nation, regardless of size, will be invulnerable in the future. A small aggressor nation armed with the right secret weapon would be able to destroy the greatest power. There'll be no time for the time-honored rule that there's a defense for any weapon. And General Sarnoff concludes, our great hope for peace lies in the achievement of freedom from fear through man's ingenuity in atomic energy, electronics, chemistry, and the other sciences. Says a third world war would pose a threat to civilization itself. And it's up to man himself to choose between life and death.
There's a division in Congress on allowing the Japanese to keep Hirohito. Senator Stewart sums up for one view, says the emperor is a war criminal, and I'd like to see him hung up by his toes. We've got them licked, and I wouldn't give them an inch. Senator Thomas of Utah and Senator Johnson of Colorado urge that the emperor be allowed to keep the throne, say we need him. But most of the lawmakers appear to stand by the original demand of surrender with no conditions, and that includes the emperor. They have the support of General Carlos P. Romulo, the Philippine resident commissioner, who urges no weakening now, calls for elimination of the emperor and every vestige of his regime. First word of the Japanese surrender broadcast brought rejoicing around the world, in all the allied centers and here at home. London streets jammed with singing crowns, Yanks, Canadians, Aussies dancing with British girls, American wax leading a parade through the ancient streets waving noisemakers and banners. Soldiers of all nations yelling gleefully, it's all over, the Japs are through. Traffic in Piccadilly Circus tied up in the biggest jam in years. The Chinese in the Soho district were quietest, but in Chongqing, the heart of bleeding China, they set off their traditional firecrackers, the jubilant people refusing to wait for a formal pronouncement. Laughing and crying, they cheered every passing jeep of American soldiers. In Manila, General MacArthur went to bed, making no statement, pending clarification. But GIs, headed for Japan, swarmed through the town, shouting, When are we going home? And on Okinawa, our troops went wild. The air raid sirens screamed an all-clear signal. At the B-29 bases in the Marianas, the broadcast announcement drew cheers from the officers and men who had been delivering the great air blows. Admiral Nimitz made no comment. Over in Berlin, our men were jubilant, though it means no homecoming for most of the occupation forces. The impassive Russians showed no more excitement than they did yesterday when they learned their country had declared war. Here in New York City, while buying orders stirred the stock market, more than 1,400 soldiers, many of them bound for the Pacific, came singing down the gangplanks as the ship's loudspeakers blared out the news. And at Skenny Atlas, New York, one of the women for whom the war has been the longest Mrs. Jonathan Wainwright, wife of General Wainwright, who was taken prisoner by the Japs at Corregidor, Mrs. Wainwright said she hoped, as she had been hoping for four years, that the report was true. A grim reminder of the cost of war in lives and ships. The Navy discloses the loss of 108 more vessels, some lost to enemy action, others, as the Navy says, to the perils of the sea. Three destroyers in the list, the Parrot, the Tucker, and the Warden. Four submarines, the new Legato, long overdue, and three old pre-war types with numeral designations, the S-27, S-36, and the S-39, making 47 ships lost by the silent service, a total of 431 Navy vessels lost since the beginning of the war. The list is a resume withheld previously for military security. Another Navy announcement, the destroyer escort Underhill has been sunk in Philippine waters. 112 officers and men lost, the Navy says, giving no details of the sinking. The families of all the casualties have been informed. And on the other side of the ledger, the Navy discloses our submarines took part in the isolation of Japan, severing her sea lanes to the continent, and reveals the subs and daring forays have sunk more than 50 enemy vessels there in the inland sea, sending to the bottom 100,000 tons of enemy shipping. Out of the welter of excitement in the nation's capital, government agencies took time to review their plans for after VJ Day. Chairman Krug of the War Production Board has called a meeting of the board tomorrow to outline the program for the most important of the domestic post-war problems, reconversion. Details secret, 
until they've been approved by the war mobilizer and the other agencies involved, but the overall pattern following the lines laid down by President Truman yesterday. Controls to be relaxed as soon as possible, but only gradually to keep down inflation. Government officials predict an end of gasoline rationing within a few weeks after Japan's final surrender. And travel restrictions will be eased in a few months. And there'll be no mass release of men from the Army and Navy. No immediate end of redeployment to the Pacific. A sharp reduction of shipments, but not a complete halt. The flow will continue so that men of long service can be hurried home for discharge. Selective service reminds the GI that the duration plus six months, the popular expression, is not entirely accurate. That the duration does not end with a surrender, but with a termination of hostilities. And that is a date to be proclaimed by the president or specified by an act of Congress. And there's a good chance the duration will last some time after the official surrender. I'll be back with more news. Now here's Jack Costello. Every junior miss wants to have her own jewelry, and here's the perfect jewelry for her. It's the lovely charm bracelet Planters Mixed Nuts are offering at such a bargain. This charm bracelet's the ideal costume jewelry for the younger set. Will set off all your young ladies' colorful summer dresses. The bracelet will stand wear because the chain's made of sturdy pre-war metal links finished in gold. And from these shiny links swing six charms including statues of Mr. Peanut with his top hat, cane, and monocle, and several miniature peanuts in bright colors. And there's enough room for your daughter to add her own charms if she wants to. You can get this charm bracelet for just 10 cents. Now, here's all you do. Just buy a jar of Planters Mixed Nuts, a grand assortment of crunchy salted cashews, almonds, peanuts, and pecans or filberts. Your serviceman will enjoy a jar, too. And for the bracelet... Mail the label from a jar with 10 cents to Planters Mixed Nuts, care of station WEAF, New York. Allow 10 days for delivery. Ladies, wait till you taste salad dressing made from Planters Hi-Hat Peanut Oil. You'll wish you'd tried it before. Hi-Hat Peanut Oil is grand for frying and baking, too. Is refined by the makers of Planters Peanuts. Now back to Lyle Van for the rest of the news. The latest car in that railroad collision at Michigan, North Dakota, puts the toll at 34 known dead, 50 other persons injured, 10 seriously. 18 of the dead have been identified as members of the armed services. No names have been released. At his home in Bonham, Texas, House Speaker Sam Rayburn said simply that the war situation now had reached the stage of watchful and hopeful waiting. And now for the baseball scores. The Yankees romped over Cleveland 10-4 and gained ground as Boston shut out the Tigers 9-0. Chicago beat Washington 6-3. Philadelphia and St. Louis play tonight. In the National League, the Dodgers walloped Cincinnati again 9-4. The Cardinals downed the Giants 5-2. And Boston nosed out the Cubs 2-1. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia are down for a night twin bill. And the weather forecast for New York City and vicinity... Clear tonight, lowest temperature about 65 in town and 55 in the suburbs. Mostly sunny tomorrow, high around 85. Temperature at present is 83 degrees. And if you tuned in late, here's the big headlines. The Allies are discussing Japan's offer of surrender, provided they can keep their emperor. But no indication from official sources on whether Hirohito must go. 
And that's the 6 o'clock report. This is Lyle Van saying goodnight until tomorrow night. Lyle Van brings you the day's news every weekday night at this same time, presented Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays by Planters Mixed Nuts. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Six fifteen p.m. Eastern Wartime. This is WEAF, New York. Serenade to America. Across the air, America, we send you a serenade. H. Leopold Spatali will conduct the orchestra. Nan Merriman and Thomas Hayward will be the soloists. Milton Kay is featured at the piano.
guardo al mare come bello, spira tanto sentimento, come tu suave soccento, che me desco fa sognar. Senti come lieve sale, dai giardini odor d'aranti, un profumo non è quale,
National Broadcasting Company interrupts this program to bring you a bulletin. We take you now to NBC in London. Here's a bulletin from London. Number 10 Downing Street has just announced that the British government is in communication with the United States, Russia, and China. But it's added that no official statement on Japan's surrender terms can be made now. I return you to NBC in the United States. This bulletin came to you from NBC in London. Keep tuned to your NBC station for later news.
On Serenade to America today, you heard H. Leopold Spitalny in the orchestra, the voices of Nan Merriman and Thomas Hayward, Milton Kay at the piano. The production was under the direction of Don Gillis. Serenade to America came to you from Radio City, New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. WEAF New York. Good evening. 
This is Bill Stern with today's late sports headlines brought to you by Metro-Golden-Mayer Pictures, whose gay and gorgeous Technicolor musical Anchors Away has all New York whistling its hit songs and singing its praises. The critics and public alike have given three cheers for Frank Sinatra, Catherine Grayson, Gene Kelly, and Jose Turby in Anchors Away. The New York Post says, Anchors Away is the best as well as the biggest musical romance of the year. And Time Magazine advises that it's the pleasantest couple of hours that can be bought. You'll agree that Anchors Away tops the pick of the pictures after you've seen it and you can see it right now. Along with Paul Whiteman and his orchestra and Johnny Johnston in person at the cool Capitol Theater Broadway and 51st Street. Now for the sports spotlight. Tonight's baseball headline. The Yankees and the Dodgers win, the Giants lose. The New York Yankees made it too straight for the recently returned manager Joe McCarthy as they downed the Cleveland Indians 10 to 4. Alan Gettle was the winning pitcher while Allie Reynolds was the loser. The Boston Red Sox shut out the Detroit Tigers 9 to nothing as Randy Heflin finally won a major league ball game turning in a neat four hitter. He had previously lost five straight. Chicago White Sox thwarted the bid of the Washington Senators for a tie for the tie of the league lead and they beat the Senators 6 to 3. Tonight the Philadelphia Athletics will play a twin bill at St. Louis. Over in the National League, the Brooklyn Dodgers defeated the Cincinnati Reds 9-4 to make it a clean sweep of the series. The Boston Braves nosed out the Chicago Cubs 2-1 behind the three-hit pitching of Al Javery. A home run by Tommy Holmes in the seventh inning was the winning margin. St. Louis Cardinals picked up a full game on the league-leading Cubs by downing the New York Giants 5-2 as Charlie Barrett won his 16th game of the season. Tonight, the Pittsburgh Pirates play a doubleheader at Philadelphia. Turning to racing... The largest daily double of the New York season was hung up at Belmont Park this afternoon. If you had been lucky enough to have the right $2 bet on that daily double, your $2 would have gotten you back 1490 bucks. And speaking of racing, the $25,000 Traverse Stakes will be run at Belmont tomorrow afternoon. That'll be for the leading three-year-olds of the season. This will bring together Pavo, Wildlife. Each cold, incidentally, has defeated the other one once in the two previous meetings. Other entries include Burning Dream, Plebiscite, Adonis, and Jeep. A complete description of the race will be brought to you over this station beginning at 4.15 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. And speaking of things that will be brought to you tomorrow afternoon, in the world of tennis, champion Pauline Betts entered the semifinals of the Women's Eastern Grass Court Championships today by beating Mrs. Patricia Canning Todd, 6-love, 6-2. Margaret Osborne also made her way into the semifinals by beating Mary Arnold, 6-4, In the men's division, Sidney Wood provided the first upset of the tournament. It was quite an upset by outlasting the second-seeded Gardner Malloy, 3-6-7-5 and 6-4. I said that would be coming your way tomorrow afternoon at will. We'll be out at the Westchester Country Club where these matches are taking place. And we'll bring you a description over this same station tomorrow afternoon at either 2.30 or 4.30. Take your choice, or perhaps you'll be with us both times. Well, the big news story today is what possibility there is of a Jap surrender, how close, when it might come. And, of course, that will have a very definite effect on sports when and if it does come. Baseball, football, tennis, golf, Every sport will immediately start to get back many of the stars that have been lost to the armed services. It'll be the shot in the arm that sports has been waiting for since the war began. But even more important than what it will do for sports is what it's going to do for this country in general. It's going to mean that the boys are coming back, that those that are back stay here, and to everyone in the sports fold, it means a reunion of great sports stars with their buddies they left behind, and it looks like pleasanter days are ahead for all of us in the sports field. And that's the sports story for tonight. Take a tip from every critic in town. Be sure to see MGM's latest Technicolor hit, Anchors Away. The Times calls it another humdinger from MGM. And the Mirror says it's both delightful and swoonful. The Sun says it's a movie musical comedy at its gayest and its best. 
you'll make with a 21-gun salute after you've seen Frankie Sinatra, Catherine Grayson, Gene Kelly, and Jose Turby in Anchors Away. It's now playing at the Cool Capitol Theater, and on the stage is Paul Whiteman and his orchestra and the popular singing Johnny Johnston, all at the Capitol Theater. It's Bill Stern reminding you and hoping you have a pleasant weekend, reminding you to tune in same station tomorrow night for another session of MGM Sports Time. Until then, good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Six forty-five p.m. B-U-L-O-V-A. Bulova watch time. Bulova, masterpiece of fine watchmaking. W-E-A-F, New York. Ladies and gentlemen, because of the importance of today's news, we present without delay the Sunoco News Voice of the Air, Lowell Thomas. Good evening, everybody. The White House announces that there will be no new statement until tomorrow. This means, of course, that discussions by radio telephone are being held. Discussions concerning Japan's offer of surrender. Washington, London, Moscow, and Chongqing now framing their decision. When this decision will be communicated to Tokyo via the governments of Switzerland and Sweden, we are not told. That takes time. And meanwhile, the formal end of the war is in abeyance. It even took time for the surrender offer to become official today. The Tokyo announcement by radio came at 7.35 this morning with the statement that Tokyo was communicating with the Allies through the Swiss and Swedish diplomatic channels. Messages had to be coded and decoded and transmitted, and it was not until afternoon today that the White House gave out the statement that, yes, the Jap surrender offer was official. Whereupon, President Truman went into conferences with his cabinet members, and the interchange between Allied capitals was on. The whole question centers around the rather unimpressive figure of the Japanese Emperor Hirohito, white horse and all. Tokyo accepting the terms of the Potsdam ultimatum, stripping Japan of its conquered territories and its military power, but providing for the survival of the Japanese nation under a peaceful and democratic government. That ultimatum made no mention of the Mikado, who is a religious as well as a political figure to the Japanese. And that left a loophole, which the Japs are now seeking, with the proposal that they'll give up if they can keep their emperor. What answer will they get? Well, maybe the Allied powers will reply that the Mikado can stay on his throne. Or maybe they'll say, no emperor. Or perhaps they may simply refuse to give any assurance on that point, refuse to concede any condition, and take the attitude that the question of the Japanese emperor is for the Allies to decide. The word from London is that Great Britain is willing to let the Japs have their Mikado if the United States is willing to do so. And the view is that the Washington government may be inclined to keep Hirohito on the throne in Tokyo as a means of carrying out the surrender and of avoiding chaos. It is pointed out that American propaganda leaflets telling the Japs to quit urge them to ask their emperor to surrender. Today, one line of London comment was this. Nobody would have urged the German people to ask Hitler to surrender. And what about China, which suffered so much at the hands of Japan? There have been Chinese demands that Hirohito would be treated as a war criminal, should be. This, however, has not been put forward as the official view of the Chiang Kai-shek government. And what about Moscow? Soviet Russia, as usual, is the enigma. There has been no intimation of what Stalin thinks about the fate of the emperor of defeated Japan. We can only note that the Potsdam capitulation demand 
was drawn up at the conference of the Big Three, and the surmise would be that its terms were framed with the advice and consent of Stalin, the terms that pointedly left out the question of the Japanese emperor, all of which is reasoning along the rather paradoxical lines of the conditions that were set forth for unconditional surrender. One story tonight is that the Japanese capitulation came at the instance of the Emperor Hirohito himself. The Mikado acting to bring an end to the war and the atomic bombing. This report is from Chung King. It goes on to say that Emperor Hirohito formed a peace committee consisting of members of the royal family and high government officials. The members of the royal family included the Emperor's two brothers, Prince Chichibu and Prince Takamatsu. The committee is said to have met Friday morning, Tokyo time, last night our time, and the decision was made then to offer surrender at once. By happy coincidence, I had an appointment this morning with one of our foremost American authorities on the Far East. J.B. Powell, remember, who for 25 years edited the China Weekly Review? Most of you will recall those pictures of J.B. Powell that appeared in Life two and a half years ago when the Japs finally released him from prison and he came home on the grips home, emaciated, feet gone, weighing just 79 pounds. He had been down to 70, but he gained nine pounds on that homeward journey and up to 140 now. First, I wanted to know what J.B. Powell thought about this whole matter of the emperor, whether he should be allowed to retain his position as the head of the Japanese government. And Powell said that in his opinion, the emperor was not really very important, but that he might be exceedingly useful in actually bringing the war to an end and getting the Japanese armies in Manchuria to put down their arms and all their forces in China too, and Indochina and elsewhere. Who else could do this better than the emperor? Then he spoke of something that is not often mentioned, of how the emperor in Japan has only been an important figure for a comparatively short time. How before the days of our Commodore Perry, the emperor was a mere figurehead. In fact, the importance of the emperor even reached such a low ebb that one emperor of Japan was a beggar on the streets of Kobe. He pointed out how the militarists recently had given the emperor a tremendous buildup for the purpose of completely subjugating the people of Japan and of how easy it should be now to reduce him to his former status. In speaking about this, J.B. Powell referred to the way the militarists have been using the emperor for propaganda purposes for years now. When a Japanese child entered the schoolroom in the morning, directly in front of him hung a picture of Hirohito, and first that child had to bow low before the picture, then afterward he could say good morning to the teacher, and of how when streetcars would pass the imperial palace, all the people in the streetcar would bow their heads. Well, the Jap surrender was one of the fastest breaking of news stories, flashing through this morning with split-second transmission. In a radio station, a listening post in California, a United Press telegrapher was on the job, taking down radio stuff from Tokyo as usual. The Japs were putting out the usual kind of broadcast in English and in Morse code. The telegrapher was typing out that Morse code, but not on a typewriter. He was punching the keyboard of a teletype machine. And what he copied came out on the other end of the wire in the United Press newsroom at San Francisco. There, news editor Hennon Hackett stood watching a message as it was ticked off on the machine. It was coming in slowly. The Japs were sending their Morse code at a dragging pace, about 25 words a minute. For an hour or so, Tokyo had been broadcasting humdrum news, something about the Jap Red Cross, for example. Then, here came another dispatch, as the news editor happened to be standing there looking. This one, like the others, began flat and dull, so it seemed. The slow-worded bulletin started in this tedious fashion. The Japanese government today addressed the following communication to the Swiss and Swedish governments. 
That made news editor Hennen Hackett feel like yawning. It sounded like another Jap protest about the atomic bomb. Tokyo had been shooting out a routine of propaganda, complaining about the elemental devastation that had hit Hiroshima. And this sounded like an announcement of an official remonstrance through the Swiss and Swedish governments. The bulletin continued in that same slow gait, 25 words a minute. The Japanese government, it said in that dragging way, are ready to accept the terms of the joint declaration which was issued at Potsdam. And that brought a wild howl from one electrified news editor. There it was. Flash, he shouted to the teletype operators in the newsroom, the men who sit at machines connected with newspaper offices across this continent. They immediately started teletyping what he called out to them, the flash. The Japs offer to surrender, he said. And so on for the rest of the bulletin. The first news flashed to the American people of the Japanese acceptance of the Potsdam ultimatum. And that's how this greatest of stories broke. Well, from China, we have a story bearing on one curious fact that was noted in the Tokyo Surrender broadcast this morning. The Jap radio message in Morse code gave the surrender offer in a fashion complete enough to be definite, and then interruption. The radio telegrapher was coming into another sentence. He was abruptly cut off, and that led to surmises that something untoward might have happened at the other end. Maybe some Japs opposing capitulation had broken in, interrupted the broadcast, accepting the Potsdam terms. The word from China states that a Tokyo broadcast heard in Chongqing admitted that there had been disturbances when that first surrender offer was put on the air, and they were suppressed. So the Chungking reports that the Tokyo radio has been saying. As the Japs decided to give up, the Russians were driving on into Manchuria. And the latest states that Red Army columns have thrust 125 miles into that province that was grabbed by the Japs. Also, the Russians have pushed into Korea, a sweeping offensive underway. Soviet Russia just able to get going against the Japs as the end comes. It's easy to imagine the celebration all over the world, the shouting, cheering, laughing, jubilation, or perhaps it isn't so easy to imagine the scenes at some places. Okinawa, for example, where the troops who fought the Japs in such bitter battles, they went wild today, so reads the dispatch. It was night on Okinawa when the news came. The scene in the darkness on that island battleground is described as follows. The sky crisscrossed by tracers and flares. Guns banged all over. Men yelling and beating on buckets. They hammered one another's backs and shouted, The war is over. Nor is it easy for mere imagination to picture the celebration at Chongqing. You've got to summon a bit of oriental fantasy to envision the wild night in China's capital on the Yangtze. The city swelled with a jubilant roar from a hysterical mob, says the dispatch. Firecrackers added to the din, exploding in the packed streets and on the rocky slopes leading down to the great Yangtze. Searchlights that once lanced the sky for Japanese planes in this much-bombed city were weaving a luminous pattern of victory in the dark sky. Merchants opened their shops along the streets, handing out the fiery liquor of Sichuan. In other words, China, which has suffered the ordeal of this war for more than 10 years, longer than any nation, appropriately put on the wildest, most picturesque celebration. Today's jubilation is tempered by serious reflections of the astounding way in which the war in the Pacific has ended. In the case of VE Day, the rejoicing was simple, unmixed, as in times past. The war has ended. Peace has come. But now we think of that atomic bombing. The mere stark drama of it would make us pause. Two blows launched from the sky, and Japan surrenders. The cataclysmic force of the atom hurled once, then again, and the war is over. We've been saying this week that the power of the elemental weapon is hardly to be believed, and tonight we can add that nobody ever dreamed of a secret weapon ending a war so suddenly, so quickly. On top of the starting drama of the atomic bomb and the surrender of Japan, we can add that those thoughts that have been in mind ever since the first annihilating blow hit Hiroshima, we can add the reflection that we have a weapon that can exert an almost incredible effect on the politics of the world, the society of man. Also, that the atomic bomb 
has potentialities so terrifying that it does suggest thoughts of world destruction, as all have been saying. This foreboding was emphatic in President Truman's address last night, in which he dwelt on the need of the highest wisdom in dealing with so frightful an engine of destruction. And the President made it clear that at least for the present, this wisdom of statecraft was the duty of the English-speaking peoples. He stated outright that the atomic bomb is the exclusive possession of the United States, Great Britain, and Canada. So the thing stands at the moment. But you can never tell when other nations may develop the atomic weapon on their own. Serious thought has deepened when we hear that some British physicists refused to work on the development of the atomic bomb because they thought the weapon too terrible to be brought into existence. And the word is that other scientists hoped that the atomic research would fail. They were afraid that the atomic explosions, when set in motion, might get out of control and spread, leading to the phantasmal thought of the destruction of the world. All of which makes it pertinent to look at today's description of the effect of the second atomic bombing, the destruction hurled on Nagasaki. For example, there was Bob Shaplin, correspondent of Newsweek, who broadcast over the NBC. He was in a liberator, 10 miles from Nagasaki, and what he saw was a considerable period of time after the atomic bomb burst. Here's the description he gives. It was like looking over the rim of a volcano in the process of erupting, even though 12 hours after the bomb had been dropped. Nagasaki is a mass of angry flames and smoke now, a blazing area extending at least 10 square miles. We saw four huge tongues of flame shooting upward, indicating that explosions were still going on 12 hours later. As for the bombing of Japan, it continues today. Air power striking only a few hours before the Tokyo radio made its announcement of surrender. The bombs that fell upon Japan at that late hour were the ordinary sort, regulation high explosives, tons of TNT being almost an anticlimax now. Ever since the news came in this morning of the Japanese surrender, I've been thinking about our fighting men scattered all over the globe. Having recently flown around the world, the picture is a vivid one to me. Our great air bases in North Africa, the Middle East, and Southern Asia, to say nothing of Europe, with hundreds of thousands of our boys tonight in Morocco, Tunis, Tripoli, Egypt, Arabia, Iraq, India, China, to mention only a few places. In all the history of man, there has never been anything like it. The way our Army and Navy people are deployed over most of this planet, over all of the continents and all of the seas, even in the Arctic, all working with just one objective in view. And today, that job finished. Chenault's airmen in Kunming, our jungle specialists in Burma, the boys I found marooned at remote airstrips in tropical South America, our Arctic weather detachments in Baffinland, Ellesmereland, Greenland, the chaps I met at the Tibetan frontier who were buying up Central Asian horses for the Chinese armies, that cook who made us the delicious chocolate pie on a carrier off Okinawa, a carrier that a few days before had been hit by a suicide plane. They can all come home now. This that is, is the National as Broadcasting as Company. By transcription, this is Amos. And this is Andy. And we are both telling you about Fred Waring's new morning program on NBC. Yes, sir. It's a great show. The new Fred Waring show is great. Listen each morning, Monday through Friday at 11 over this station, WEAF, NBC in New York. City service, highways in melody. On the highways, in the homes, on the farms, in the factories, city service petroleum products lead the way.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to City Service Highways in Melody, starring the distinguished young conductor Paul Laval and his brilliant music with the City Service Orchestra and Singers. And tonight as our guest soloist, one of America's great sopranos, Miss Dorothy Kirsten, newest star of the Metropolitan Opera Company. So it's Highways in Melody with Paul Laval and the City Service Orchestra. Magic is the This is your narrator, Roland Winters, and the highways are ahead. Where? First, a Paris boulevard in the days of the dandies and a song as gay as a French hat box. And who better to give you the continental flavor than City Service star tonight? Dorothy Kirsten singing the hit from Noel Coward's conversation piece, I'll Follow My Secret Heart.
Summertime, a country road, and your first girl in gingham ruffles, sweet as spun sugar. You call her by the only name that fits, Candy. Paul Laval reminds you of her again with the City Service Orchestra.
Tonight, the world waits. And as it waits, millions of men are thinking of home. And for the first time in four long years, they begin to see the road back, straight and clear. For them, wherever they are, the city service singers sing the green hills of home. driving along Fountain Street in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. As you pass the neat and clean city service station, you'd probably see the owner, J. Alvin Sullivan, right on the job. Uh-oh. Did you hear those tires skidding, Sully? I shouldn't have turned so sharply. No, Dr. Waters, I guess you're right. Well, I'm so rushed these days. Uh, say, that reminds me. Uh, come here, Sully. Take a look at these rear tires. Hmm. Tread's pretty well gone. Well, what do you think? Should I apply for new ones? Well, I guess you'll get five to 10,000 more miles if you have them retreaded. I can? Yeah. But you know, Doctor, if they were my tires, I'd put new tubes in them, too. You would? Why? Well, you've been running on these old tubes for quite a spell. They're bound to be mighty rough on your tire casings. 
Well, how come? Well, you see, it's this way. An old tube is dry and the natural oils are gone. It's filled with tiny cracks. Can't be 100% airtight. You mean an old tube can lose air even if it hasn't any leaky patches? Sure enough. Most tubes that age lose about two pounds a week. And did you ever think of this? Most tire trouble really comes from tube trouble. Yeah? How do you mean? Why, a tube that loses air puts a heavy strain on the side walls of your tire. Say, did you know driving on a tube that's nine pounds underinflated cuts tire life in half? You don't say. Well, Sully, I suppose I'd better see the ration board and file an application for new tubes, huh? Oh, you don't have to do that. I can sell you tubes, Acme tubes. You see, they're not raging. They're not? Well, I didn't know that. Well, if you really think I should. I think it'd be the wisest buy you could make. All right, Sully. As long as they're not rationed. No, sir. Tires are rationed, but not tubes. All right. I'll stop back in an hour. Soon as I make this last one call. Okay, doctor. I'll have your new Acme tubes waiting for you. And believe me, they're as fine a tube as money can buy. Bar none. Put the road map away this time and follow the wandering heart of an Irishman who wrote music for the whole world to hear. When he put a Spanish dance into an Indian opera, they still loved him. So here is Victor Herbert as Paul Laval so brilliantly presents him with all the lights and beauty of the city service strings. The Habanera from Natoma.
things come home at eventide, like birds that weary of their roaming. Our lovely star, Dorothy Kirsten, sings Homing. of the United Nations fighting forces encircle the world as the bitter struggle for freedom approaches final victory. There's a glorious day coming when the boys come home.
Everybody ready? Then come along for a real spin with Paul Laval of the City Service Slickers. Swing your partners, everybody shout, ladies to the inside, gents to the out. It's turkey in the straw, as only Paul Laval does it. First it was ragtime, then jazz, now it's swing. But whatever the rhythm, there are always composers whose songs live on. Ray Henderson writes songs like that, as bright as a penny, as happy as a day at the circus. You travel his highway in melody now with Paul Laval, the City Service Orchestra and Singers, and Dorothy Kirsten. Oh, boy, I'm 
Here's some friendly advice. It's taking oil to finish the Japs, so America's fuel oil will continue being rationed. Better fill your fuel oil tank when you receive new coupons. If you and thousands of other Americans order deliveries now, then more fuel oil can be stored in terminals and bulk plants for winter use. Just phone your local city service office and say, I want to order fuel oil. This is Ford Bond saying goodnight for city service. Join us next Friday at this same time for the music of Paul Laval and our brilliant young soloist, Earl Wrightson. Remember, on the highways of America, city service petroleum products lead the way. This is the National Broadcasting Company. p.m. B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova Watch Time. Bulova, masterpiece of fine watchmaking. This is W-E-A-F, NBC, in New York. Bristol-Myers, makers of Ipana for the smile of beauty and Vitalis for well-groomed hair, present Correction, Please, with Jerry Sears Orchestra and starring J.C. Flippin'. And here's your Correction, Please host, star of stage and radio with wit and good humor, who hands out Mazuma, J.C. Flippin. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Fred. Well, hello, Jay. What's the matter with you, anyway? Why so downcast? I had a date with a beautiful girl last night. We had a spat. She left me and went home. You know, the trouble with you, Jay, is you just haven't got any savoir-faire. I haven't got what? Savoir-faire. <laughs> I'm lucky if I have subway fare. <laughs> I'm inclined to think that you're a little bit cheap. Oh, now, don't be silly. Well, it's just a disgrace the way you make me save all those cereal tops. But, Fred, don't you know that for only 12,000 crunchy wunchy box tops, I can get myself a new pencil with my name on it? Yeah, but, Jay... You could get a pencil like that for exactly five cents. This is a fine time to tell me after I've eaten 11,500 boxes of crunchy ones. <laughs> so, but ladies, wait a minute, ladies and gentlemen. Let's play correction, please. From our studio audience, we've selected five persons. Each has been given $10 with the compliments of Ipana and Vitalis. During the game, they'll have a chance to double and triple that 10 whenever they get the bid on a set of statements. Later on, they have a chance on the big bonus prize of $100 in war bonds. And our contestants for tonight are a corporal in the Army from the Bronx, New York, a Navy signal man, third class from Ohio, a lovely little civilian lady from Chestertown, Maryland, an airborne paratrooper from way down yonder in New Orleans, and a captain in the Pan American World Airways whose home is Prince Rupert, British Columbia. <laughs> well, here we go. Our first set of statements is on the subject baby animals. Now, for example, a baby deer is a fawn, a baby cow is a calf, and so on. Get the idea? Now, I'll make three statements. One of them is wrong. Tell me which one it is, and you double your bid. Now, if you miss, you forfeit the amount of your bid, but if you guess right, you have a chance to double and then maybe triple that money. Now, who will start the bidding on that? Baby animals. 
One dollar. One dollar from the Bronx. Two dollars. Two dollars from the little lady from I'll Earth. bid five. Five dollars from Ohio. Six. Six dollars from New Orleans. Ten. Ten dollars. Yes, sir. <laughs> this is... Come right over, sir. This is Captain Albert Ma, M-A-H, of Prince Rupert, British Columbia, and the Pan-American World Airways Affiliate China National Airways. There you go. Born up in Canada, huh, Captain? Yes, sir. And, uh... You're of Chinese descent, aren't you? Yes. Chinese and Canadian? Yes. Which side is which? Well, uh, uh, on both. I on guess. both? Oh, both. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Tell me, uh, Captain, and the Pan American Airways, you're the fellows that have been flying that CBI theater, haven't you? Yes, I've been uh, flying the Himalaya Mountains there, the hump, which is known over here. Made over 400 trips across there, close to 500. Carrying uh, ammunition and supplies? And yes, like and uh, dropping supplies to uh, isolated Chinese troops and to the... Uh, Engineers building the Burma Road. My goodness, that's dangerous enough to fly over once, and you've been over there over 4,000 times? 400. 400? Right. <laughs> I mean, whenever you talk about that thing, I magnify it. It sounds like 4,000 times. Well, tell me, you must have had quite a few thrills there, Captain. What are some of the thrills? You got time to tell well, me? Well, uh, my biggest thrill uh, was on the ground when I penetrated the Jap lines by foot to rescue my young sister from the Jap-occupied territory. My goodness, then got in your plane and went back over the hump again? Yes, Give me five. Sir. I've got to talk to you. <laughs> You're fond of animals? Is that how you happen to pick this category, Captain? Um, yes, I'm quite fond of animals. Yeah, you heard what the mama duck said to the baby duck. You're a very naughty child. If your father was alive, he'd turn over in his gravy. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but that's not your set of statements. Here they are, Captain. You bid yourself 10. You've got a chance to double it for 20 and possibly 30. Now, here we go. Watch yourself. One is wrong. Number one, a baby duck is a duckling. Number two, a baby frog is a frogling. Number three, a baby goose is a gosling. Now, one is wrong. Which is wrong? One, two, or three? Uh, well, a baby frog certainly isn't a gosling. Would you say that number two is wrong? Yes. You were right for $20. Yes, you did. <laughs> Mr. Webster doesn't seem to have the word frogling in his dictionary at all, but if you can tell me either one of the two names by which a baby frog is known, you'll win a total of $30 or three times your bid. What would you say a baby frog is? What'd you say it was? A baby frog? Yeah. Um. Waddle. for thirty dollars. Yes, sir. <laughs> now here's a set of statements on letter writing. You all receive. Oh, he don't trust us, the captain. He's counting it right away. <laughs> I'm sure it's all there, Captain, because the people that own these products are loaded. They got plenty of money. <laughs> now, look, you all probably receive a lot of letters and write a great many. So you should be familiar with the facts used in these statements. Now, who wants to take a chance on doubling or maybe tripling his money on letter writing? Two dollars. Two dollars from the Bronx. Four bucks. Four dollars from New Orleans. I'll bid six. You'll bid six from Ohio, the sailor said. Eight dollars. Eight dollars from the Bronx? Eight dollars once? Eight dollars twice? Thirty bucks. Oh, no, you can't do that, old man. No, that's in the second round you can bid up to twenty. Uh, uh, this kid is still flying over that hump here. I don't know. What it is. It's once for eight dollars, twice for eight dollars. Ten bucks. Ten dollars. Come over here. This is paratrooper Phil Waken, W-A-K-E-N of New Orleans, Louisiana, and the United States Army. <laughs> Tell me about New Orleans, Phil. I haven't been out in a long. Well, time. it used to be a gay town when they had the Mardi Gras. It's 
ration now. Have you been back home since you come back? No, I went to Baton Rouge when I came back. I see, I see the Purple Heart and a couple What's of that? bronze battle stars there. Where did you do your jumping? In any one particular sector, Phil? Well, or? we went into Normandy. Aha. Uh-huh. About so five o'clock in the morning. Very recently, haven't you? Well, I've been, I hit New York on V-Day. Day. Oh, you got back on V-Day? Well, that was quite a celebration for you, wasn't it? No, we stayed on the boat all night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you couldn't have gotten up and down Broadway that day anyhow, so you probably no, were more comfortable. I'll Tell me, what did you do in New Orleans before you went into service? I was the, in the uh, refrigerator business, refrigerator. air conditioning. Oh. You think you'll go back in that when it's all over? Well, it's possible. Okay. They need it down there. We may get this good news tonight, maybe uh, you'll get back there sooner than you think. I hope so. I hope so, too, pal. Now, look, let's say you're writing a letter to your girlfriend. Now, since every letter must have a salutation, a signature, and a superscription, here's where you'd put these things. But remember, one is wrong. Number one, you'd put the salutation at the beginning of the letter. Number two, you'd put the signature at the end of the letter. Number three, you'd put the superscription in the postscript. Now, which statement would you say is wrong? One, two, or three? You said you'd put the salutation at the beginning at the of the beginning, letter. Number two, you'd put the signature at the end. Number three, you'd put the superscription in the postscript, which is wrong. One, two, number three. three. Number three is wrong. You're right for $20. That doubles the amount of your bid. Here's how you can trip it for 30 Tell me what is the superscription in a letter. It's an essential part of any letter, but the, uh, it does not go in the postscript. What is it? I think that's the, uh, that precedes the salutation in the letter, isn't it? It precedes? What well, is the superscription? Superscription is... It does uh, not go in the postscript. I'll give you that. No, no, that's true. It, uh, take your time now. You've got the $20. I can't take that back. You've got that hot or cold, but I want you to get 30 by telling me what is the... What is the superscription? What is the superscription in a letter? Well, it's something extra. I mean, it isn't appended. It's just appended to the letter. It isn't... Uh, no, you got to give me a little bit of... Sing on that, Phil. What is the superscription in a letter? Superscription. Uh-huh. Isn't that the uh, date, I mean, the date and the, uh, the city you're writing from, your address? The address is what I've been trying to get you to say for $30. Okay. You got it. Yes, it's the address. Right you are. <laughs> this one should be in the bag for someone because the subject is sex. Sex. I don't mean like the bags that I get. Sex. S-A-C-K-S. Specifically words which have the letter sack in them are words which are combined with the word sack, like sackcloth, cold sack, haversack, and so on. Now, who wants to bag a few extra dollars on this set? Let's have four dollars. Four dollars from the Bronx. Five dollars. Five dollars from the little lady. I'll bet eight dollars. You'll bet eight dollars the sailor. Eight dollars you'll bid once. Eight dollars you'll bid twice. Sold to the sailor, signal man, third class, Granville Pike of Orwell, Ohio, and the United States Navy. <laughs> Look at that smile on that kid. Look at that. Show that audience that smile. Isn't that a pretty smile, huh? Hiya, fella. Tell me about Orwell, Ohio. Where is Orwell? That's just outside of Cleveland. Just outside of Cleveland, huh? What did you do in Orwell, or did you work in Cleveland before you went to service? I was a student at Ohio State University huh? when I was drafted. I see. <laughs> well, I see you've seen some service, so, I mean, they must have known what they were doing when they took you. How big a town is Orwell? I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Well, it's Randall? pretty small, just like I told you. It's the only place you can spread your legs apart and be standing over a whole city. <laughs> Have you been back to Orville since you've been back? To... Yes, I was just home on a leave now, the first time in 16 months. Uh-huh. Was she glad to see you? Yes, she was. I know. I bet she was. <laughs> I bet she was glad to see that smile. I bet she can't wait till she sees it again. There's so many of them now. <laughs> You're not one of those fellows that has a girl in every port. Oh, no, sir. You're the kind of guy to get port in every girl. I know. Well, there, there's it. Now, here we go. For $16 double, $24 triple. One is wrong. Tell me the number of it. Number one, 
A sad sack is a soldier who's a sorry sight and always out of luck. Number two, a knapsack is something that gives you round shoulders if it's too full. Number three, a doodle sack is the name of a trap used to catch doodlebugs. Now, correction, please. Which is wrong? One, two, or three? Number three is Number wrong. three is wrong. You're right for 16 <laughs> I don't know what you'd call a trap to catch doodlebugs if anybody wanted to catch them, but doodle sack means something else. And you can raise your winnings to $24 if you can just give me a hint as to what a doodle sack is. I'll tell you this much. It makes a certain kind of music. This is sort of tough. A doodle sack. Doodle sack. That wouldn't be the, uh, the, uh, bag on a bagpipe or something like that? It says here that Ipan and Vitalis are going to pay you $24 because they think it is. Yes, sir, you got it right there. <laughs> Say, Jay, did you know that I used to play the bagpipes? Oh, you did, Fred? How come? Well, I'm a Scot, you know, and every Scot knows how to play them. Well, then you're just the person to tell me something, Fred. Is it true what they say about the scotch? You mean that we're tight? Well, uh, yeah. No, it isn't true, Flip. Well, we can throw money away just like the next person. Why, for two cents, I'd throw a penny away. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jay, maybe you better make with a joke. Yeah, fair enough. If you make with the sense, huh? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's a brighter, more attractive smile you want, then try Ipana toothpaste and gum massage. Nah, you're talking. Well, natch, Flip, because Ipana, when used with gum massage is especially designed to help keep our gums firm and healthy. And it's firm gums, you know, that help make our teeth brighter, our smile more sparkling and attractive. So that's why so many doctors recommend this daily routine. Brush your teeth regularly with Ipana toothpaste. And every time you do, put a little extra Ipana on your brush or fingertip and massage it on your gums. Try that, friends, and then see how much healthier your gums, how much brighter your teeth, thanks to Ipana toothpaste and gum massage. By the way, if your store is temporarily out of Ipana, remember that wartime shortages and the increased demand from the armed forces make it impossible for Bristol Myers to keep every store supplied all the time. Just ask for Ipana again. Now, back to correction, please, and a chance for you boys and girls to win some more money. Now, Jerry Sears and the boys in the orchestra are going to lend a hand on some musical statements. Now, if you're quick at identifying well-known songs, you're essential to double and maybe even triple your money on this. Who wants it? Musical statements. Ten dollars. Well, how do you do? This is Miss Dorothy Carroll of Chestertown, Maryland. And how are you, Miss Carroll? I'm fine, Mr. Flavor. How does it feel to be surrounded by four handsome gentlemen? Feels Mark? very nice, I can say. <laughs> Tell me about Chestertown. Where is Chestertown? Is that about equivalent to Orwell, Ohio, you suppose? Oh, it has a couple of more people, I suppose. What did you do in uh, Chestertown, Maryland? Oh, I, I lived there just for a little while, and then I came to New York. And what now, are you doing in New York? Well, I'm a hat check girl at Longchamps. Oh, yes. How's business? Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now here, are you musically inclined? Is that how you have to pick yes, out this category? Right. Well, here's, these three song titles should remind you of certain holidays or special days in the year. Now, listen closely. I'll give you the wrong clue on one. Number one. This song title should remind you of the holiday when all the gals wear brand new hats. Number two, this song title should remind you of the holiday when the youngsters pop off firecrackers. Number three, this song title should remind you of the holiday when the family gathers around and eats turkey. 
selection, please, about which song title you think I gave you the wrong statement. Number one, number two, or number three? Number two. Number two is wrong. You're absolutely right. Yes, indeed. The boy should have played She's a Grand Old Flag or Yankee Doodle or something like that to remind you of the firecracker holiday, 4th of July. Now, you've doubled your bid. You've got 20. Here's how you can get 30. If you tell me with what special day in the year that second song is associated. Think of the title, and I'm sure you'll know the answer. St. Patty's Day. St. Patty's Day for $30. Yes, indeed. Now, here's a set of statements on comic strip characters and their girlfriends. Now, I'm sure you'll recall you're all familiar with these characters, so who wants to bid the highest? Do we hear an opening bid? $10. Well, come over. The boys are really leaping on me now. This is Corporal Julius J. Ehrlich, E-H-R-L-I-C-H, of the Bronx, New York City, and the United States Army. How is everything up in the dear old Bronx there, Julius? Just fine, just, just fine. Family still up there? Oh, yes. Is there a Mrs. Ehrlich? I mean... No, no. Still a single man. Still a single man. Are you, and are happy. You, and happy. Oh, I see. <laughs> are you doing a little shopping, though, on me? Oh, mean? looking around. I see. What's the number one's name? Uh, number one's name? Uh, Corporal Gertrude Hosley in the wax right now. Oh, swell, swell. Both in the same service, That's huh? right. Good for you. Do you like comic strip characters? Uh, yeah, not bad. You read Dick Especially Tracy? comic books. You read Dick Tracy? Uh, yes, once in a while. You know, I don't think it was the coffee that knocked out Dick Tracy. What was it? I think he was sitting next to B.O. Plenty and became breathless. I think that's <laughs> the whole thing. But here, you bid yourself $10. You've got a chance to double it for $20 and triple it for $30. Remember, one of the statements is wrong. Just tell me the number of the one that you think is incorrect. Number one, Mandrake's girlfriend is named Narda. Number two, the Phantom's girlfriend is named Deanna. Number three, Dick Tracy's girlfriend is named Breathless. Correction, please. Which is wrong? Uh, three. Number three is wrong for $20 worth. Yes, indeed. You've doubled your money. Now try to triple it for $30, Julius, and tell me who Breathless is. Since she's not the Tracy's girlfriend, who is Breathless? Uh, breathless. Uh, oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, Breathless. Now, I don't mean for you to be Breathless. I mean, just who is Breathless? In the Dick Tracy strip, who is Breathless? Oh, that's that uh, girl that's running around with uh, $50,000 right now in her And arm. that's not exactly chopped liver, is it? No, I don't think... Well, I can't give you that 50000 but there's $30, because you're absolutely right. That's who Breathless is. Now, look, come on over here, everybody. I got an idea. Let's raise the ante and take off the $10 limit on the bidding. From now on, you can bid up to $20 if you've won that much tonight, and I'm very happy to say that all of you have. Now, the stakes are higher. The statements are tougher. We'll only have time for a few questions, so the faster we move along, the more you'll have a chance to get into the big money. But remember, if you miss, you forfeit the amount of your bid. Now, let's try this set on comparative sizes in terms of square miles, not population. Now, who wants to take a crack at this for a chance to double and triple his money? Let's have some bidding. These are about countries I think you know. Comparative sizes. Ten bucks. Ten dollars. Twenty. Yes, ma'am. Here's our little lady from Chestertown, Maryland, who was such an expert musically. Let's see now if she knows about comparative sizes. Be careful now. On your toes, I can't give you any help. You've got a chance to double for 40, triple for 60. Number one, Brazil is larger than the entire continental United States. Number two, Canada is, Canada is larger than any other country in the Western Hemisphere. Number three, the Northern Hemisphere is larger than the Southern Hemisphere. Correction, please. One statement and only one is incorrect. Would you say it's one, two, or three? I think it's number three. Was that a guess? No. It's I, not a guess? No. You're positive it's positive, number three? Yeah. You got yourself $40 because number three is wrong. You're right. Yes, indeed. Now, I said the northern hemisphere is larger than the southern hemisphere. Now, that statement is incorrect. 
Now, it's worth $60 to you, or three times the amount of your original bid, if you can correct that statement. Think carefully now. There's a little catch to this. Well, uh, to make up a sphere, don't you need two hemispheres so they must be the same or something like that? The north must be the same as the south. Yeah. This kid has really been to school. Give her $60. Uh, I don't want to argue with her at all. You're right. Now, today, August the 10th, is the birthday of Herbert Hoover, former president of the United States. So I have a set of statements here about him, which you shouldn't find too difficult. Who wants to try his luck this time on bidding the highest on Herbert Hoover? $10. $10 from the Bronx. Fifteen. $15. $15. $20. dollars $20 from Corporal Julius Ehrlich of the Bronx. Let's go. Is the little lady here from the wax? Yeah. Is she watching you? Yeah. Are you nervous? No. Don't get nervous. Money Because you got a chance to get $40 and possibly $60. Here we go. Number one, Herbert Hoover is the only living ex-president of the United States. Number two, Herbert Hoover was never a vice president of the United States. Number three, Herbert Hoover is the only president who was born west of the Mississippi. Now, correction, please. One statement is incorrect. Would you say it's number one, number two, or number three? Number two. Mm, I'm terribly sorry, old man. I'm terribly sorry. It was number three. Until President Harry Truman, who was born in Missouri, took the oath of office, Herbert Hoover was the only president, living or dead, who was born west of the Mississippi. His birth state was Iowa. Thanks for trying, but better luck on the IPAN and Vitalis bonus prize. I'm terribly sorry. Now, if you remember your Indian tribes, you can win plenty of wampum on this next set of statements. Our subject is Indian tribes and where they're located. For instance, I might say Iroquois is the name of certain Indians found in New York State. Blackfoot is the name of certain Indians found in Montana. You see what I mean? Okay, let's have some smoke signals for the highest bed on Indians. Indian tribes. Who knows they're Indians? Five dollars. Five dollars from America. Ten bucks. Ten dollars from New Orleans. I'll bid twelve. You bid twelve from Ohio, the sailor. $12. $12. Fifteen. $15 from New Orleans. Sixteen. $16 from <laughs> my little 18. friend, Captain Albert Marr, Prince Rupert, sir. Eighteen. $18 from New Orleans. $18 from New Orleans once. $18 New Orleans twice. Sold to private first class Phil Waken of the paratroopers and New Orleans. Don't take your money out yet. You don't know whether you lost or not. Come over here. Now, look out. I'm going to try to catch you on this. This is a little tough. You bet 18. You got a chance to double it for 36 and triple it for 54. Number one, Cherokee is the name of certain Indians found in Oklahoma. Number two, Chickadee is the name of certain Indians found in Oklahoma. Number three, Chickasaw is the name of certain Indians found in Oklahoma. Now, correction, please. Which statement do you think is wrong? One, two, or three? Number two. Number two is wrong. You're right for $36. Now, Chickadee isn't the name of any Indian tribe at all, but the other two statements are true. You've doubled your money, now triple it for $54 by telling me just what the word chickadee means. Uh, chickadee is, uh, is a member of the bird family, I believe. Would you say it was a small songbird? Yes. Would you say that? Yes. Would you say that? That's right. I would yes, say give that man $54. Yes, indeed, that's right. <laughs> now, this is a set of statements I call contemporaries about famous people who lived at the same time. For instance, if I said Shakespeare and P.T. Barnum, the circus king, were contemporaries, you'd know that that was wrong because Barnum wasn't born for almost 200 years after Shakespeare. You see how it goes? Okay, now who wants to take a chance on bid the highs on contemporaries? Contemporaries. $10. $10 from the Bronx. $15. $15 from Ohio. $16. $16 from my little friend from Pittsburgh. $18. $18 from the Bronx. $20. $20 from Orwell, Ohio. Come over here, this is Sigmund third class from the Navy man who can stand on one side of oil with one foot and a man on the other side with the other foot. Look at that smile. That's killing me, that smile. 
Watch this, pal. This is a little tricky, but you got a chance to get 40 double, 60 triple. Number one, the composers Beethoven and Bach were contemporaries. Number two, the Western characters Buffalo Bill and Jesse James were contemporaries. Number three, the ring champions John L. Sullivan and gentleman Jim Corbett were contemporaries. Now, only one is wrong. Which is it? One, two, or three? Think now before you speak. Give it to you again. Number one, the composers Beethoven and Bach were contemporaries. Number two, the Western characters Buffalo Bill and Jesse James were contemporaries. Number three, the ring champions John L. Sullivan and gentleman Jim Corbett were contemporaries. Which one is wrong? One, two, or three? One. One is wrong. You're right. For forty dollars. Wait a minute. Don't away. Yes, sir. You just won yourself forty dollars. Beethoven and Bach were not contemporaries. One of them died twenty years before the other was born. Now, you can triple your bid and win a total of $60 if you tell me which was the older of the two at first try. Beethoven was the older. I'm terribly sorry, pal, mm -hmm. but you got the 40. I can't take that back. But it was the other way around. Bach was born in, eight, in 1685, making him 85 years older than Beethoven, who was born in 1770. Keep what you want on the double, and better luck on the bonus prize. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jay, but that's all the bidding. Time now to hear the bonus statement and award the big Ipana and Vitalis bonus prize of $100 in war bonds. Okay, the subject for our bonus statements tonight is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, here are the three statements, but remember, one of them is incorrect. Number one, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration in the United States. Number two, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the oldest military decoration in the United States. Number three, the Congressional Medal of Honor rates a salute regardless of the rank of the wearer. Now, repeat those. Number one, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration in the United States. Number two, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the oldest military decoration in the United States. Number three, the Congressional Medal of Honor rates a salute regardless of the rank of the wearer. Well, there they are, friends. Think them over while our five contestants mark their cards. See if you know which one is wrong before the number of the incorrect statement and the names of the bonus winners are announced. Say, Jay, do you mind if I interrupt for a second? Why, no, not at all, Fred. What's up? Oh, I just want to explain something. Explain what? Explain to those folks who have been asking for Vitalis and can't buy any. You know, there just isn't any Vitalis for civilians these days. I'm going to hate myself in the morning for this. All right, Fred. Why isn't there any Vitalis for civilians? Well, Flip... <laughs> It's because wartime shortages make it impossible for Bristol-Myers to supply both the demand from civilians and the demand from servicemen. So naturally, all of the limited supply of Vitalis now being made is sent to the men in the service. But we sincerely hope that soon again, you'll be able to enjoy Vitalis and the famous 60-second workout that loosens a tight, dry scalp, stimulates circulation, and helps prevent excessive falling hair. Until that time, be patient, won't you? And be assured that as soon as it's possible, you will again be able to buy Vitalis, the famous hair preparation that's been the standby of so many for so long. Caledonia, what makes your big head so hard? I'm sorry to brush you out, Jerry, 
But the judges have the scorecards ready, and here's Fred Robbins with tonight's cash totals before I announce the bonus winners. Okay, Flip. Well, friends, as you know, each contestant started out with $10 with the compliments of Ipana and Vitalis, including that 10 which they keep. Here's what they've won in cash. Captain Julius Ehrlich of the Bronx has $20. Our uh, Captain Albert Ma of Prince Rupert, British Columbia of the Pan American Airways has $40. Granville Pike, Seaman Third Class of Orwell, Ohio of the Navy has $74. Private First Class Phil Waken of New Orleans, Louisiana of the Paratroops has $94. And up in first place, our little lady from Chestertown, Maryland, Miss Dorothy Carroll, $100. Back to the bonus statements. Remember, I said, number one, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration in the United States. Number two, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the oldest military decoration in the United States. Number three, the Congressional Medal of Honor rates a salute regardless of the rank of the wearer. Well, the incorrect statement is number two. Although the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest award in the United States, the Purple Heart is the oldest. It was created by George Washington in 1782, 80 years before the Congressional Medal of Honor was established. And it is true that the Congressional Medal of Honor rates a salute regardless of the rank of the wearer. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to salute it. And we have three who split the $100 bonus. Captain Julius Ehrlich, Private First Class Phil Waken, the paratrooper, and Miss Carroll is not gonna get shut out anywhere because she splits the bond too. The three of them split it, yes indeed. <laughs> Well, that ends tonight's session of correction, please, ladies and gentlemen. Until next week, same time, this is J.C. Flippin saying, don't forget the two products that make our fried eatings together possible. Ipana for the smile of beauty, Vitalis for well-groomed hair. Ipana, Vitalis. And as for me, much obliged. <laughs> Okay, let's move over to Tuesday, August 14th, and we're going to hear excerpts through different 50 minute inter intervals throughout the day on WEAF -E out of New York. As we know, the Japanese do surrender on this day, August 14th, 1945. We'll see how far, maybe we'll get into a little bit Wednesday morning. We'll find out. So stand by. Jaws Professional, we Friday 8 items view, documents, explore, we Friday 8, Beverly Wash, we Friday 810, we Fate 14, enter, we Part 2, Part 1, we Fate 1445.wav, unloading, OK, enter, we Fate 14. Good morning, everyone. This is Don Elder speaking from atop the marquee of the United Artists Theater here in the heart of Chicago's Loop District. The streets are pretty well filled with people by now, but as yet we've seen very little boisterous noise-making or celebrations. When we came down on the loop this morning at about 4.30, the weather had already taken a hand in stopping the crowds from gathering. It was raining buckets, and with the exception of a few civilians and servicemen huddled under theater marquees and in doorways, about the only people down on the streets were policemen. Well, now that situation has changed. It stopped raining and quite a crowd has gathered. Some of them are listening to the news on radios scattered throughout the loop. Quite a few are merely on their way to work. And as could be expected, quite a few school children are also downtown to get a look-see at just what's happening. 
Since early this morning, we've watched cameramen and newsreel photographers getting a cross-section view of Chicago on this day of days. One rather persistent photographer stood out in the middle of Randolph Street for a very dangerous three or four minutes snapping pictures of passers-by and Chicagoans wandering the loop just looking for excitement to happen. Very few windows have been broken down here, but some stores are taking no chances anyway. I noticed the old Heidelberg down here a few doors has boarded up their windows with big V for victory signs. We talked to a policeman before who told us that up until now, the police have had very little to do in the line of quelling disturbances. He adds, incidentally, that that's all right with him. By the way, it would seem that even Chicago's finest have their troubles. At least when I happened to overhear one of the uniformed policemen talking on a pay telephone a few minutes ago, he was trying to explain frantically to his wife that he was actually down here in the loop on business. From what I couldn't help overhearing, she obviously didn't believe there was anything important enough to get her husband out of bed at about 2 o'clock in the morning. At least nothing in the line of duty. Just recently, all of Chicago's taverns have been ordered closed for a 24-hour period by the police department, while about half of Chicago's restaurants already have closed voluntarily. And before the day is over, most of the Chicagoans who eat out will have a pretty hard time finding a place to get a snack. Department stores still are waiting for the official word before closing, and banks here will remain open until today is declared a legal holiday, if it is. As I speak to you from Chicago's Loop this morning, you can probably hear the roar of traffic down below us and perhaps the rumble of a few passing streetcars. Incidentally, a few of those streetcars have windows broken early this morning in the first excitement of Radio Tokyo's announcement. But since then, as I mentioned, there have been very little violence. Newsboys down on the street are making more money today than they've made in a long, long time. One little fella told us as we bought a paper, you know what, mister? That fellow there says he has a boy out in the Pacific. You know what else? He gave me a buck for one paper. But in general, it seems Chicagoans are taking the whole thing very calmly and coolly. One might almost say with a feeling of skepticism. They aren't going to be caught by another false peace flash. You can be sure of that. We talked to several people on the street before going on the air, and that feeling is just about the same. Just before going on the air here, I was down on the street sampling reaction and the general temper of Chicago's loop. I noticed a T5 standing in front of the theater. Quite obviously, he'd seen plenty of action, for on his sleeve were five overseas bars, in other words, three years. In addition, he wore three campaign stars, and they happened to stand for Makin, Saipin, and Okinawa. When I asked him his name, he said, oh, that isn't important. Just say I'm a member of the Fightin' 69th. But I can sure imagine how happy the old gang is out there on Okinawa today. And now this is Don Elder switching you to NBC in Denver. This is Cecil Seavey from KOA in Denver. Well, mixed feelings were rampant in Denver and the Rocky Mountain region last night. Denver was probably a little more quiet for the first hour or two than some of the other towns about, but around 3 o'clock Denver time, the proverbial lid blew off. However, the celebration was marred early this morning by the death of one soldier. The victim fell, jumped, or was thrown from the third floor of the old Windsor Hotel. Hilarity started slowly as two or three cars in the downtown area honked their horns you could practically follow the sound all over the business district as one motorist after another picked up the idea. One thing which seems to have happened in practically every city in the country happened in Denver, a bonfire, which was set ablaze on the corner of 16th and Chapa Streets. Then 16th Street was turned into a speedway with automobiles racing up and down the avenue five abreast. It was a dangerous maneuver, but the participants didn't seem to mind. As the Tokyo News reached the nightclubs, orchestras immediately switched from swing tunes to patriotic numbers. G.I.s were among the guests, and military police immediately turned out in force to see that none of the soldiers became involved in any brawls. 
Some restaurants closed early, aware they could not feed all the celebrants. As the morning wore on, many celebrants got tired and went home. One of them said, I'm going home and get some rest. I want to be able to celebrate again when President Truman makes it official. Other happenings included a parade all through the downtown district and out Broadway of about 40 or 50 very heavily loaded cars with lights blazing, horns blaring, and people screaming and hollering to their heart's content. That wasn't enough. A few couples started an old-fashioned high school chain, winding in and out between cars, streetcars, through hotel lobbies, and all-night drugstores. This chain of human beings was lastly seen heading south on Broadway with about five or six hundred persons participating. If this should be declared VJ Day by President Truman, Denver is ready to put into effect all the plans it has been making for the observance of the day. These plans, of course, include church services and holidays for most businesses. The police department is ready for the official announcement, too. The department has a force of auxiliary police to augment the regular members in keeping the celebration under control. Right now, downtown Denver is quiet. Everyone seems to be going to work and waiting for the official announcement from the White House. And when it comes, only the good Lord knows what will happen. This is Cecil Seavey switching you to NBC in Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Frank Barton speaking to you from the Lockheed Aircraft Corporation cafeteria in Burbank, California, just outside of Hollywood. And we're going to try to get some reactions from the people here who have come to work for Lockheed at the, the war workers today. They still don't believe that this news is official. As most of you do know, it isn't official as yet. So we are just standing by, going to talk to some of them. Previous to coming out here, we looked around in Hollywood for some reaction there. There isn't any celebration yet. It's uh, more an attitude of reserved expectancy. Everyone hopes and prays that it is official, but they aren't just taking any chances. They're not going to be fooled again. There were some scattered celebrations throughout the town. We noticed one in particular on Vine Street, just outside of NBC uh, in Hollywood. There was a bonfire started about uh, 5 o'clock this morning, Pacific time, and a large crowd had gathered and started to circle around the bonfire, uh, having some fun and trying to... Uh, stir up a lot of enthusiasm, and they were all singing, if you'd believe me or not. Pistol Pack and Mama, lay that pistol down. Can you believe that? Well, now let's step around here to the cafeteria. You don't hear much noise because there aren't many people here yet. It's still pretty early, and the shift doesn't start until 7 o'clock, which means about 35 minutes yet. But we're going to talk with a few people and just get their reactions in general. Here's a gentleman having some coffee and some scrambled eggs. I wonder if I could interrupt you, sir. May I have your name? Goodall, Paul Goodall. Paul Goodall. And what do you do with Lockheed, sir? Working production control. Well, uh, what's your attitude about this news? It, uh, I notice you have a newspaper in front of you there that says Japan quit. Do you believe it or not? Well, the announcement last night was that the official will come at 9 o'clock. This is my first indication this morning when I picked up the paper just a few minutes ago. Well, it isn't. Uh, we were listening to the radio, and at 9 o'clock the news still hasn't been made official, so we've still got to stand by and wait. Uh, what do you plan to do, sir, in the case that the, uh, the, uh, the news is official? And uh, what, I, what I meant to say is, what do you think that the war plants will do? Do you think they will immediately start converting to peacetime industry and make washing machines and solar and the like? Well, that's something for the officials of the plant to take into consideration. But my understanding is that they have their plan set up. As far as we're concerned, my family, we're very, very happy about the whole thing. Do you have any relatives or... Uh, both relatives in the in the service? Yes, I do. Uh, a son, or no? I have uh, my wife's brothers in uh, scattered both in Italy and uh, and in the Pacific. Well, let's hope, sir, as you do and I do, that it's really official this time. 
Thanks very much, sir. Now let's step over here and talk to a few ladies. We see some ladies gathered around having some coffee. We're going to step over there and just try to get their reactions. They're reading the newspapers, of course, as everyone is, hoping that this time we've really got the stuff and really got the Japs on the fence. They've been on the fence. We know that. May I have your name, please? Uh, Margaret Hempstead. Margaret Hempstead. And what do you do here, Margaret? Uh, I uh, am in an experimental. Oh, I see. Well, what do you think about this news? You think oh, it's Oh, uh, I think it is, and well, I'm thrilled I... to death. You, you, you're, not like, you're not like our president. You're not from Missouri. Huh? No, I'm from Texas. <laughs> you're from Texas. Yes, but you really think this is this tough? I this certainly time? do. And you're going to, you're going to celebrate today? Yeah, you am I and how. <laughs> what, do you, what effect is this going to have in your life? You're going to change your I residence? Am. Uh, no, sir, I'm going to stay here. You're not going back to Texas? No, sir. This is my home now. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks very much. I, I believe that just about concludes our time, ladies and gentlemen, from, from Hollywood here. We're now going to take you to another point of NBC. We've been speaking to members of Lockheed Aircraft Corporation in Burbank, California, just outside of Hollywood. And for further reactions on the news, we're going to take you now to NBC in San Francisco. And this is Wilson Foster speaking from the corner of Taylor and Market Streets in downtown San Francisco. Well, the first gray light of dawn is just coming over the city by the Golden Gate. And as we were here just about four and one half hours ago, watching the wildest celebration in San Francisco's history over this what may be V-Day celebration. We were able at that time to bring you a lot of crowd background on what was going on. The men of the United States Navy, the men of the United States Army put on one of the wildest celebrations ever seen in this city. But all that is gone now. Hundreds of shore patrolmen came up and rounded up their buddies and sent them on home and said, come on back and try again tomorrow, fellas, with the light of day. Let's not play around all night long. So we have a lot of crowd background to give you, such as Ken Banghart and Ben Grower did back there in New York City, or the boys down there in Cleveland, Ohio, who were also a part of this program. But we do have a couple of the sailors who went all the way through last night from about that 10.40 announcement, clear on down until this wee small hour of the morning. The time is approximately, as you know, 6.26 here, Pacific Wartime in San Francisco. But I'm going to turn the microphone over, first of all, to Franklin Evans who is going to bring up one of the men of the United States Navy who was a part of that wild celebration last night. Will you take over, Frank? Thank you, Wilson Foster. And now, standing here beside me is one of the men of the United States Navy who had a part in last night's terrific celebration here in downtown San Francisco. I wonder if I could have your name, please, sir? Wagoner, Hubert. Where are you from, Mr. Wagoner? Taloma, Tennessee. And may I have your rating in the Navy? Electrician mate, third class. And you were here all last night, am I right? I was, yes. And I see that you've survived in rather good condition, too. Uh, what were your impressions of last night's celebration? Well, to me, it was one of the greatest events that I've ever seen happen yet. Uh, any particular thing that happened last night that stood out in your uh, opinion? Well, the, most of all was a Marine standing on the corner of Market Street posing as a Statue of Liberty. Very fine, very fine indeed. Uh, you told me that you had a girlfriend back in Tennessee who might be listening to this program, and uh, I know she'll be mighty happy to know that you're here in San Francisco. You were overseas for a while, am I right? Yes, I was. And you're mighty glad to be back. Sure, I am. I'm really glad. Thank you very much. I think you might be interested in just a little bit of the background of what's been happening here in San Francisco just before we went on the air. Bud Foster and one of the engineers and I walked up and down Market Street here in downtown San Francisco. Believe me, the street is something to see. You're up to your ankles in confetti, broken glass from <laughs> store windows, liquor stores have been broken into, shoe stores, clothing stores. I've seen sailors with civilian hats and civilian suits on walking up and down the street. 
The shore patrols had their hands full, and it was one of the most sensational things that have ever happened in San Francisco history. And now this morning, the city is still gray, with a fog rolling in through the Golden Gate, perhaps dampening your hair and your clothes just a bit, but certainly not dampening the ardor of those who have celebrated. Now, back again to Wilson Foster. Thank you, Franklin Evans, and I found the seaman first class over here. Would you mind giving us your name, fellow? Nick Rollins. Where are you from, Nick? Good old L.A. Well, how'd you get along in that celebration last well, night? Well, it's fine. Fine and dandy. I don't see any scars at that. No, all. not yet. <laughs> what started all that rumpus, anyway? Oh, newspaper, mostly. Then tomorrow radio, about 12.5. I see. We did uh, about two of your boys just start marching up and down the street and pick up the gang as they went along? Yeah. I see. Me I... and my girl. We didn't have a chance. I mean, my girl didn't. See, I understand you sailors did a lot of kissing girls there last night. Oh, right? I... oh, I had my girl. I didn't have a chance. The sailors did, though. <laughs> <laughs> did all the kissing, huh? Yeah. I understand you're overseas, Nick. That's right. Well, glad to be back. Yeah. How much um, more time do you think you're going to have to put in in Uncle Sam's Navy? Oh, I don't know, about six months, maybe. Well, I hope that's all you have to put in, too, fella. And thanks an awful lot for appearing on our program. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today NBC has brought you the reaction to this first announcement from cities such as New York, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, Ohio, Chicago, Denver, Hollywood, and here in San Francisco, California, where probably we had the biggest celebration of them all. So now speaking for Franklin Evans, this is yours truly, Wilson Foster, saying goodbye. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Say, are you cooking with Crisco? For cakes, pies, and fried foods, good cooks agree, Crisco improves all three. And now Crisco presents Joyce Jordan, M.D. Calling Dr. Jordan, Dr. Joyce Jordan. Calling Dr. Jordan. Joyce Jordan, an attractive young woman in her 30s, and the intriguing story of her revealing experiences as a doctor and as a woman. My mother won't let me. I know she won't. She won't hear of it. Won't hear of what? She'll say no. She always does. About what? About having fried eggplant for dinner. And gee, it's so good. What's her objection? Mother says fried foods are indigestible. Well, I suppose she's right. She usually is. But golly. Oh, oh, this time she isn't right. This time she's dead wrong. Listen, foods fried light and tender in Crisco are easy to digest. You ought to try them, folks. Set Crisco to sizzling in your frying pan, then drop in some potato pancakes. You lift them out crusty brown. Or get Crisco together with some meat patties or some corn fritters. Wait till you see the way they turn out. Mmm, tender as can be. You can eat your fill without a qualm. Why, Crisco fried foods are so digestible, even children can eat them. As a matter of fact, doctors all over the country say they're actually easy to digest. So this very day, Introduce your frying pan to the finest quality shortening you can buy. Pure, all-vegetable Crisco. You'll find everything you fry tastes better and it's digestible when you're cooking with Crisco. Colonel Walter Dowling, Dean's rival for Joyce Jordan's love, has left Preston after saving Joyce from dismissal from the staff of Preston Hospital. As Joyce took up once again her daily medical practice in Preston, 
she was sustained by two things, Dean's newfound happiness in their marriage and the realization that Walter Dowling had left Preston not as Dean's enemy, but as his friend. Well, it's another day. Joyce Jordan has just received a phone call from her young friend, the discharged veteran, Will Harmon. And the call has worried her. And as she waits for Will in her office at home, Joyce wonders what effect the arrival of Will's young English fiancée, Miriam Norris, is going to have on his already strained relations with his family. Now, on the porch outside her window, Joyce here. Hi, Will. Hello, Dean. Gosh, I was trying to get hold of you all day. Where'd you disappear to? I called you home, the Greeks, Manning's... I was up at the plant. The plant? Oh. She's quit her job. You mean Grace? Yeah. No, Will. Hello, Dr. Joyce. Dean, how about letting your business wait a little while? Come on inside, Will. Oh, sure, sure, Joyce. Go ahead, Will. Come on in, Will. Sit down here by the desk. Yeah, thanks. Will, I, uh couldn't help overhearing you and Dean on the porch. Grace Williams has quit her job at the plant? Yeah. I, uh, wanted to see her. Look, Will, I... Of course, I've no right to interfere in your affairs. This, uh... This isn't a medical case. I'm asking you to interfere. As a friend. Do you mean that? I mean it. Why did you phone me? I want you to go to see Grace. Now, as soon as you can. Why? You're her friend. She likes you. She, she respects you. She'll listen to you. And, uh... What am I to tell Grace when I see her? Do I have to say it to you? Yes. I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to say it out loud to me. Then tell her it was all a mistake. Tell her I'll do anything. Anything she wants if... If, if what? If she'll... If she'll marry me. You see, it's the only way out for me. And for her, too. I hurt her pride, that's all. I went up there to the plant today to see her, to tell her myself. And, and she was gone. Yeah, she was gone. I couldn't go to her home. I'd have to meet her mother, maybe, and I just couldn't do that. But I, I, I've got to come to some kind of an understanding with her. Things can't go on like this, not now. I, I don't sleep, I don't eat. I, I know. You see, somebody else has to do it, not me. Some, somebody else has to talk to her. When I found out up at the plant that she was gone, I began walking around, I... Figured after a while there was no use me seeing her. We'd get excited. This is something you've got to be calm about. I see that now. You've got to be calm. You see what chance I've got to be calm. Doctor. Yes, Will? Will you please talk to Grace for me? Please? What about Miriam Norris? What about her? Yes. That about her. You want me to read this? Yeah. Well, dearest, just one line. I'm scared and happy and anxious. I'm here in New York. I suppose it's a wonderful city, but I don't see any of it. I'm just waiting for tomorrow. Oh, I see. This was dated yesterday. Yeah. Because tomorrow the train leaves for Preston. It leaves at 5 o'clock and it reaches Preston at 5 o'clock. That'll be tomorrow. Yeah. That will be tomorrow, and then you'll be standing on the station waiting for me. Oh, Will, please, will your parents like me? I'll try so hard to be American. Tell them they must be patient with a foreigner. I don't suppose your mother and father know anything about this at all, do they? I'm getting my mail at the post office. Do they, Will? No. Hmm. Well, I know we're going to be happy together. I just know it. 
I'm scared, and I suppose you are too, but don't you worry. We'll be the two happiest people in the whole blooming world. There, I wrote it out, blooming just like a cockney. I won't sleep waiting until five o'clock tomorrow, and you must tell your mother not to fuss about where I sleep. I'll sleep on the scullery floor. That's like the kitchen in England. Oh, and I'm bringing a hundred pounds with me for our furniture and things. It's a simply tremendous amount of money in England, although I suppose in America it's really nothing. Well, all the rest goes on like that. Yeah. All the last page is X's. Miriam's just a kid. I see they have that custom in England, too. Everywhere, I suppose. Well, what are you going to do about Miriam? I'll meet her. I got a room for her at the hotel. And I'll tell her. It's the only way. But first, I've got to get things straightened out with Grace. And that's where I come in. Please. Will you please? Will. Yes, Doctor. I can't. Doctor, listen. No, Will, you listen. You might have come home from this war badly injured. Now, let's not pretend. That would have been an awful blow to Grace. You can understand I'd that. never have married her if I came back all but banged up. But she'd have up. married you, and you know it. She knew all the risks you were both running before you went away. And in spite of those risks, she gave you her word that she'd be waiting for you when you came back. Well, you'd have married her then, no matter what you say. And you and Grace would have been as happy together as two people ever can be. Grace had given her word, and she would have stuck by That's it. it. That's it. I want to marry Grace. I, I know I was wrong to break Wait her. a minute, Will. When you were in England, you broke with Grace. You never told Miriam that you were engaged to a girl here. You don't understand. A guy was alone. He was scared. For all he knew, his number was... Oh, a... look, Will, I I'm not blaming you. I understand how it must have been for you in England. You and the infantry waiting for the day when you'd climb aboard a boat that was taking you to France or, or maybe to your death. But this is true, too. That you gave your word to Miriam and broke your word to Grace. I know all that. And now you want to break your word to Miriam again and go back to Grace. Well, well, when does all this stop? Who knows but the two years from now you want to break your word to Grace and go back to Miriam or, or, or to somebody else again. And so on and on I and on. I can't marry Miriam. It'd be unfair to her. I, I don't love her. What's the matter with her? That's an awfully sweet girl, the one who wrote that letter you just showed me. Sure, Miriam is a good kid. I should think, Will, a man might be very happy married to a pretty girl who... who's a good kid. You sure don't talk like a friend of Grace's. No, I know it. That's true. But I am Grace's friend, I hope. I've never even met Miriam. All I'm trying to be, Will, is just... You want me to do something which I think is unjust, and, and I, I, I simply can't do it. Besides, I don't want to do it for your sake. What are you talking about for my sake? You're afraid, Will. Because no matter how much you tell yourself that you're a grown man now, no matter how much you've been through, you're still a way, way down inside. A kid. A kid who sees life, dull, humdrum, everyday life, suddenly coming up and catching hold of him. After all the excitement of war and of being with men and and not having to worry about food or clothes or any personal responsibility, except that awful one. After all that, you, you suddenly see yourself trapped now by the simple, ordinary things, and they frighten you. They scare you so badly that you can't sleep or eat or... Okay. Well, it's got to be. 
It's got to. You must marry that girl who comes here tomorrow at five o'clock. Who's scared, too, and, and, and alone. You'd hate yourself forever if you didn't. Okay. Thanks for the advice. I'm sorry to take up so much of your time. So long. So long, Will. Hi, Will. Come over here and sit down. Excuse me, will you, Dean? I'm in a hurry. Hurry. Where are you going? I have to talk to you. Not now, Dean. Hey, what's up, kid? Did you have a fight with the doc? No. No. Dean. Yeah? What do you think? You think I'm a heel, too? Heel? Yeah. I'll be a dope. She's coming tomorrow at 5 o'clock, Miriam Norris. Gee, Dean, I, I can't marry her. Uh-oh. I wanted your wife to talk to Grace. She wouldn't? No. Hey. Yeah? You're, you're giving yourself a headache over nothing. Gee, Dean. In five years' time, you'll be laughing yourself sick over the whole business. Huh? I mean what I say. After five years, you'll find they're all the same, kid. One's pretty much like the other. Marriage is marriage. You marry woman, not a woman. And Joyce Jordan heard the whole conversation. Could she believe her own ears? Was this Dean, her Dean, talking so cynically to that young boy, Will Harmon? And the sound of Will's voice, as though what Dean said had made more of an impression on him than her whole lecture. More about Joyce Jordan in just a moment. In the morning, women say... My, it looks lovely. I never made such a beautiful cake. At noon... Mm, gee, Mom, some cake. Can I have some more? At night... It was a grand party, Helen. And that cake, it topped the evening. All around the clock and all around the country, people are talking about the new Crisco cakes. And no wonder, they're lighter, better textured, moister, richer... Better cakes on every count. Crisco, you know, has a cake secret that gives you lighter cakes. And they're better textured, fine-grained as velvet. Moister, too. You'll appreciate how long they stay fresh. And wait till you taste these richer Crisco cakes. You know, the idea that you need butter to make good cake is ancient history. These Crisco cakes are every bit as rich as butter cakes. So next time you bake a cake, follow the recipe on the Crisco label and use pure, all-vegetable Crisco. Ordinary shortenings, ordinary recipes won't give you cakes that compare with these new Crisco cakes. They cause comment all around the clock. In the morning... I really made me a cake this morning. And at noon... Gee, Mom, why don't you make a cake every day? And night. Thanks again, Helen. And you must give me your recipe. There are better cakes on every count. Lighter, better textured, moister, richer. Man, that's cake. That's a Crisco cake. Has Dean Russell's cynical advice actually impressed Will Harmon? Be sure to listen next time. Calling Dr. Jordan. Dr. Joyce Jordan. Calling Dr. Jordan. And now, goodbye. But listen tomorrow when Crisco will continue the story of Joyce Jordan, M.D. This is Ed Hurley. He reminding you that for cakes, pies, and fried foods, good cooks agree. Crisco really improves all three. All NBC programs will be interrupted for important bulletins. Stay tuned, your NBC station, for the latest news.
the National Broadcasting Company. Then he'd lay there waiting to be picked up. Sat there where you're sitting, Dorothy, looking at me. At least I, I would have sworn he was looking at me. His eyes were, they looked as if they were seeing things. Well, he's adjusted to life so wonderfully that he's been a great lesson to all the disabled men who've come out of this war and we've needed lessons. God knows they've needed lessons. I thought of him and then I thought of a mother who sent me a letter yesterday and she said when the first news came and we thought it was the end, that was that would be last when? Thursday, Friday. Friday. She kneeled down and she thanked God because this terrible fighting would be over. And then second, she prayed that her boy, who's missing in the Pacific, might be found and restored to her. But first, she thanked God that this war was over and that mothers wouldn't have to go through any more of the agony that she's been going through. That's her in a beetle stone out in Bogota, yes. New Jersey. I thought of her, and then I thought, no, I couldn't have her here. It would be too much for her to endure. And then I remembered another letter that I had from a woman up in Mount Vernon, Lillian Bowman, who said that sometimes our program's a comfort to her. Because, well, she was in the Netherlands East Indies when the war began. She knew, she'll tell us in a minute, because I telephoned Mount Vernon and she's here today. She knew what it was to hide in shelters. She knew what it was to have both her boys in service. They are right now, and one's overseas. She knew what it was to have her husband taken by the Japanese and tortured by the Japanese, and to this minute, He's in a Japanese prison camp. She'll tell us about that. So you see what I've been thinking since 5 o'clock this morning as I listen to every radio, not only my own, but all the neighbors' radios going, contradicting, going. So, uh, Christian Pearson, I think your feeling about the Japanese is beginning. I mean, it's always been the feeling to a certain extent, but I think now we're beginning to feel even more that maybe they're tricking us this time, too. Do you feel that? You, Christian person. Temporarily, they are doing what every Oriental would do, particularly the Japanese. Um, he thinks, if he thinks he can get some more out of this, because some weakness has been shown, he will bargain. The Japanese mind has always been like that. I was rather sorry to see this happen because I think that we should have replied unconditional surrender and no talk. However, in the form that it was presented, thinking of all the isolated garrisons all over the Pacific, the armies in China, knowing what the Japanese feel and think about the emperor, I thought that in this modified form, providing they agree, and I still think that they will agree in the not-too-distant future either, that it will save so many American lives that it would be worthwhile at least to try it. Hmm. But you, you feel that they, you told me over the telephone, that you feel they don't recognize law as the rest of us know law. No, certainly not. 
I think I'd like to give you, tell you a little incident. A friend of mine who was taken prisoner over in Bataan, uh, an officer, protested against the treatment. And this Japanese officer turned to him and he said, you are lower than the lowest private in the Imperial Army. Well, he said, what about the Geneva Convention? We do not recognize or adhere to any Geneva Conventions. We recognize only one law, that of the Emperor. Hmm. And today, that's what's in their minds, I suppose. Yes, it has always been in their minds and it will remain in their minds for a good number of years to come. And that's why I hope that the United States and the other powers that will have to supervise the conditions in Japan when this is over will not be too sentimental about the job, because it will take a long time, the same as in Germany, to eradicate these ideas, which are extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. Well, you said that you had to use your own uh, understanding of them to get away from them. What hmm. did you mean by that? Well, I meant that after all these years I've spent in the Orient, I have some knowledge of the Japanese mind. And when I was arrested for listening to foreign news and spreading propaganda in Manila, and this was in August 1943, I had successfully hided or hid this uh, set of mine, all this time, but somebody denounced me. Fortunately, I was caught with a lot of notes in my pocket and a map of Sicily drawn to scale, giving the latest Allied position, so it wasn't so cheerful. Uh, when I finally was arrested, I knew there were certain things would appeal to them. For instance, patriotism. Their idea of it is, of course, rather perverted. Uh, there was another thing, and they are rather sympathetically inclined towards a man who takes too much liquor, so that, for the occasion, I had to convince them that uh, the war and its demoral uh, demoralizing effects in Manila on me had uh, turned me into a drinker. That was one thing. Another was that as long as I knew, and I did not find my radio set, and they could not it proves that I had been spreading propaganda. Naturally, I had been rather careful. I had got news into Santa Tomas. Uh, all my other friends that I thought I could trust got news from me regularly. But it is a very long story, and if I began to tell you that, although I think it will illustrate a Japanese mind better than anything I know, and someday perhaps I will write it and I will tell it in this country. You mean how you outwitted? How I actually outwitted the Japanese that day. I suppose you were the end of the story. You were here, so I am here, <laughs> and that's a good truth. I think that I did out with them that day. Oh, I can't bear it. I've got to know one detail, anyhow. You hmm. you drank, and did you lie? Naturally, I had to lie. But a lie, a Japanese always respect a good liar, because I have never known them to tell the truth yet, well, except when it suited them to do it. Did you make them believe that you were converted to Japaneseism? Oh, no, no. No, I certainly didn't do that. Although, naturally, they tried to turn me into a collaborator, mm -hmm. insidiously, mm -hmm. politely, of course. Oh, we were all extremely polite for a while. <laughs> Did they... they didn't torture you? No? No, but they gave me proofs. 
And I didn't need any, because I knew all about Fort Santiago. But they demonstrated to me through someone else. They showed me an example of their torture, in fact. And so that was more clever of them, in my case, perhaps. I had some imagination, and they allowed me to use it, you see. Mm -hmm. What did they show you? They showed me a man who had been beaten, who had had his fingers pulled out to a certain extent. I don't think I just like to go into these details, because even today there are some things that make me still somewhat too excited. Yes, I see that. I see that. But I can't, I, I, it, it, I simply dare not leave you not knowing just what you did. Oh, I'm still here. <laughs> it seems that it would be rather difficult for me but to... But suppose get everybody writes in and says to me, you are the worst reporter I ever heard of. You couldn't get out of that man what, what he did. You regret that, I hope. No? <laughs> no, he doesn't regret that at all. He's going to write about it, and then maybe we'll have him back. And... I will uh, be very pleased, because I think the Americans should know more about the psychology of the Japanese. I have been rather astounded since I came back. I thought that we had written so much, probably not always so cleverly, and that you had heard so many talks about the Far East, that I thought uh, something had sunk in. But I find that there is a tremendous lack of knowledge. Hmm. After all, we should realize that these people act and think differently, because they have different traditions, if you can call it tradition, they are brought up entirely differently. In fact, the Japanese can be said, in my opinion, to have two minds, one personal and one official mind. And as long as he is on duty, there is only one thing he thinks about, that is his duty to the emperor and the country. His family is completely forgotten. It doesn't, in fact, exist. Mm -hmm. I had proof of that, too, that day. I knew about it, too. How do you mean? Because uh, when I told him about my country, and when I showed how bitter I was, that the Germans had invaded it, this was the interpreter, not the captain, incidentally, he turned to me and he said, You cannot speak like this, Mr. Pearson. Remember, Germany is our ally. So I said, you would fight if you were invaded. Yes, but you mustn't speak like that here. A moment later, he looked around the room, and when he noticed there was nobody within earshot. And that is one of the things that are so peculiar for us to understand. He said, Mr. Pearson. Yes. Well, you, you know about torture, don't you, Lillian Bowman? I don't know so much about torture, but uh, I want to tell you about something when you're talking about the Japanese, trick, how tricky they are. They tricked me one time. Uh, it was about uh, two months before Pearl Harbor, uh, out in Sumatra. And I went to have my hair done at a Japanese beauty parlor. I shouldn't have gone. I should have known better, but still, I thought I'd try it because some friends had. And they played a trick on me that I, oh, I just felt terrible. As a woman, you can understand how if they bake your hair for 20 minutes instead of just three or four, which uh, is the amount mine should have been done, that uh, uh, I would come out a horrible, kinky mess, and I did. And uh, they didn't care. There was no argument with them. They were just beginning to get just as, as officious as could be. 
And uh, it took me about three days constantly under the shower to straighten some of that hair. And then you mean I you cut think mostly that off. They, you think that they really uh, oh, yes, meant they to do care. it? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, surely. They weren't interested in uh, being nice at the, at the time to people. And it wasn't but shortly after that that they cleared out and went home. But before they left, the Dutch were a little bit smart about it. They didn't let them uh, take everything they wanted. Uh, I heard that uh, some of the Japanese, in trying to get out with something that would be of a value to their country, uh, had large pieces of leather uh, sewn on the ends to make a, something of a knapsack or a satchel of some kind uh, without having been cut up so that they could open it again when they got home and cut it up for nice shoe leather. But the Dutch wouldn't let them do that. They just took that leather, that... Uh, bag from them, uh, dump the stuff out, and uh, let them pick it up and scramble for themselves. The same as they did with uh, watches or anything. They couldn't take any money out, so uh, they were allowed just one watch and practically nothing else. They got out with nothing. The Dutch? <clears throat> no, the Japanese, when okay. they... You see, they left one month before Pearl Harbor. Oh, I see. You see? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, then, I was caught there. Uh, funny how you can know that things are going on, and yet you can be peaceful just because you're in a peaceful country with a lot of green and beautiful mountains. And your prized papaya and, trees? Oh, in the backyard we grew the most beautiful papaya trees. And now those little old Japanese there, probably, if they didn't bar my house away, uh, enjoying that wonderful fruit. I'd had only one of those large, it was as large as watermelons, beautiful things. You said you could see them stalking oh, your polished yes. tiles and lounging in your chairs and eating papaya from your prized trees and using precious keepsakes. Oh, left yes. Left behind in your flight. Yes, you know those pretty, I don't know if you know, but uh, the Dutch uh, silver is very pretty. Uh, the uh, table silver, their teaspoons are very tiny little things, something like our demitasse uh, spoons, and their coffee spoons are even still smaller than that. Hmm. There they used to have uh, racks that they put them on the wall. With, they were very pretty fancy handles on them. Have you any real reason to believe your husband has been tortured? You used the word to me over the telephone. Uh, I don't know personally that my husband has been tortured because I've heard nothing. You see, it was 22 months before I heard that he was even alive or captured. Then I had a postcard saying I'm a prisoner of war. Don't worry. Uh, after that, uh, it was uh, last January, which was a year and three months later that I had the second postcard, and I haven't heard again. He did tell me in that that he was uh, mentally and physically well, and his only worry was not hearing from me. And they don't even know where this camp is, where he is, do they? Uh, no, the Red Cross has never known, but I've had a sneaking suspicion myself that it probably was the, the prison camp that they kept the Germans in uh, uh, just uh, after the Germans marched into Holland and uh, threw the East Indies into war also. Mm. And now I, I, I'd love to tell you how, how I felt about the, uh, uh, the news. Uh, I was, when I was out there in, in Sumatra, I was warned, my friends came to tell me that uh, at six o'clock in the morning that uh, America was at war with Japan, that they had uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, and uh, it was very terrifying to me at the moment because I knew that I was blocked both of the Atlantic and the Pacific then, and I didn't know just what to do. And uh, then the news came to me almost the same way uh, when uh, the other day when the, the uh, broadcast came through of the Japanese willing to accept the uh, surrender as outlined at Potsdam, I was again asleep. And neighbors came and uh, awakened me 
and I rushed to the radio and tapped the buttons, and, and uh, as I tapped each one, getting one station after the other, I only got the tail end of, uh, of, their, uh, of the story. They'd say, well, now that's the situation as it is today. And at this moment, you'll hear more later, I'd press another button and it would be, well, that's just exactly what we know at this moment. And I pressed another button. Of course, I'd been told to hurry to put my radio on because the Japanese were surrendering. I knew what it was about, but uh, it was just uh, too yeah, much for me not to hear it uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, mentioned. And then I pressed another button. And uh, the band struck up, roll out the barrel. And I just sat down on the floor and cried and cried and cried. Mm -hmm. That was the most personal song because out in the Indies, uh, it was a gay, lively tune, American tune that they loved to feature, and they did use it for every gala event. And there it brought me back once again. Mm -hmm. Just like your programs do, Mary Margaret Bride. She wrote me really about S&W. That's right. <laughs> because she said the Chinese grocery stores used to have great rows of I suppose all those beautiful S&W fruits, just like jewels. I don't know whether they had my S&W liquid apple because that's rather a new development. You had applesauce? Applesauce, mm -hmm. but not the liquid apple, not, no. the, not the juice, you know, that, uh, that we have now. But uh, I could just imagine all, all those S&W products, and they reminded you of home every time you saw them, of course. It was a wonderful feeling to go in a store in a strange land where you were just learning the language, and look around and see every make of American product that you'd always used in yeah. your home. Isn't that lovely? Yes. Uh, incidentally, I might uh, say, since I guess we'll do something on our products today, that Dilbert Brothers Incorporated chain of stores throughout Brooklyn and Long Island carry not only the S&W and are, feature, are demonstrating it, I mean the liquid apple, but also the marmalade, the S&W marmalade, which is very good, and the Supreme Sunrise Food Exchange chain of seven stores throughout Long Island, too. Uh, has I don't believe they I don't know if they've got the marmalade but they've certainly got the S and W liquid apple. I just thought I'd get that in, Dorothy Lewis. What's your official position with the National Association of Broadcasters? Oh, Margaret, Mary Margaret, I wish you hadn't brought that up. That's a horribly long title. Coordinator of Listener Activity. Oh yes, I I couldn't think of it to save my soul. <laughs> I thought is she. I thought you're our representative well, with the men, really, aren't you? Well, I do that too, but it's really very simple. It means that I'm interested in what people think about radio. <laughs> and I've been getting a very good answer to that in hearing uh, Kristen Pearson and Mrs. Bowman tell about what radio meant to them, mm -hmm. how it exposed him to these dangers, how it has notified her and warned her and what it meant in her life. And that's true of almost everyone in the studio and in your great listening audience, Mary Margaret McBride. See, but it's done a bridge. It's brought you to them and them to you, too. Every one of these great events, that's the beginning right. of war, the... All those early days, that horrible fall of France that I was talking about yesterday, D-Day, V-E-Day. Yeah. Uh, you see, it's so instantaneous and so, so flexible. Here we sit now at any instant, uh, passive interruption, with uh, uh, news of vast import. Has it come, Vincent? No. No, mm. but it could, mm. in a second. And I suppose you have the largest listening audience you ever had in your life today, simply because everybody in the world wants to hear what's going on. And here they're listening to WEF and Mary Margaret McBride, because they want to hear what you're going to say, too. Mm -hmm. They have confidence in what you think. They do? Yes, they do. Well, they find a very muddled and <laughs> bewildered <laughs> person. Well, aren't we all? Yes. Oh, yes, that, that's one of the weaknesses of it all, uh, and, and perhaps one of the strengths, that we're all working together. And Mary Margaret, I've been thinking, as uh, these most interesting stories have been told, 
Uh, they're past now, thank God. And we're in that wonderful state of transition. And really now it's the future that we're interested in. And what are we going to do with this tool? What, what have we done with the atomic bomb? It's changed life. It's uh, put us a thousand years ahead. So we need very vital tools, do we not? And this radio is one. Uh, I've been thinking how radio goes around the world in a seventh of a second. We're neighbors with the people in Darjeeling, you and I. And what are we going to tell these people about ourselves? We've got this medium now. We have a wonderful tool, a piece of machinery. And uh, when Stella was out in San Francisco, and I happened to have the privilege of being there too, we saw the machinery being built. And now we have to use, learn how to use it. And that, I think, is the function of radio, as a tool to teach us how, how to get together, how to um, uh, study, how to bring a common denominator of thought to vast numbers of people. I shouldn't orate this way, but I've been thinking a lot about it today. I've been thinking about the one billion illiterates in the world, people who cannot read nor write nor participate in their mud hut villages on the Brahmaputra River, perhaps, but who can hear and understand in their various languages and dialects. Isn't that wonderful? Do you so here we are. They do broadcast to them in their dialects, I wonder. They do to an extent. And they will do more of it as we come up to the post-war period. I suppose a, a Christian person do, a person do a, a villages, maybe a village would have a radio in its public square where the people couldn't afford them? Well, they certainly didn't have them in China when I left. No. But I do hope that will be the case. Because, as you can imagine, she's quite right, that is needed more than anything else. May I, ask, uh, may I ask you, um, sir, uh, did, uh, how recently were you in China? Well, I left Shanghai on the 4th of December, uh, 1941, and arrived in Manila seven hours before Japanese struck at Pearl Harbor. Oh, yes. But before that, I spent the greater part from 1918 in Shanghai. Well, um, the reason I asked you that question is that I believe it was estimated about that time that there were 400,000 radio receiving sets for 400 million people, and that where they were in squares, the news traveled by runners. And I had a representative of the Chinese government in my office a short while ago, and he said, Mrs. Lewis, if we could have 10 million cheap radio receiving sets and 50, 50,000 watt stations, we could jump a century in China. Hmm. That's what I mean by tools, Mary Margaret. We have the tools to do a great job in post-war. Hmm. I keep jumping nervously. Every time I see anybody move, I think maybe this is it. <laughs> no, they're, they're monitoring here, keeping uh, track of what is going on. I think on. they have got some news, haven't they? I don't know. Gee, I, I'm so nervous. I, I, I just feel like a flea jumping from one thing <laughs> to another. And this morning coming to work, I, they had police lines. And until I got out and just practically assaulted the police, and I couldn't get to work. Well, you're lucky you got here at that rate. Oh, he was, he was, uh, I was, he was scared of me. <laughs> you know, Mary Margaret, what I did last night, I stayed awake all night making a list of the things that I'm going to have to buy for my husband. Uh, it, to me, the war's over. I'm already planning weeks and weeks, maybe months ahead. You can see him. You can just see him. <laughs> I can see him singing. What's, uh, I don't know what you wrote, Christian Pearson, but just say anything you like. Cause Dorothy my hand will come writing. back and we'll mm. do what we intended to do, no. Dorothy. This is just one of those days. Yes, I know. My handwriting, thank God, it was on occasion not very legible. 
And when I don't was think it? you... Well, that was all my... The news I carried in my pocket the day they caught me in Manila. Oh, if they could have read it. Yeah, yeah that was my own peculiar stenography. Mm -hmm. If they could have read it, uh, mm -hmm. it would have been the worst for you. They're flashing lights, so I don't know what that means. But go on, talk, anyhow. Or maybe we're off, I don't know. Uh, Are you going to read it right now, Vincent? Yes, this is not a bulletin. It's a summary that they're anxious for us to get on the air right now. Well, a summary. Welcome of the day's happenings on the Tokyo Surrender story from the NBC newsroom. At 1.49 this morning, the Tokyo radio said that our terms had been accepted. At 9.59 a.m., the White House said it expected to have Japan's surrender supplied before the day is out. A few minutes later, Charles G. Ross, presidential secretary, said that the Japs' reply had reached Bern. But at 12 noon today, NBC reporter Max Jordan broadcast from Bern that at that hour, the Japanese terms had not been received by the Swiss. And 15 minutes later, the White House confirmed the NBC report. It was explained that the note received in Bern from Japan, apparently, was a protest against our using the atomic bomb. So there is nothing new at this time, although the Tokyo radio says that Japan's reply is on the way. Dawdling for time. Mary Margaret, I, I think that um, it is just temporary. It's a transition period. We know the answer. Isn't it wonderful that in America and in our United Nations, we know the answer? That's the exciting thing. You mean we, we know, know it's, it's we going know it's to come. the answer, yes. Yeah. It's but I, yes, Christian Pearson? Yes, I'm glad we know the answer. I hope we know the answer to peace, too. And I hope I will have an opportunity in America to tell the American people what I think they should do. So I got in then. And then you got in flying, and then where did you go? Uh, I came back to States, trained for about a year. Then we went to the uh, MTO with the 15th Air Force. In other words, over to Italy. Over in Italy, correct. Uh -huh. And over on your right breast, I see that discharged serviceman's button. That's right. Uh, you, you have been out of the Army how long? Approximately two months right now. And uh, what did you do before you got into the uh, Army? The Army, uh, I was working as a count with one of the uh, firms right across the street here, Union Electric Company, Missouri. Well, uh, one of the public utilities, right. I see. Uh, are you going back to that job? Yes, I'm going back. Well satisfied. Uh, have you been back? Yes, I have. Two days. Uh, two days you've been back. <laughs> well, in other words, uh, you had hoped that you might uh, see the finish with the rest of the boys. But... Yes, uh, I had, and uh, but I knew they wouldn't send me back to combat again. And when those chances come to get out, you're, most everybody wants to take them. And I'm glad to see everybody getting through though now really makes me feel good are you married no i'm single any prospects i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pretty girls around here yeah this is st louis a fine town <laughs> st louis is your home yes it is good <laughs> well thank you a lot clarence darnton it's been nice talking to you as you know i referred to him as clarence darnton although he does wear the silver bar of a first lieutenant and the uh over on the left shoulder the patch of the air corps as well as all those uh, decorations and the uh, wings of a navigator. And on the right lapel, the uh, button that so many of the boys are going to be wearing very shortly, and for that we can all be very thankful, the discharged serviceman's button. And now from the corner of 12th and Olive in St. Louis, we take you to WHO in Des Moines. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, this is WHO Des Moines, and as you can hear, Des Moines is happy as is the entire nation 
in the entire world after the announcement of the cessation of hostilities, which we all waited so hopefully and now greet so joyfully. We're going to try to give you very briefly just a little word picture of what is happening here in Des Moines and the reaction of Des Moines to the peace. And in order for the first minute or two to give you a more or less serious picture of what has taken place, here is Mel Nelson, acting news editor of WHO. All right, Mel. Des Moines tonight personifies the state of Iowa and the nation in celebrating the end of war. You can hear the noise. Thousands of persons of all ages appeared from nowhere as soon as the news was flashed. They jammed the business district, and with noisemakers and confetti to say nothing of fireworks bombs, gave the Des Moines Loop the appearance of a thousand state fairs. Motorists appeared like magic. Where they got the gasoline is a $64 question that will probably never be answered. And they created a traffic jam this city has never seen before. Three military policemen on a downtown corner were kept busy accepting kisses. Out of the Fort Des Moines WAC training center, an impromptu parade started upon hearing the news of the Japanese surrender. WACs poured from their barracks in various stages of army uniforms. Some wore fatigued, some sports clothes, slacks. From somewhere came a man beating a drum. Up at Waterloo, Iowa, Mrs. Thomas Sullivan, mother of the five brothers who perished in the sinking of the cruiser Juno back in November 42, was unable to speak. Her daughter Genevieve explained that Mrs. Sullivan was glad for other boys returning, but that her sons won't be back. Thank you very much, Mel. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Hib Cleveland of the WHO announcing staff has a few personalities here to interview. All right, Hib. Thank you, Harold. We have a whack right over here. Would you come over to the microphone, please? Would you tell us your name, please? Uh, candidate Marjorie Soule. Is that the officer candidate? That's right, sir. And when do you graduate? Graduate this Saturday, well, sir. Well, isn't that wonderful? Now, uh, where are you from? I'm from Eugene, Oregon. From Eugene, Oregon. That's a long ways away. And what did you do when you heard the news? Sir, I sat down and cried. You did? Yes, well, a lot of us did that, I know. And uh, do you have any relatives in the Pacific area? Yes, sir. My father has been a prisoner of war for 30-some months. Well, say, this was wonderful news for you. Have you heard from him? Do you know when he'll be back? No, sir. The last we heard, he was very near Hiroshima. We hope he's still alive. Well, we certainly hope so, too. And thank you very much, yes, Officer sir. Candidate Salt. And now back to Harold Fair. Thank you, Hib. And now, ladies and gentlemen... In this crowd suddenly has loomed the face of Ernest Yost. Dr. Ernest Yost, you don't know him perhaps, but we in Des Moines know him as the head and director of a small arms munitions plant which has turned out for months and years bullets to fire at the Japanese. Dr. Yost, uh, I'd like, first of all, your reaction to this announcement of the peace. I never was so happy over anything in my whole life. Did it swell. One of the things that all of us have wondered about, Dr. Yost, is just how many bullets did you make out there at that plant? Can you tell us now? About five billion. That's what the people of Iowa made for the, for the armed forces. Thank you, Doctor. And I say thank you for everybody in the country. Five billion bullets to bring about this peace. And now, Doctor, uh, have you any idea uh, as to the participation of your own plant? in the atomic bomb development, or was there any there? Is that a secret that I shouldn't ask you about, or can you now tell us? We had no part in the atomic bomb development. We, we just made the ammunition that the, that the infantrymen and the machine gunners use in fighting the Japs. Well, Doctor, I'm sure that the boys that fired those bullets did as fine a job as you and your plant and your organization did in making them. And I thank you on behalf of everybody in this nation for the job you did. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, sir. And now back to Hip Cleveland. Thank you, Harold. And now we have another whack. We'd like to have you listen to just at this point. And what is your name, please? P.S.C. Elgis. P.S.C. Elgis. And where do you live? Griswold, Iowa. And what did you do when the news was 
broadcast. I just jumped up and shouted for joy. I'll bet you did. And uh, do you have anyone in the Pacific area? I have a brother in the Seabees. You have a brother in the Seabees. Do you know where he's located? He's located on uh, Iwo Jima. He's been there about seven and a half months. Well, we hope he'll be home soon, and thank you very much. And now back to Harold Fair. I'm going to take just another second to interview this young lady. What is your name? T5 Rosalie Boyer. T5, and you're a whack. I'm a whack. What did you do when you heard the announcement? I just said, very quiet. That isn't what I heard. I heard every whack was out on the parade ground screaming their heads off. Here's another boy. What's your name? Jack Allensworth. Jack, what does that uniform signify? Infantry. Army. Jack, what'd you do when you heard that announcement? I finished eating the corn. You what? Well, the ain't corn in the cob, and I finished that first. Well, that's a good thing for an island to do, Jack. You're not kidding. Well, Jack, I'm glad as you are, I'm sure, to hear the news that the war is over. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from Des Moines, let us say that we're happy, you're happy, and we take you now to W.O.W. in Omaha. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tom Daly speaking for the Broadcasting Company from 17th and Farnham Street from the city of Omaha, Nebraska. Across this nation... This broadcast has gone on tonight. You've heard the great celebrations in Times Square here in New York, in Chinatown out at San Francisco, and across the country at St. Paul and at St. Louis. And now across the Atlantic, 3,000 miles away, Londoners, too, are celebrating tonight the end of almost six years of war for them. The natural gathering place, of course, is London, and London, rather, is like in Times Square, New York, Piccadilly. And so, for a report of what's going on over in London, we're going to switch you to Stanley Richardson in NBC in London. This is Ed Harper in London. After three o'clock in the morning here, and I might add, we're all dancing the whole night through. This is Piccadilly Circus. Times Square in London. Do I have to tell you what's going on? Yes. Brooklyn, wow. I'm coming. 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 I'm coming.
That's a picture of what's happening over in London at this moment. We don't know what became of Stanley Richardson, but that was Ed Hawker speaking to you right from Piccadilly Circus in London. And incidentally, now to clear up that confusion on holidays tomorrow and the next day, President Truman has declared Wednesday and Thursday as legal holidays. That means that all banks, stores, the stock market, all business will be closed. And as for factory workers, the War Manpower Commission says they will not be docked for the two holidays. Here's a bulletin that's come into the NBC newsroom here in New York in the past few moments. Let me read it to you. It's from Reuters, the British news agency, and they have just reported that Marshal Henri Philippe Pétain tonight was convicted and sentenced to death for treason. Let me repeat that to you. The British news agency has reported that Marshal Henri Philippe Pétain tonight was convicted and sentenced to death for treason. Well, we've been taking you across the country on uh, the reactions of what's happening from here to the West Coast and back across the Pacific and across the Atlantic. So you may call this an official VJ night or not, but at any rate, it's the night when the President of the United States, talking for the Allies, was able to speak these triumphant words, and I'm quoting, I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. In that reply, there is no qualification, said President Truman. That was the Jap message that we followed here at NBC almost minute by minute, from Switzerland to New York to the White House late this afternoon. Here are some additional bulletins that have arrived here in the NBC newsroom, and we want to keep you up to date on what's happening in the news picture. Radio Tokyo says that Emperor Hirohito will broadcast to Japan and the Japanese-occupied areas of Asia at 11 o'clock Eastern wartime tonight. Tokyo says that Hirohito's speech will break all traditions. From Guam, there is a report that Admiral Halsey's airmen were just about to start another day's attack on Japan, when the surrender flash came. Halsey dramatically called off the raid. It looks like the war is over, said Halsey, but if any planes appear, shoot them down in friendly fashion. Secretary of State Burns in Washington has called on the Japanese government to give the ceasefire order. That message is being transmitted, of course, still through Switzerland. Radio Moscow tells us that Emperor Hirohito has ordered all Japanese armed forces to give up their arms and follow the orders of the Allied Supreme Commander. The Navy tells us tonight from Washington, too, that it's canceling nearly $6 billion worth of prime contracts. This is in addition to the $1 billion, $200 million cutback, which was just announced a day or so ago. Up in Canada, from Ottawa, Prime Minister Mackenzie King of Canada has declared tomorrow a national holiday. He has also proclaimed Sunday a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. And from London, we hear that King George will make a victory speech tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern wartime. For the past 30 minutes, NBC, in its varied coverage of the reaction of America to the end of this great war, has brought you the voice of Rabbi William F. Rosenblum of the Temple Israel here in New York, the voice of Madame Chiang Kai-shek, 
interviews and color pictures across the country from St. Paul, Minnesota, St. Louis, Mississippi, Missouri, Des Moines, Iowa, Omaha, Nebraska, and from Ed Hocker speaking to us from Piccadilly and London. Keep tuned to your NBC station for all the latest news developments. Kenneth Banghart speaking. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Correct Eastern War Time is now midnight. You are listening to WEAF NBC in New York. Listen, men, of the fighting third fleet. The war is ended. You, in conjunction with your boys and all arms of all sizes, have contributed inestimably to this final result. Our fighting men have brought an implacable, treacherous, and fought very to his knees in absolute surrender. This is the first time in the recorded history of the misbegotten Japanese race that they as a nation have been forced to submit to this humiliation. I said in 1942, the Nips were no supermen. You have helped white finance on that estimate in 1935. Your names are written in golden letters on the pages of, of history. Your fame is and shall be immortal. Wherever you have met the foe, on the sea, on the land, or in the air, you have been supreme. From the early days of fighting with a very great shoestring to the finish of fighting with the mightiest combined fleet the world has ever seen, the results have been the same. Victory has crowned your efforts. The forces of righteousness and decency have triumphed. At this moment, our thoughts turn to our happy and fortunate homeland, to our loved ones. Deeply rooted in each and every heart is a desire. Now the tumult of war has ceased, and victory, absolute and unconditional victory, has crowned our efforts to return to our homes. A simple process of thinking will demonstrate how impossible this is at the moment. The boredom, the homesickness, the beers of fear, the tragedy, the sweat, the blood we have shed so freely. These have been endured by all with fortitude and brotherly comradeship and gladly. This is a common and power possession of each and every rank and rating. We are and shall always remain a band of brothers tried in the fire of the greatest holocaust this world has ever experienced. And because of this, indissoluble, that which we fought and bled and died for has become a reality. That reality cannot be, must not be transient. It must rest on firm foundations. The structure that we build must be so firm that the storms of all ages to come cannot touch its surface. Because of your fighting qualities and the fighting qualities of our brothers in arms, of all services, our beloved land has not known the ravages of war. Our dear ones at home have not been endangered. Give praise to God Almighty for this, and give humble and grateful thanks that he saw fit to use you as his instrument. Victory is not the end. Rather, it is but the beginning. We must establish a peace a firm, a just, and an enduring peace. 
A peace that will enable all decent nations to live without fear and prosperity. A peace that will glorify the inherent dignity and nobility of mankind. Never again should we permit the enslavement of decent human beings. Never again should tyrants be permitted to rise in a civilized world. To attain this requires unremitting toil over a period of years. The enemy over the entire world is conquered and has been forced to bow his collective knees to us the victors. He is unregenerate. It is our cause, our duty, to make him regenerate. This cannot be done in a day. It may take decades and generations. The present and immediate duty of the third fleet is crystal clear. We must, in conjunction with all our white forces so employed, reduce Nippon to military impotency. We must keep the military interest. Failing this, it is imperative that instrumentalities be set up to educate and divorce the Japanese from their barbaric traditions, teachings, and thoughts. This is a matter of common sense, good judgment, policy, and tenacity of purpose, and will require military might for implementation and the very wisest understanding statesmanship. The time necessary to attain this goal is unpredictable. Now that the fighting has ended, there must be no letdown. We shall have long and trying periods of very watchful waiting. A busy man is a happy man. It behooves all our authorities to take this to heart. Plans should be in the formulated period now. Plans to provide work, study, and recreation. This is not only constructively necessary, for the upkeep and preservation of our splendid ships, but imperative for the morale of our incomparable fighting men. I wish it were possible for me to meet, greet, and know each awesome man of our fighting third fleet. Owing to its size and dispersion, this cannot be. You shall always occupy a special and honored space in my mind and heart. We have been through this trying time together. We have shared the good, we have shared the bad. We are brothers, blooded by our active participation in combat operations in an unprecedented naval war. When the time comes, many will return to civilian pursuits. Keep the torch burning. Join your forces in the pursuit of righteousness and decency. You have been tried in a cruel crucible. You have, thank God, been killed not wanted. Let no man tear down that for which you have sacrificed so much. Your civic responsibilities will be great. Meet them with the same fortitude you have displayed during this war. Then shall our great land be safe and sound. You, the terrain of the Navy, keep your sword short. You accept the great responsibility. The great traditions and the constant state of preparedness of this our first line of defense are in your keeping. Maintain your powder dry and as anticipate every new development. The applications change for the principal wall are immutable. God grant that we may never have to apply them again. A ready and an efficient fleet is one of the greatest detriments to the horrors of war. To you all I say, I shall always be ready and glad within my means to render any advice, assistance, or succor. To our fighting brothers of the British Pacific Fleet, my eternal gratitude 
for your efficient and generous services. I am proud, very proud, to have had you under my command during this last combat period of the Western Pacific War on the seas. We who knew you expected great fighting qualities. Our expectations have, not, have been more than fulfilled. Your cooperative spirit, your manner of meeting and anticipating our wishes, the way you have adopted and followed our scheme of maneuvers is little short of remarkable. The coordinative, offensive, and defensive fighting on the surface and in the air makes us, in fact, a single fighting team. To those of us who have suffered injuries or been permanently maimed, my gratitude and thankfulness that you have been spared for further useful activities. May a grateful country never forget the sacrifices you made for the good of all mankind. To those of our boys that have given their all, who made the supreme sacrifice, hail, rest with God. The memory of you will never die. Your names and your deeds will rest with and be an inspiration to all decent mankind through all ages. To your loved ones, my deepest sympathy. May time assuage your grief and bring a full realization of your, of your dear one's more immortal fame. To all of you belong to credit, and I shall do all within my limited powers to see that you receive it. Again and again, God bless you, and well done. Ladies and gentlemen, the National Broadcasting Company has brought you the address to the men of the Third Fleet by Admiral William F. Halsey directly from the flagship in the Third Fleet off the coast of Japan. This broadcast came to you through the NBC newsroom in San Francisco. We switch you now to NBC in Washington. We now present the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheehan of Catholic University, Washington, D.C., Monsignor Sheehan. Friends, the unglutted beast of war no more strains at the leash of peace. The iron-throated harmonies of battle have ceased. The hot cannon's lips now may cool as the world healed by the baptism of war's cleansing pain shouts out the blessed word of peace. That we may not be remiss in gratitude, we acknowledge a threefold debt of thanksgiving to God on this day of victory. First, we thank God for the end of war, which means that Moloch shall no more devour our young. During these few years we have been in it, we suffered one million casualties, and the world lost between 12 and 15 million men where their lives snuffed out hardly before they be began to choose a vocation. The young men who landed at Anzio Beach, stormed the sands of Normandy, breached the fortresses of the Pacific, fighting at times on islands hardly large enough to defend the cause, the water taking the measure of their unmade graves, cannot be restored to their parents on this day of victory. Though not in fact and yet in spirit, these parents can bend over their departed and say, this is my body, this is my blood. These words of theirs will have meaning and consecration simply because someone else spoke those words before and gave them meaning. And were it not for their immolation on an earthly Calvary, 
America in this hour would not have its communion with liberty and with victory. And as we now gather in the golden sheaves of victory from the springtime of their lives, let us not forget to thank God that no more shall our fields be dung with death. From now on, the glorious harvest of peace. And we thank God, too, that we have been called to be defenders of the right. The founding fathers of our great nation wrote that God has endowed every man with certain inalienable rights. It was to preserve these rights that we went to war. We have fought a nobler cause than we know. We have even fought a nobler cause than we deserve. One day Simon of Cyrene stood as a passerby on the road to Golgotha watching a man carrying his cross. And the long arm of the Roman law reached out to him and said, Take up his cross. And Simon took it up without knowing whose cross he really was carrying. America too at the crossroads of history had the hand of destiny laid upon its shoulders as it heard the voice, Take up the cross of war. We did not want it. We did not ask for this war, but we took it up, carried it to the very end, and even on this night, some of us perhaps do not know that all the time we have helped carry the very cross of Christ. And finally, we thank God that Russia has been our ally. For the first two years of this war, Russia had made a peace with the Nazis. But then there came over them a change of heart and they joined the society of the Christian world in the defense of human rights. Materially, it might have been impossible for us to have won this war without their manpower and their bravery. But it certainly would have been a hollow victory for us tonight if that great nation, which covers about one-fifth of the Earth's surface, had not been one with us in the defense of the great patrimony of Christian civilization and in vindication of the liberty which comes to us from God. We thank God, too, that we've been spared destruction. While fighting a war on two oceans, we have been spared from pestilence and from famine and disease. It has been estimated by someone that it takes $1,500,000 to kill one single man in war. And we who have not spared that mountain of wealth for destruction shall not now begrudge the produce of our valleys, that from eternal hills will come the echo of him whom we really fed, what thou hast done to the least of these, my brethren, thou hast done unto me. There's one note I would strike in conclusion, and that is the role that is played by the Blessed Virgin Mary in our history. The first sight the discoverer ever got of this glorious land, which had been hidden behind the veil of the centuries, was from a ship called... Holy Mary. Jaws Professional. We face item part five. We documents. Ex we Friday eight one zero four five. N. News for December 1-3. N. New folder. N. News during August of Enter. News 2. News 3. 4. 5. 6. 7. News 4. 5. 0. 8. 1. 5. More VJ Day coverage. NBC. Unloading job. Can't. OK. Enter. News during August. 1 a.m. Eastern Wartime. 
This is WEAF, New York. The National Broadcasting Company invites you to another radio trip across this nation as it celebrates the end of the war and victory in the war. Throughout the night, through NBC's reporters and its affiliated network stations, we have been bringing you an on-the-sport report of America's reaction to the great news of today. We take you now on another trip from the sidewalks of New York, from the white lights of Broadway to the shores of sunny California, and from New England to the Southwest. Our aim is to give to America a true picture of how this nation felt and acted on this night of the 14th of August and the early morning hours of the 15th of August in this year 1945. Now, for our first on-the-spot report, we switch you to NBC's mobile unit in Times Square and Ben Grower. From Times Square, from the heart of the Great White Way, a greeting from the NBC mobile unit as President Truman's announcement of the surrender of Japan is greeted by the sixth hour of continuous demonstration and no visible sign of abatement. The uh, population that has been massed on this uh, triangle right in which we're placed now has decreased a little bit. I'd say there's, oh, maybe 10% fewer people, but there's at least as equal amount of fervor and enthusiasm, in fact, in many sections more so. Several times the trolley car tracks uh, right alongside of has broken into flame because pranksters have dropped metal wires in. Several times the ominous and insistent clanging of police and ambulance uh, bells have indicated that there's been a minor casualty. And many, many millions of times have unknown lips been caressed in a fleeting embrace of joy as a salute to the glorious day of victory throughout the world. We're seated, as I say, right in the middle of uh, Broadway, right on the corner of Broadway and Times Square, 43rd Street. And looking up to the north and down to the south, I again see that ocean ever-changing in movement and form of millions, well, literally a million people who've jammed themselves into this funnel which is the heart of New York and expresses, in a way, the heart of all America and the world in its jubilation tonight. We've been quizzing people galore. We've pranced up and down the street and watched some of the spectacles that were interesting and exciting and special. And even a little enterprising hot dog merchant who had raised the price for, to 15 cents and seized the opportunity to cash in while the OPA was looking the other way. The little blonde girl with a red popsicle whose lips were smeared by many kisses from anxious youngsters around the, uh, in the neighborhood. A little group of jumping jivesters who, without any music at all, went on their merry way expressing the elation in their heart. Streams of people scuffing down Broadway. I've talked with a number of people here, and we have at this moment a little United Nations group. Besides those hundreds and hundreds of Americans who are here, there are representatives of every one of the United Nations who are expressing their joy in the universal victory tonight. Right alongside me, for instance, is a young man. Where are you from? I'm from London. What's your name? Ralph Bergman. And how do you happen to be here in the U.S.? Oh, my father lives over here, and I just came here a short while ago. How long have you been here? Oh, I've only been here a few months. I came here just after V.E. Day. I spent V.E. Day in London. Was the excitement there? Oh, yes, it was just like it. It was really great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And how about the excitement here? Oh, it's wonderful. It's the greatest day of my life, and I'm really enjoying it. Well, Kenny Bergman... A young man here, what's your name? That's Moses, Moses Villamizar from Colombia. I came here only 15 days ago, and I, ha I am overwhelmed to see this ocean of people going to and fro uh, in the most exciting of all uh, spectacles I have ever seen. Oh, Long live America. Fine, thank you for my Latin American friend. What impresses you most about what you've seen? Well, uh, the most I have, I have noticed 
uh, have been some some cases about uh, half an hour duration of one hour. <laughs> that has been my most impressive thing in New York. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And now this is Ben Grau on the NBC mobile unit in the midst of the maelstrom that continues unabated in New York. Salute to American and United Nations victory. Speaking from the NBC mobile unit in Times Square, we switch our controls now to station WBZ in Boston. This is Carl DeSue's reporting. Boston blew its conservative top at twilight this evening, and the ghosts of Tory-tossing revolutionaries are right now again dancing in the streets in a violently joyful throng which floods its thousands over historic Beacon Hill, across the swan boat haven of the public garden, and through the common where our forefathers, as little long ago as Emerson's time, pastured their cows. It's now the scene of such dynamic revelry as these cloistered parts have rarely seen. Minutes after the great good news was announced, our Chinatown was jumping, and its short, snarled streets are still exploding with firecrackers. Our reporters tell us Scully Square is still packed with uniforms. The Haymarket in the region around Fannel Hall, cradle of America's first liberties, is rocking once more with the spirit of liberation. Freedom chimes lustily from the old North Church. Paul Revere, Sam Adams, John Hancock, the great leaders of our historic beginnings, must be whirling in their graves in old granary burying ground, up beyond the slender, steepled Park Street Church on Brimstone Corner. The churches have opened their doors throughout the city, and many midnight services have been announced. This in contrast to the theater crowds which packed a nearby theater here for the second night premiere of the play Mr. Strauss Goes to Boston, that play which symbolically depicts another day of peace. The great celebration when Boston Brahmins brought Johann Strauss, the Viennese waltz king here, to lead 2,000 musicians in a gigantic jubilee celebration of peace after the war between the states. I'm sure that any historian will tell you that tonight beats all Boston celebrations by a mile. Even the two to raise when Washington made this hub city of the universe the first major stop on his continental tour shortly after these colonies were forged into a nation. Boston has dropped its conservatism as at the crack of the many guns you may hear saluting behind our microphone. It may have taken an atomic bomb to accomplish it, but the Bay State tonight can certainly match yell for yell the overwhelming joy and glorious relief being felt in every city in the land. Carl DeSeers at WBZ now transfers you to the Boston Globe on Newspaper Row and Streeter Stewart. This is Streeter Stewart speaking to you from the offices of the Boston Globe in the heart of stolid and staid old Boston, where we've set up the WBZ microphones to report this glorious and epoch-making event. The people of Boston have evidently deserted their ancient and honorable tradition of reserve and have gone as all out for noise, shouting, and hilarious celebration as anyone else in the nation. Not five minutes after the news broke that the Japanese had accepted the surrender terms, the people of Boston, who had been awaiting expectantly along with the rest of the world for the news, poured out into the streets and began celebrating without restraint. The focal point of the rejoicing was the Boston Common, but the activity spread like wildfire. People ran into the streets yelling and shouting and making noise with every conceivable contraption they could put their hands to. Ticker tape began to stream from the windows of hotels and business houses. People in the windows cheered, bent out, threw paper, waved and screamed. One woman ran down the street shouting, It's all over! It's all over! Sailors were running about everywhere, celebrating in various ways, but especially by kissing the girls. In less than ten minutes, there were thousands of people thronging the streets. Never have I seen such a celebration. Thousands of cars appeared as if by magic, with their horns honking and tooting without cease. This din was soon made more intense by the great throaty whistles from the harbor and the navy yard. A formation of planes crisscrossed the skies. A fleet of fire trucks went by, led by the ladder truck. 
In about three minutes, the trucks returned, taken over by civilians, and so covered with people that you couldn't even see the trucks themselves. A little Austin car flitted here and there, and someone in it threw out whole packages of lighted firecrackers that banged all over the place. We left the radio studio and went down past the common, historic old Boston common where they say you can take any street and go any way and still get to where you're going by following the narrow streets, which in turn are said to follow the old cow trails. I doubt that in all the history of this birthplace of freedom, from the time Paul Revere made his historic ride down to the present time, has the old North Church and the Bunker Hill Monument and the old King's Chapel seen such a celebration as this. History is being made here tonight. As we came around by the Massachusetts State Capitol building and down toward the Boston Globe offices on famous old Washington Street, we had to crowd through thousands and thousands of people, gone wild, crazy with joy, and insane with pleasure. Already husky and hoarse from cheering, the masses of humanity seemed to have a superhuman vitality as they screamed with a frenzy of pleasure on this glorious day. Man, what a celebration. The noise is deafening and there's no sign of a let-up. So this is Boston. This is New England where no one ever gets excited. This is Streeter Stewart returning you from the home of the Bean and the Cod to the NBC Newsroom in New York. Thank you, WBZ, for your colorful description of the VJ Day festivities up there in usually quiet and staid New England. We turn our radio camera on our great southwest now and focus our attention on station KVOO and the oil capital of the world, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Good morning. This is Leon Goodwin in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Less than 50 years of our American history ago, Oklahoma was a wild and woolly west. And this morning, Oklahoma's big day exuberance is running through to its old time home. Here at KBOO in Tulsa, oil capital of the world, we suspended the microphone with two stories above one of the city's principal thoroughfares to bring you the sound of a wild and woolly VJ Day celebration. Six shooters in all, partner. Or maybe they're firecrackers we've been saving. Listen to the victory celebration in Tulsa, and those auto horns have been honking since 6 o'clock last evening, Tulsa time. So much for an atmosphere at an early hour in the morning, after six hours of the same. Let's switch now to Ken Miller in the KVOO News Bureau. Ken has the VJ Day reaction that really counts. A report on how folks feel about the end of the war in America's smaller towns and cities. The communities that add to an America that couldn't be beaten by the Germans or the Japs. Watch the reaction, Ken, in the towns with the Indian names, the first American names. Well, we might say, oh, what a beautiful morning away down here in Oklahoma. And Oklahoma, the home of the vanishing Americans, has confetti in her hair this morning. The state's two principal cities, Tulsa and Oklahoma City, went wild with joy as the triumphal news came over the National Broadcasting Company to give us the first news in Oklahoma of the Japanese surrender. The state's governor, Robert S. Kerr, was out of the state, but Lieutenant Governor James E. Berry of Stillwater, within minutes of the president's declaration, came through with an official proclamation calling for Thanksgiving in this state of the Southwest. Tulsa, the oil capital, went into a state of pandemonium prematurely on the late afternoon Tuesday, as word came that the acceptance of the Allied surrender terms was on its way to Washington. It might have been Times Square, or it might have even been State Street in Chicago on a smaller scale. Ticker tape and confetti showered the downtown district ankle deep. 
One oil company also showered thousands of pages of governmental reports and regulations intact from their binders into the city streets. Tulsa police were out in force, and even when calls came from various sections of the city reporting disturbances, the city's police chief, Roy Hyatt, reported, everything is under control, not a single disturbance, just Tulsa enjoying the peace declaration of today. That was Tulsa tonight. Oklahoma City presented the same picture. Streetcars and buses were at a standstill for more than five hours as throngs made the lives of motormen weary as they attempted to keep schedules. Downtown hotels and nightclubs were turned into hubbubs of noise and cheering as the wild crowds, waving banners and flags and wearing hats of every description, paraded from one resort to another. All over the state, the reaction was much the same. Down in Salisaw, Oklahoma, Wheeler Mayo, the editor of the newspaper there, reported that the capital of the Cookson Hills District, brought into the headlines by the infamous Pretty Boy Floyd, reported his city was a bedlam of celebration. We shouted to the high heavens with joy that the war was over, but we didn't forget to maintain our equilibrium long enough to give thanks. I never walked down the streets of our town of Salisaw before and saw our citizens crying. Tahlequah, Oklahoma, over in the heart of the Ozarks and only 15 miles from Camp Gruber, one of the nation's outstanding Army training camps, there the reaction was much the same. Harold Rocket, our news correspondent, reported... Tahlequah threw a celebration such as we never saw before. It was tremendous, and it's still going on. Nearly every one of our 4,000 citizens turned out and staged a celebration which will go down in the history of Tahlequah. A newspaper editor and a congressman from eastern Oklahoma, the Honorable Paul Stewart, said, This is a great moment. For the first time since the tragic tornado which wiped out more than half of our city just a few months ago, Smiles and expressions of thankfulness spread over the faces of our citizens. Personally, I'm grateful, and I intend to go to Washington within the next few days to start work on reconverting our nation to a peacetime living. That was the statement of Congressman Paul Stewart of Oklahoma. John Buford, another news correspondent, Shakota, Oklahoma, real Indian settlement, said, It has been a great day. Our entire town went wild with joy. I don't know when it will end. I've never seen anything like it. And then there was the home of Will Rogers, the nation's revered philosopher, Claremore, Oklahoma. Harry Cates, the editor of the newspaper in which Will Rogers once spent his spare moments, said, It has been a tremendous ovation for our victorious nation. And W.E. Sunday, the closest friend of the late Will Rogers, said, I wish Will could be here tonight. That is the only thing missing. Then there was the capital of the Osage Nation, the home of the world's richest Indian tribe, Pawhuska, Oklahoma. They didn't forget the bronzed Indian heroes of tonight, as that town went wild with joy. But with all the joy, the Osage Indians didn't forget to give their thanks. Chief Fred Lookout, the principal chief of, chief of the Osages, had only this to say, I give great thanks to our great white father tonight that we have been victorious and that this is the end of the great conflict. And now we are returning you to the NBC Newsroom in New York. And with that, we'll take it back to the automation system. We'll talk to you later tonight, everybody, here on Yesterday USA.
Jaws Professional News during August of 1945 folder. News during August. Alt tab. Sound Forge Pro. Escape. Escape. Enter. Catch your falling star. And he had the comic book on the counter. Now Enter. Menu. File menu. New.a. Leaving menus. Data window. Sound one star. Save as dialogue. File name. Sound one. Edit. S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y-N-I-G-A-T-8-19-17-W-I-T-8-P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-S-E-C-O-N-D-P-C Save as, save but enter, edit, data window. Jaws Professional Patricia Office Bill Brad Alt Page Down Alt Tab Leaving Menu Bar Edit Alt Tab Skype Trademark 24 Walden Alt Page Down Alt Tab Patricia Alt Tab Bill Brad Alt Tab Sound Forge Pro 11